This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Good afternoon. It's my great honor and my privilege to welcome you to this conversation today between Justice Elena Kagan and Professor David Strauss. My guess is that everyone in the room knows who I am, but for those on the web or uh, watching this on video, I'm Michael Schill, and I'm the dean of the University of Chicago Law School. There are few more exciting days at the law school than when a Supreme Court justice comes to visit. And I know I speak for everyone here to say that it is especially exciting to welcome home one of our own. I have had the great good fortune of knowing Justice Kagan since the days when everyone called her Elena. We were undergraduates together at Princeton. She was in the class of 1981, although we're dating ourselves, I'm dating ourselves right now, and I was in the class of 1980. At the time, Elena was extinguishing herself as a reporter and editor of the Daily Princetonian. I was on the business side of the newspaper trying to do as little as possible. <laughs> now, from there on, she earned a Master of Philosophy at Oxford and a JD from a Harvard Law School, where she was supervisory editor of the Harvard Law Review. A New Yorker by both birth and mindset, her Chicago ties began right out of law school with a clerkship with one of our most beloved alumni, Abner Mikva, who was then a judge on the DC Court of Appeals. She then clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall at the Supreme Court, who called her quote-unquote shorty. The nickname may not fit as well in the present company of the court as those of you who were here for Justice Ginsburg's talk last year can attest. Now, in 1991, Justice Kagan joined our faculty. As the many alumni and faculty with whom I've met have told me, it is hard to overstate how beloved and influential Professor Kagan was here in our community. She was an extraordinary teacher right out of the gate. She regularly scored among the very highest in her teaching evaluations, and those teaching evaluations are still on record, although you can't have access to them. <laughs> Indeed, after only two years, she received a teaching award from the class of 1993. Her scholarship while here at the law school was firmly rooted in constitutional law. Her first few articles were all about the First Amendment and free speech, especially hate speech and government regulation of speech. Those articles established her as a first-class legal scholar and a fierce debater. They continue to influence legal thought on the subject as reflected by a recent article in the New York Times by Adam Liptak. Elena Kagan's impact on our school went beyond teaching and scholarship. She embraced and was embraced by our community. She was a regular at the Lyric Opera. She even started rooting for the White Sox, at least for a temporary period. She was on the faculty trivia team. She was the faculty guest at the 1995 Law School Musical. And she was always a presence in the Green Lounge. Students look up to Elena. Indeed, many adored her. One of our associate deans, 
was a student of hers and likes nothing more than to tell me stories about how she spent more than she should have at the CLF auction for the honor of losing all of her money to Professor Kagan at poker. One of the members of our visiting committee, when she was asked whether she wanted a ticket for this event, said, quote, took two classes with her. I loved her. Alas for us, Justice Kagan had a passion for public service. So in 1995, our loss became President Clinton's gain. She became an associate White House counsel and deputy assistant to the president for domestic policy and then deputy director of the Domestic Policy Council. After four years at the White House, she joined the faculty of her alma mater, the Harvard Law School, and became its dean in 2003, one year before I became dean at UCLA. Now, it may come as a surprise to some of you, but recently appointed deans go to something called New Dean School, taught by senior colleagues. I remember Elena at New Dean School providing wonderful advice so you can blame her for anything I do wrong as dean uh, after that, something that she did repeatedly after I became dean and before she went on to her service in Washington. She was a wonderful colleague and an extraordinary dean. She headed a capital campaign that raised $476 million for the school, and by sheer force of personality, was able to bring harmony to a fractured law school and break a logjam in hiring. Of course, I have mixed feelings about this. I will always remember working for months to retain a faculty member at UCLA. And just when everything was wrapped up, Elena, unbeknownst to me, flew into LA, met with this faculty member, and he was gone to Harvard. <laughs> now, we have never discussed this before, Elena. But with so many Secret Service agents all around, I think I'm going to move to the next topic. <laughs> so in 2009, President Obama, who she also got to know when she was teaching here, appointed her Solicitor General of the United States, where she became the first woman in this position. In 2010, she became the 112th Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Justice Kagan's tenure has been a breath of fresh air on this court. She brings to the court her intellect and her passion. Of course, she also brings brilliant and eloquent writing and a desire to make opinions to the court accessible to all citizens. Much like her teaching, her opinion writing has been smart, funny, and excellent from the very beginning, making her look like a veteran from day one. Now, in just a moment, Justice Kagan will be in conversation with Professor David Strauss, her longtime friend and colleague, with whom she shares a lot in common. Professor Strauss, of course, also needs no introduction in this room, given that he is celebrating his 30th year on our faculty this year, but that's never stopped me before. He's the Gerald Ratner Distinguished Service Professor of Law and one of the nation's leading authorities on constitutional law. Like Justice Kagan, he graduated from Harvard Law School also clerked for Judge Goldberg on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Also like Justice Kagan, Professor Strauss served significant time in the public sector in the offices of legal counsel and solicitor general. He has argued 18 cases before the Supreme Court, five of them while on our faculty, and filed more than 40 briefs on the merits. He's the author of dozens of articles on constitutional law, 
and a recent incredibly influential book entitled The Living Constitution. He's also editor of the Supreme Court Law Review. Perhaps the most important thing that he has in common with Justice Kagan is his renown as a teacher. David has received the annual teaching award five separate times, which is a record by a considerable margin. Today we welcome Justice Kagan back to the law school, a place where she has made, you have made, a tremendous mark, a place where you thrive, and a place where we will always call you one of our own. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Justice Elena Kagan and Professor David Strauss. Justice Kagan, welcome back. It's really great to be here, David. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for that tremendous introduction. Thank you for your warm welcome over the course of the day. It's really great to be back here. It's been a while. And, uh, I'm, 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 uh, you know, there was a moment yesterday when uh, it was pretty clear that I was not going to get here if I stuck with my, uh, my pre-existing airplane reservation. And the question was, should I try to get on a 7.30 in the morning plane to come into a blizzard? <laughs> Which is what my secretary sort of suggested to me. And I said, do I want to go that much? <laughs> but uh, but I, I'm glad that the answer was yes. I'm really glad to be here. It's great to, to see you all. Um, now, you're starting your fifth term, in the middle of your fifth term on the court, but you're still junior by, you're still the junior member of the court. The junior justice. The junior justice. Now, is it true that, that they make you answer the door in the conference? Yes, because, they regularly haze me. I mean, so you can't, if Justice Kennedy's closer to the door, you're Justice Breyer, you can't say, Tony, Steve, I am the closest to time. the door. I, I am see. the closest to the door for a reason, because <laughs> I'm supposed to answer the door. Actually, there, there are two things that I have to do. One is, um, uh, and they, they a little bit conflict with each other. One is that the junior justice takes all the notes from the conference because, as I think most people know, it's just the nine of us in there. There's nobody else, no clerks, none of the people from the clerk's office. And somebody has to communicate what we've done in there to the rest of the people around the court who need to know. So, uh, so I'm in charge of like taking all our notes, and then all my colleagues leave at the end, and I stay, and a whole bunch of the court personnel, mostly from the clerk's office and also from our legal office, come in, and at that point, I tell them everything that's happened and all the votes that we've done. So that's one part of my job. And the other part of my job, as you say, is... Uh, actually, there are three parts of my job. I'm going to give you another. But the other part is to open the door... And you think, well, well, who's knocking, you know? <laughs> because everybody knows that this is private and confidential and nobody... But it turns out my colleagues, yeah, some of them sometimes, a little bit forgetful. So, you know, the, the door knocks, and it's this strange kind of there are two doors. So one person opens one door from one side, and the other person opens the other door from the other side, and you kind of meet in between. And, um, uh, you know, somebody's bringing one of my colleagues's eyeglasses, or, uh, or you know, they've left a file in their office, or they really need another cup of coffee, or well, whatever. And uh, so, you know, there I am. I'm trying to take notes, you know, 
and I have to keep on bopping up and down to get the door, which is hard. You know? yeah. so, it's among the hardest things I, I do. No, I'm fun. exaggerating, of course. <laughs> Uh, but there is a little bit of like, oh, the junior justice. Let's have the junior justice do it. It's like Mikey, you know? Uh, but the third part, and this, um, the chief justice's counselor, who's a very important man in the, in, in the court, great, great guy, when I got confirmed, he came over to the Solicitor General's office where I was at the time, the day before the confirmation vote, and he just sort of like sat down with me and said, you know, here are the things that are going to happen to you over the next few days, and I want to uh, let you know about all these things and make sure that they're good with you. And he said, okay, and of course, uh, the junior justice always sits on the cafeteria committee. <laughs> so I was like, this is a big part of your job now. You know, the junior justice <laughs> sits on the cafeteria committee. And I had been a dean, so deans, they know about cafeterias. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so... Mm-hmm. Uh, I took this, but there I am. I'm the junior justice. So once a month, I go to the cafeteria committee meeting, where we discuss um, how are the recipe for the chocolate chip cookies the same or different? You know. So. And the divide five four on that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this continues until someone else gets appointed. To the justice Breyer did it for 13 years, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like Justice Sotomayor, yeah, nine months and out, yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> um, let me ask you sort of apart from those uh, things, something less momentous, which is um, something just sort of something when you went on the court, even though you knew the court well from having been Solicitor General, from having been a, uh, a law professor, the things that surprised you apart from having to answer the door and so on, things that still surprised you about the court or things that that would surprise us about what it's like on the inside? Well, you know, one of the things I thought when I got there is that what was most surprising was how little was surprising. And uh, I don't mean like, oh, I knew everything. Um, I mean it in the sense of um, it's an institution that is pretty stable and that changes very slowly. And I had been there about I think it was 23 years earlier as a clerk. Mm-hmm. Of course, I had been Solicitor General the prior year. And in that way, you get to see a lot of what the court does and its processes and uh, uh, manners of, of, of working. But as a clerk, I had been there you know, over two decades ago. And I thought for sure it would be a very different institution. Uh, and it turned, they were all, almost all different personnel, mm-hmm. not quite all. But in lots of ways, the court functioned in the exact same way. Uh, and in, in ways that sometimes uh, at, at the beginning seemed to me funny, but now I think I appreciate a lot more. So, you know, it turns out that in the world, and during those 23 years, there was a communications revolution, right? <laughs> well, not really in the court. <laughs> Where email is considered kind of beyond us, you know? Uh, we, we all communicate with each other still by, uh, you know, we write these memos and then somebody literally walks them around the building. Hmm. Uh, uh, so we're not in email communication with each other, except maybe informally, uh, uh, one to one to one. Um, uh, and you know, just the ways that the court operates, the procedures it uses, the, the the ways the justices communicate with each other, are to a surprising extent really the same as they have been at least for several decades. So, and then the people, honestly, so one of the first things that the Chief Justice did when I got to the court was 
he gave me a tour of the whole place, and we went around to office to office to office, and uh, he introduced me to people, and just a shocking number of people said to me, oh, I remember you from when you were a clerk. And uh, sort of like you thought, was I okay then, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But, um, you know, uh, uh, the personnel is very stable, and the court as an institution is very stable, and it's actually one of the things I've grown to appreciate about the place, that this is an institution that kind of works just in the way it operates and, and, uh, uh, and its traditions and practices have a kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, beauty might seem a little mm. bit far-fetched. But mm. um, I guess the thing that really is a surprise is what it sounds like in conference, right? That that's the thing that nobody knows. So you can have a pretty good sense of the court and the way it operates and the kinds of cases it takes and the, and the ways it decides them. But it's like, well, what's it, what does it sound like in there? And that's the thing that I think for everybody is new. And I remember the Chief Justice and I talking about this, talking about our first conference and what surprised us. And, and uh, you know, I remember going in and it was, um, it was, it was what we call the long conference where we talk about a gazillion cert petitions, and, and we go through them pretty quickly, but I was so overprepared for that conference. <laughs> you know, I knew them in the way you would know merits uh, uh-huh. cases, as opposed to the way we do cert work. And, um, but, uh, but just, the, I, I think um, if there were a fly on the wall of that conference, um, I mean, I think one of the really great su- surprises or, you know, it's just, it's an unknown. It's the black box. And then it's like, well, what does it sound like? I think it sounds awfully good. Mm-hmm. I think if you were a fly on the wall, you would say, oh, these people, they're, uh, they're really, they're, 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 they're thinking hard, you know, and they're trying to get it right. And they're really well prepared. They've, you know, digested all the arguments and there are disagreements for sure. And uh, but the, this, these are nine people who were really engaged and really thinking about every case that comes along and and really uh, talking with each other in a you know pretty sophisticated way. Yeah. So yeah. I th- I thought that that was a great surprise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, not you know a great like I'm shocked, right. but it was like a uh, it was a great thing to 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 know to see that right right right. Now when you got there, I mean you've had all this as as, as Mike Schill said, all these amazing jobs in academia, and, and you worked on the Hill for a while, and then you were a, 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 a law person in the White House, and then a policy person in the White House, and then, a, as Mike said, a transformational dean of, of Harvard Law School. Uh, was there something when you got to the court that you said, boy, I'm sure glad I did that, because that really is helping me with my new job? And then the other side of that, is there something where you've thought over the years, you know, I wish, you know, if I knew where I was going to end up, I would have done this, or I would have spent more time doing doing uh, doing something else in my in my career. So you know, I mean, I think the the obvious thing is, oh, being Solicitor General helped me when I got to the court, and that for sure is true. That as Solicitor General, all you do really is think about the court. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I used to think, well, I had this job last year where I spent twenty three hours of every day thinking about. Uh, how to persuade nine people, and now the only difference is that I spend that exact same amount of time trying to figure out how to persuade eight people, uh-huh. you know? Um, uh, and, uh, and, and so that was great preparation. I think in some sense the job that you can have that's closest to being a Supreme Court justice 
is not actually being a circuit court judge. It's being solicitor general because mm-hmm. there you are and you're completely engaged in the court's work and its docket. You're watching all of them every day. You're thinking about all of them every day. Um, them being us, you know. <laughs> um, uh, so, in, you know, in one sense, that's the answer to the question. But uh, in, a, in a different way and maybe a more surprising way, I think the thing uh, that day-to-day for me matters most in, in, um, uh, about my background is, is being a teacher and not being a dean, but truly being a teacher. And the reason is, um, is that, you know, uh, at least for me, the way I used to teach was I would come in in the morning before class and I'd think, how am I going to communicate some complicated set of materials to some set of people who were interested and engaged and really smart but didn't know everything that I knew? And, uh, and that process of trying to figure out how to get a person from here to here in terms of, you know, just, just how to uh, explain complicated things to people and how to uh, make those things stick with a person. Uh, I feel as though that's the process I use every time I sit down to write an opinion. And, and, uh, and I feel it very consciously, like I'm now doing the kind of thing that I used to do when I would prepare for a class. Mm-hmm. It's like to, to really sit there and think, Okay, first you have to accept A, and then you have to accept B, and then it's time to move to point C in exactly the way I did it when I was teaching. Hmm. Uh, so, so I think it's, it's, it's that that most influences day-to-day because a huge part of my job is sitting down at a computer and uh, you know, figuring out how to explain things to people mm-hmm. and how to persuade people of various things. And that's closest to preparing for class. Hmm. Um, now, about the cases, let me ask you, let me ask you this. I mean, it, it's, every case that goes to the Supreme Court is a hard case with rare exceptions because if it weren't a hard case, your court wouldn't have to deal with it. The lower courts would resolve it without your court stepping in. But in that category of hard cases, are there some that you find especially hard, not in, you know, not in, the, not in the sense that they're divisive or something like that, but that in your own mind... You think it over and think it over and you draft and redraft your opinions in certain category of cases where when they come along you find that you're, you're likely to be doing that? Um, or are they just all kind of hard cases? Um, well, they're hard. They're all hard. Uh, I, I guess the ones that are hardest might fall into uh, two categories. I mean, one is there are uh, issues that I sometimes deal with now that I've never thought about before. Um, so, uh, you know, even as late as this is my fifth year, so I'm uh, a majority that, that hasn't come out yet, but, but in, on, on, a, on, a, on a, a kind of case that I had just not had any experience with before, whether in my academic life or a solicitor general. Uh, and when you think of the broad category of things that we do, of course, um, uh, most people, even the people who have been judges for years and years, come to a place where it's like, oh, that's a new kind of question or a new topic or a a, a new subject matter. And those are uh, hard just because you have to sort of get up to speed in ways that you might not if somebody hands me an administrative law question or something like that. So, um, uh, you know, there are those sorts of cases. You know, but sometimes there are cases that fall right in what you've always considered your wheelbox and, and... and they can be incredibly tough. So I was recently 
asked a question in another uh, venue um, about what was the case where I felt myself going back and forth and really having a difficult time making up my mind. And, uh, and the truth of the matter is that doesn't happen all that often for me, that I'm, not, I'm a good decision maker, uh, that, uh, that I take time and that I think through things and I try to absorb things. And, but over time, I come to a decision and then I'm not a person who, who's very Hamlet-like. I don't keep bopping back and forth. I don't experience a lot of regret. I'm a, you know, I'm a good decision maker. But the one time that I can remember where that was really not the case was in this First Amendment case. And you would think, well, you know, Mike Schell said, um, you know, some significant part of my academic career was in First Amendment mm-hmm. law. You would think I would kind of know what I think on that. But, uh, but maybe sometimes just because uh, you've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about that subject matter, and maybe that, uh, that that has something to do with why you can play out the arguments on both sides mm-hmm. in your head mm-hmm. really pretty well. And this was a case where it's a case about whether kids could uh, buy violent video games without the consent of their parents. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there were and there ended up being three opinions, and I was the fifth vote for the opinion that eventually became the majority, which was Justice Scalia's, saying that the uh, that the law was unconstitutional, the law that prohibited this from happening. And uh, I at different points of time, I was on. I, I thought that each of those opinions was right, uh, and. Uh, be, and I ended up joining Justice Scalia's just because I thought that was truly, truly the way First Amendment doctrine worked, that it would arrive you at that result. But I completely understood some of my colleagues who thought that that result was an untenable one, mm-hmm. and that if that was the way First Amendment doctrine worked, maybe it was time to change First Amendment doctrine and do something different. Uh, and uh, so that was a really hard one for me. Mm-hmm. Are you, are, do you get, in cases like this, or for that matter, in not-so-hard cases, do you get what you need from advocates by way of arguments, information? It might not be their fault, but it might just be there's certain sort of insularity to what you get that you're not, for either, either it's their fault or for some other reason you're not getting what you, what you want from advocates. Is that the case, or is, or is it I think the advocates fun? who appear before us do a fantastic job. Uh-huh. I mean, there's been uh, one of the things that's happened over the last 20 years or so at the Supreme Court is the development of a kind of Supreme Court bar, people who are repeat players and who have been there before and who know what the whole enterprise is about, know the way we think, know the kinds of questions we ask, know the kinds of, uh, the kinds of things that matter to us as we reach a decision. And I think it's an unqualified good for the court. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that for the most part we get fantastic lawyering. And indeed when we don't, I, I mean it's so obvious because in general the level of advocacy is so excellent that sometimes you, when you see the opposite, when you see the people who, who, who you know, might be good lawyers but in a different venue and sort of don't get the kinds of questions that we ask, the kinds of issues that interest us and concern us and make us rule one way or the other way, it can be very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, I think that the bar serves us really super mm-hmm. well. And then, of course, for a lot of cases now, we get not only the parties' briefs, but a ton of amicus briefs, um, you know, sometimes too many, sometimes more than anybody can read 
Um, so, so for me, I use my clerks as a kind of tell me what I really need to pay attention to among the tens and tens of amicus briefs that we get in some cases. So, so I don't feel at all as though somehow we're not getting the right mm -hmm. kind of information. Um, you know, in most cases, I feel quite to the opposite. That we're sort of getting it and then getting it again and then getting it again. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and, you know, of course, none of us are completely cloistered. So, you know, to the extent that you think that there uh, are, are things outside that can be helpful to you, I don't talk to people. But, uh, but you know, I think all of us are, uh, you, know, uh, you know, if there are law review articles or if there are blogs or whatever, I mean, that stuff is all available to you as well. Uh, so I think we have like quite enough information. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, Justice Kagan, enough about you. Let's talk about us. Uh, uh, but I say that because you were one of us. Um, uh, so when you sort of, you know, you were you were a law professor, sort of had a, a long and multifaceted career in academia. Now, when you sort of think about that, are there things that went on either on the teaching or scholarship side that you think were, you know, were really especially good, that were being done the right way? And then the other side of that question, whether there are things that you know, should be done differently in law schools you know, from your perspective now. You know, I'm kind of a law school booster. I don't have many complaints about law schools. Um, uh, you, you, you know, not everything that um, law faculty do in terms of their scholarship are very useful or helpful to the Supreme Court, but I think that that's completely okay that the Supreme Court is not the only important legal actor in the world, that there are lots of different audiences for faculty scholarship, for student scholarship, and some people may choose to address what they're doing uh, to uh, uh, something that's before us. Or some people might choose to talk about some broader questions of statutory interpretation or constitutional interpretation that also have, uh, have a real relationship to what we do. And other people might choose to do completely different things, you know, speak to one or another audience in the legal profession or to Congress or to different players in this university, you know, to the historians or to the economists. And what we shouldn't think, we shouldn't think that the only uh, uh, thing that uh, folks uh, in law schools ought to be thinking and writing about is the things that we are. I mean, that would, uh, we have our own clerks. You know, we don't need mm -hmm. the law mm -hmm. faculties of America to sign up for, for us. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, in terms of uh, the, the teaching that goes on in law schools, I mean, I've only been at two, and they're two great law schools, and I have really fond feelings about both. But I think, you know, in both those places, I would say, uh, uh, you know, my, my experience at this one goes back further, the, the one I'm, I'm uh, closer to is Harvard's, but I would say, if you ask me, like, should, is there something really different that they should be teaching uh, there? Um, you know, one of the things that I, that I spent a lot of time on at Harvard was thinking about curricular issues, and the thing that I thought Harvard needed was uh, a lot more attention to statutory and regulatory subjects, including in the f first year. Um, as compared to all the common law stuff that one does get in the first year. Um, uh, and I'm sure that there are other things, too, that law schools ought to do. I think that uh, 
uh, law schools don't spend enough time thinking about how to teach problem-solving skills, given mm -hmm. that most of our students are going to go out into the legal profession and actually become uh, problem-solvers, mm -hmm. you hope, not just people who litigate uh, cases mm -hmm. and certainly not just appellate litigators. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I think that there are a range of things that law schools can, can do to try to prepare their students for the legal world that they're going to come into and to give them the range of skills and the range of knowledge that they need in that legal world. But I'm kind of a law school booster. You know, I don't, like, uh, I'm not, I haven't gotten to the, the court and say, oh, now I understand they're, they're, they're doing everything wrong. Mm -hmm. Everything's got to change. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Let me ask you about one particular sort of academic um, trope in constitutional law and about the Supreme Court, which is this practice of attributing um, a theme or kind of a uh, agenda in a non-pejorative sense to different courts. So the Marshall Court was uh, uh, sort of, it took as its mission, it's an overstatement, but that's the idea, establishing the supremacy of the federal government. And for the Warren Court, it was dismantling Jim Crow segregation. Now, does that, does that way of thinking, I mean, the question, I guess, is whether that's just kind of an after-the-fact historical construct that may be useful for historical purposes, or is that something that, that has some relevance to your work? I mean, not so much day-to-day, -day, but maybe if you sit back at the end of term and think, you know, what's going on in this institution? Where is it going? What do I see as my long-term uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, way I think about myself and inside this institution and my colleagues? Does that, does that fit in there at all? Or as I say, is that just sort of something we look back afterwards and say, well, that's what they were up to? You know, I, I think I do think about questions like that, but I think it's very hard to know when you're in the middle whether you've hit it right or not. Mm -hmm. You know, as, as, as you say, when you think about the Marshall Court or the Warren Court, and someday people are going to be saying, okay, what about the Roberts Court? And, uh, and you can say some things about the, um, it's my fifth year, it's the Chief Justice's tenth year, and you can say some things about ten years of the Warren Court, uh, the, the Roberts Court. But, you know, when it's 20 years or when it's 30 years, the question of whether you'll say those same things or whether mm -hmm. you say different things, I think is entirely uncertain. And I think that's true even year by year, that you have a, a, some sense of where the court's heading as an institution with respect to particular issues, and then you can be surprised. And all of a sudden, you have to kind of readjust your sense of what it means to be the Roberts Court with respect to some issue X. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think it's only after the fact that you can really confidently say, oh, that was, you know. Right. And while, while it's happening, I think uh, it's, I don't think it's an artificial construct to, th to think in those sorts of ways. I think it's just, it's not clear whether you're going to be right mm -hmm. as, you, uh, as you think year by year, term by term, what all this means. Mm -hmm. Does any of that thinking play a role, do you think, in, I mean, what, what, the way you approach your job, the way your colleagues do, or is it, is it too much, you know, we've got these cases, we've got to decide whether to grant the case, and if it's granted, we have to decide it. And the idea that we would actually have, even in some subtle back-of-the-mind sense, an idea of where we want it to go, that, you, you know, you can't do that because of the press of business, or is that not the case? And, in fact, you can have that sort of sense of what, what um, uh, the direction which you hope or want to, want to see the court go. Well, I, I think the two uh, can go together. I mean, I think we do, most of us, all of us, take it a case at a time and think seriously about the case before us. But 
uh, also for most of us, we've seen a lot of other cases, me fewer than all the rest of my colleagues. Mm -hmm. But I can already see that as you go through this job, year by year by year, uh, you start seeing issues, the same kind of issue, even if not the same exact issue, they start coming back around. And what you thought of the, of the issue when it was there before you the last time has some effect on what you think of a pretty close issue mm -hmm. uh, that you're confronting this time. And I, th I think that sense of uh, internal single justice precedent, if you will, mm -hmm. Is, is something that you do say, and that even somebody as new as I am feels a little bit. Like, well, what did I do when I saw this three years ago? And, uh, and, and so a sense of sort of internal consistency in what you're doing, which is not the most important value. I mean, the most important value is actually paying close attention to the case before you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but one is influenced by what one has thought about very similar things before. And I think similarly, uh, you think about, well, where does this lead? And in some ways, you absolutely have to do that. You have to do that. Somebody comes to the court and they make an argument. And uh, you know, are you going to say, oh, I'm just deciding this case without thinking about the consequences of that decision for the next case and the next case and the next case that might be a little bit different? And you try to play out in your head what those differences are and, and how they ought to affect decision making in this case. And then more generally even, I think, uh, 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 at least for me, that I, I, I do um, uh, have a sense of, you know, now that I've, I've thought about this issue a little bit and I've seen two or three cases about it, uh, where do I think this law is heading with respect to this issue? And do I think that that's a good place for it to head or should we sort of, you know, try to turn the steering wheel a little mm -hmm. bit? Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think you'd kind of think about past, present, future a little bit all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does this come into the cert practice too? I mean, is it sort of, is there a sense either, I mean, you or your colleague, would you have observed the sense that, you know, something is amiss in this area of the law that there's, you know, just to give sort of examples on opposite sides, there's, there's over-criminalization or that there's not enough leeway being given to law enforcement, something like that. And we really need to be looking for cases that'll kind of right the balance. That that's, that should be on our agenda on the on the cert side, where the court can control things to a to a greater degree than maybe when you got a case before and you have to decide that case. Yeah, I'm not sure it plays out all that strongly in the cert mm -hmm. aspect. I think that uh, our our decision making for cert is actually pretty uh, simple, and huh. you know maybe some people think it's simple minded which is, uh, uh, is there a conflict out there? Mm -hmm. And if there's a conflict, we take a case. You know, sometimes we think, well, it's not really a conflict. It's only a shallow conflict. We'll let it play out a little bit further. But if there's a conflict, we take a case. It kind of doesn't matter whether it's terribly, terribly important or not so terribly important, uh, that we think of ourselves as having a role in unifying federal law across the United States, that that's an important part of our function. Um, uh, you know, and there are some of us that almost uh, will not ever vote for cert on a case without a conflict on the mm -hmm. theory of it can't be that important or it can't be that wrong if, mm -hmm. if, uh, if there aren't people who have struggled and divided over it below. Mm -hmm. uh, so, mm -hmm. so um, which is not to say that what you're talking about never happens, that, that, uh, that I can think in my head of people who 
who have like a bee in uh, their bonnet about some particular issue and are sort of looking for cases or ways to move the court on that issue. Um, but I think it's, it's actually a quite small part of the cases that we grant. Interesting. Right. Okay, let me, let me close with two kind of questions about life as a justice. Um, before you went to Washington to be SG and then you're SG for a little over a year before President Obama appointed the court, but before that you were, you were dean of the Harvard Law School, which means you're running a big institution and you have to deal with multiple constituencies with students and staff and faculty and alumni and the university and fundraising and travel and phone calls and meetings. Um, that doesn't sound much like what I imagine a justice's life to be. Sounds like Mike's job. Sounds like Mike's job. Yeah. Um, so do you miss that? Uh, I, used to th- I used to think that you could, you could tell that I was changing jobs by counting up the number of emails I got in a day. So it, 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 at Harvard, when I was dean, I would get 300 emails in a day, and they all had to be answered that day, you know? <laughs> and then when I became SG, it was like a big day if I got 40 or 50. And now I'm like, wow, that was an email. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so there's no question that the pace of the job is very different from some of the other jobs I've had in the past, not, not so much from others. Um, and there are things that I miss about, uh, about my old life. I'll tell you what I, I most uh, miss, but then I'll tell you that really nobody should feel sorry for me because this is one heck of a good gig I have. You know? <laughs> um, but the thing I most miss is the opportunity to... Um, uh, the thing about being a dean was that you had to learn a different set of skills or you had to use a different set of skills every single day. You know, that one day you had to be a great teacher and the next day you had to be a great fundraiser and the next day you had to be a great communicator and the next day you had to be a great bridge builder and negotiator mm-hmm. and, then, and so on and so on and so on. And across a whole wide range of different subject matters. I mean, one day you were building a building and the next day you were putting together a law school curriculum. And, and, there, and, and for somebody, you know, my favorite part of uh, a job, any job, is, uh, is when I feel as though I'm learning something. And when I feel as though I'm not learning something, I get a little bit antsy. And, it was, and, and being Dean was an incredible job for always feeling as though the learning curve was vertical, Mm-hmm. because there was such a variety of things you had to do and such a variety of skills you had to master. And, um, and that's, uh, in some sense, not so much true anymore. Just in, in like, every, when I go into the office every day, I kind of know what the pace of every day is going to be and the kinds of things I'm going to be doing every day in a way that is not true of a dean's job. You know, on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, the substantive issues that come before me, every one of them is different. So every one of them is, you know, learning a new subject matter, learning a bunch of new arguments, trying, and uh, at least sh- surely right now, and I hope it's the same in my 10th year, in my 20th year, in my 30th year, um, uh, is, you know, I do feel as though I'm learning a lot about uh, uh, not just different aspects of law, but about the practice of judging, and about how to how to write opinions and 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 all kinds of different things. So uh, so it's a little bit you know more 
uh, you know, there are some days in, in June after we, we finish arguments in April and, and then you work on all the opinions that, uh, that you haven't issued yet, circulated yet. And, you know, there, there are some days in June where I'll think uh, it has been months uh, since I did anything else other than sort of like come in the morning, park myself in front of my computer and, uh, and, just, and just write stuff and then leave and do it all again the next day. Um, but uh, but it's, 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 you know, it's fun if you like thinking about law and reading about mm-hmm. law and writing mm-hmm. about law. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of those are good things, you know. Mm-hmm. I like doing all of those things. And then, uh, you know, obviously... Uh, you know, as I say, there are compensations. I mean, it's incredibly uh, interesting intellectually, and it's a place where you can feel as though you're making a real difference, and uh, uh, and where your job, uh, you know, matters. Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, you know, it's it's for me, it's both a, a joy and it's an incredible privilege to have the job I have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, one last question, which in a way you've just anticipated, which is, I guess I want to say what. What, what do you perceive as the occupational hazards of the job? And here's what I have in mind. You mentioned earlier today that, that well, you know, that you, you don't, you're not used to getting interrupted. That in your current job, you don't ever get interrupted. And, you know, people stand up when you enter the room, for heaven's sake. Uh, uh, so are there things that you see... Is that see- wrong? <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> are, there, are there things that you sort of, you think, you know... Uh, if, well, I'm, gonna, I'm planning on staying in this job a long time. I have to be alert to the possibility that things are going to happen to me that I don't want to see happen to me. That yeah. I'm going to become a kind of person that I want to become, and I really have to kind of put up some barriers against that. Are there, are there things in that category? Yeah, that's interesting. We just had an argument uh, last week, two weeks ago. Uh, it was a case about judicial fundraising. And one of my colleagues, mm-hmm. Justice Sotomayor, one of the questions that she asked sort of went something like this. Uh, I'm a judge. And, and I just know from my life that when I ask a person to do something, that person pretty much always says yes. Uh, and, and I think that that's kind of right, that the way people interact with you changes. When you're a dean, nobody ever says yes. So <laughs> it's really a nice change in that respect. But, um, but uh, you know, they're very eager to please you. Uh, people laugh at your jokes even when they're not funny. Yours are uh, always funny. Oh, of course. Always. Right. <laughs> uh, as you say, you walk into a room and people stand up. I mean, people treat you in a certain kind of way, which, um, which sometimes is like, just stop. Just like, uh, 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 you know, just like go back to I'm just Elena. Um, and sometimes people sort of say Justice Kagan. I'm like, Who is that person? Um, <laughs> Uh, but at the same time, you realize that you, uh, even in just five years, you get used to certain kinds of things. So what struck me the first year as just craziness now kind of seems, oh, that's just what people do. When, and, and then you, worry, you start worrying, I think, in, a, in, 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 in this sort of way that it changes who you are as a human being when people treat you with that kind of honestly undeserved deference. Uh, and so you do, I think, think about ways to keep yourself grounded and keep yourself being the same person that you were before you got to the court and people uh, started treating you as though uh, uh, you, know, you knew everything, but in fact, you don't. 
And, um, and so I think it's a really important thing for uh, us all. And this is true not just of you know, justices. I think it's true of judges generally mm-hmm. in their communities. And their communities might be different, but uh, uh, whether you're the, 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 the family court judge or the traffic court judge or the uh, circuit court judge or the, the Supreme Court justice, I think people do have a sense of like these people who put on their robes somehow acquire this uh, mystique uh, that makes them not real human beings. And in some sense, the courts are, uh, you know, it's good that people think that what we do is considered and thoughtful and, and not just the seat of our pants and that there are, uh, uh, you know, that we, the authority that these institutions have is a good thing for our country. And if, mm-hmm. if part of mm-hmm. that is people seeing us in a certain kind of way, then maybe that's not bad. But I think it's important um, you know, uh, at least it's important for me, and you know, who knows how successful I have been, who knows how successful I will be at this, to prevent it from making me uh, uh, a different person than the person I think I am. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And we'll uh, open it up for questions now. Uh, Thank you, Justice Kagan. Uh, As a member of the court, not only your words, but your ideas and your reasoning and your logic and your thinking is put under very intense scrutiny. I mean, your opinions are read and analyzed by everyone from lowly law students to jurists and lawyers and presidents. Did you find it an adjustment to that, had to deal with that intense scrutiny, and how has it affected both you and your ideas? Well, I mean, gosh, you hope that people read it, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, better than they should read it, than they shouldn't read it. Uh, but, you, you know, of course, uh, look, there are so many reasons to try to get it right that I think that the idea that people are reading it is it's, it's, uh, just one. First, the most important thing is that you get it right for the parties and for the future development of the law. And, uh, and, and you know, what, what grade people are going to give your opinions you know, is, um, I, I guess it, it strikes me as not, uh, all, you know, not, not more important than that is. And that's enough pressure, you know? So I think, I, think, I don't know, for me, I can't kind of think about, oh, uh, uh, you know, I guess the other thing is, is everything I write, some people are going to like and some people are not going to like. And that's just, or almost everything. I mean, not you know, you, some, maybe sometimes everybody agrees, but uh, on a lot of the stuff I do, uh, uh, and, and some of the more public stuff I do, the things that people more comment on, some people will like it and some people won't like it. And so you have to kind of get used to that as part of the job. I think you probably have to get used to that as part of life, just about everything important that people do. Some people will like it, some people won't like it. So I think it's, uh, at least for me, it's not very uh, helpful for me to think about like, what are all these people going to think when they read it, this, this opinion, and how are they going to grade it. Um, uh, it's kind of enough pressure and enough, uh, enough uh, of, of what I think is the important thing, just thinking about uh, you know, trying to make sure that you're actually doing the best job you can. And not just getting it right 
in the result, because I think you're absolutely right that the way we explain ourselves matters a great deal. But to try to you know, get it right in terms of the reasoning and the logic and the persuasive power of what I do. But you know, as to the reception, it is what it is. Uh, thank you, Justice Kagan. Um, there have been articles published recently about a small cadre of former SCOTUS clerks that are now members of the Supreme small, Court. I'm sorry, say that again. A small cadre of former SCOTUS clerks that are now members of the Supreme Court bar that have a monopoly over cases granted cert. Do you think that exists? And if it exists, do you think it's a problem? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've, I, I read those articles. I mean, for the most part, as I said to Professor Strauss, I think that the uh, what's happened to the Supreme Court bar is a, is a very good thing. Um, we get better lawyering as a result of it. We get better briefing. We get better argument. Um, and, and, you know, I haven't gone and one of the, I thought that one of the surprising things about those pieces of, our, of, of those artic- articles was how many of our cases are represented by those lawyers at the search stage. Because I guess I had thought a little bit more that all those lawyers were um, uh, taking over those cases after a case had been uh, granted already, which I'm kind of all in favor of. It's, I think what those articles suggested as a real question is, does it influence uh, us in ways that shouldn't, uh, the, you know, the quality of the lawyering in terms of what cases we take? And I have not really gone back and looked at uh, exactly what those articles were based on. You know, my guess is that in, 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 one of the things that's happening because people have gotten used to the idea of the, there being a fair, you know, a relatively small, very professionalized Supreme Court bar is that people are giving them cert-worthy cases earlier so that it's not so much that these lawyers just know the right buttons to press, although I'm sure there's, some, there's something to that, but it's not... It's not really all about that, as the fact that people understand that quality of lawyering matters on the margins and that they're giving pretty obviously cert worthy cases to them sort of from the get go and allowing them to file the cert petitions. Um, so that's the, I, I don't have much more about, just, I mean, it is, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting set of questions that those articles raise that I hadn't really focused on in the past. Um, as to, you know, is it just that these lawyers are so good that they're having, making us grant cert on cases that we wouldn't ordinarily or vice versa? And my guess is that that's not what's going on. I, I just in, When I think about the way we grant cert, it, it doesn't seem to me to have very much to do with the quality of the lawyering at that stage. So I guess I would uh, resist a little bit that notion. It just, it just strikes me as not very reflective of my own experience, how I think about granting cert. Um, uh, And just just think it has more to do with folks getting those cases to those lawyers earlier and earlier. Uh, And as I said, for the most part, I think the fact that we get briefs and hear arguments from those lawyers is a really good thing. And the only thing that makes me uh, queasy about the whole is that there are uh, I think that there's one set of litigants which, uh, which has not figured this out yet, or not that the, the litigants haven't, but that the lawyers haven't. Um, if you look across the range of the cases we take, uh, I think that the litigants who are uh, 
underserved in terms of the lawyer and quality are criminal defendants. Uh, uh, it's not anybody in the, in the business world, nor is it anybody in the, uh, uh, in, in the uh, you know, uh, unions, consumer groups. Uh, uh, all of those groups, I think, uh, are getting fantastic lawyering at the Supreme Court. I think that the place where it's less the case and less consistently the case is with respect to criminal defendants. And, and I find this sort of troubling because uh, it's not as... Uh, act, uh, they could. I mean, if their lawyers gave up these cases, there are plenty of people who would take these cases essentially for free. There are law school clinics now all over the place that do extremely high-quality work. Uh, and what? But and every time uh, one of these cases comes to the court, where the trial lawyer and the person might be a terrific trial lawyer is doing the first Supreme Court argument without having, without really thinking about the court, without thinking about the way it operates, uh, uh, rather than giving over one of these cases to an experienced Supreme Court bar member. That's when I get a little bit upset about the. Uh, about this aspect of what we do now. Thank you. I read that you recently began hunting with Justice Scalia. Who's a better shot? <laughs> uh, he is. <laughs> but, but that's easy because he's been doing it a lot longer than I, than I have. Uh, uh, so, you know, I'm hopeful that one day I'll surpass him. Uh, There's actually a little bit of a story about that. I went, I went uh, duck hunting with him in Mississippi just before Christmas. It is by no means my first trip hunting with Justice Scalia. I think uh, we go quail shooting a couple of times a year out in Virginia, just like day trips. And uh, I went on a trip with him to Montana a few years ago where we shot uh, deer and antelope. And uh, so uh, uh, most people who know me think that this is a puzzling thing that's happened to me <laughs> in, in the last five years. You know, when you said, like, mm-hmm. how has it changed you? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people yep. who know me say, what is the deal with this, yep. you know? Yep. Yep. Uh, and, 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 and the deal with this goes as follows, is um, when you go through the confirmation process these days, the thing you're asked about most, everybody thinks it's going to be, like, everybody wants to know about abortion or something like that, and it's not. The thing you're asked about most as you go from office to office to office, you do all these courtesy visits with all the senators. I did about 80 of them, 82, but who's counting? <laughs> um, and you go office to office, and everybody, Democrats, Republicans, doesn't matter, asks you about the Second Amendment and guns. And, be, uh, and it's in part because these are very deeply meaningful uh, issues in, in, in many parts of the United States. And it's also because the NRA plays some in judicial confirmation politics, and so that they're hearing a lot from their constituents. Uh, at least for somebody like me, you know, appointed, uh, nominated by a Democratic president, and very urban-looking, seeming, sounding in uh, in the way uh, in the things that the public hears about me. So I've just got an enormous number of of questions about this, but they can't really just ask you, you know, so what did you think about that Second Amendment case, and what do you think about the next one? So the proxies are, well, um, have you ever hunted? <laughs> does any, does your family, does anybody in your family hunt? Does any, do any of your friends hunt? Does anyone you know hunt? <laughs> and, um, and, 
you know, my, my responses to this, even to my own ears, they sounded a little bit pathetic uh, because it was like, no, 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 no. You know, <laughs> and I'm this, like, honestly, Jewish girl from New York City. <laughs> this is not what we did on the weekend, you know? <laughs> so I'm sitting in, this is a long story, but I'm sitting in a senator from Idaho's office, and he's sort of running me through this list of questions, and he's talking to me about how he, he hunts on his ranch and how meaningful it is for him and for many of his constituents, which I'm, I'm sure it is. And, you know, no, 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 it's, it's, uh, I, I, it, uh, it's very real, the, the kinds of feelings people have about, about this. And, but I was feeling a little bit punchy and I was feeling a little bit like, gosh, I've, asked these, I've answered these questions 60 times and I'm a little bit tired of hearing myself answer them. And I, I said, Senator, you know, I said, this is not an experience that I've ever had and, um, and not an opportunity I've ever had, but if you would like to take me hunting, I would love to come. And this look of total horror passes over. <laughs> and, and the White House aide who's sitting next to me is, is really about to keel over at this point. Um, so I said, well, Senator, I said, yeah, um, uh, sorry, I probably went a little bit far. I didn't really mean to invite myself hunting with you. Um, uh, I said, but uh, I'll tell you what, uh, uh, I'll make you this promise that if I'm lucky enough to be confirmed, I'll ask Justice Scalia, who I knew to be a great hunter and a very avid hunter, to take me hunting. And so when I got to the court, I went to Nino and I said, uh, this is the only promise I made in 80 courtesy visits. <laughs> and would you help me keep it? And he thought it was hilarious. <laughs> Hilarious, and he's, he really is a very avid hunter, and he loves it, and people, when they love activities, sort of like to have other people love them, too. He was incredibly generous and, um, and asked me if I would, you know, he, first he took me to his hunting club, and I started shooting clay pigeons, and then he has this group of hunting buddies, and uh, they ask me all the time, and sometimes I go, uh, I go bird shooting with them in Virginia, and then he's had me on a couple of these bigger trips, and Really, actually, I quite enjoy it. I mean, I enjoy his company uh, enormously. But uh, uh, surprise, surprise, I sort of enjoy the activity itself, too. <laughs> so I've had, I've had a great time learning how to do it. Thank you again for being here, Justice Kagan. With regard to a couple of areas of law, you've worn a lot of hats in terms of being an administrative law scholar who sort of has big theories of how things work, and then as an advocate trying to strategize for a result and now as a judge, do you ever find cases where you sort of feel like all of those hats are bearing down on you in different directions? And how do you look at cases where you may have written something that looks at a case one way and argued something that makes a case seem like it should come out another way and now you've got these briefs on the table in front of you? Yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's actually the way I think about my life a lot is I, I keep on like taking one hat off and putting another hat on. Uh, but for me, it's once you take that hat off and once you put another hat on, a whole new set of responsibilities and really ethical obligations go with whatever role you're playing at the time. And, you know, for me, I found it uh, not the most difficult thing in my life, actually almost an easy thing, to be able to say, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm, doing, I'm, I'm playing instead this different role and a different set of things comes along with that role. And I'm just going to have to uh, 
you know, that's, that's what I do now. And a lot of life is like that. I think a lot of lawyers' life is like that. And for sure, uh, uh, I, had, I had done it you know, a lot of times before I got to the court, so the transition from professor to dean. Now, there were a set of things that I decided as a dean I just wasn't going to talk about and wasn't going to say that I would have talked about as a professor because I felt as a dean I was a steward of an institution and what most mattered was the health and welfare and well-being of the institution, which sometimes was not aided by Elena Kagan, individual law professor, spouting her mouth off about things. So that was uh, one kind of thing. And then you become Solicitor General. I have to say, all the time as Solicitor General, I found myself taking positions that I knew if I were a judge, uh, I, wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't agree with. And that's just part of the job, because it better be part of the job, because your job is to represent the long-term interests of the United States. It's not to make the best law, or the fairest law, or the most wonderful law around. It's to represent a particular client with a particular set of repeat uh, interests. And you know, I remember as Solicitor General, pretty much the first thing I did is I got to the court and uh, the court issued an order for re-argument of, uh, 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 in a criminal case which, where it was pretty clear that what the court was thinking was uh, cutting back in a particular way on uh, uh, Miranda and the decisions that had grown out of Miranda. And you know, I was very conscious because it was kind of like my first day on the job that this is something where I was pretty darn sure I was not going to, uh, it, the, the direction the court was going was not going to be a direction that I thought uh, was, uh, was the right one if I had been a judge. But I mean, I thought about it for two seconds before I knew you know, uh, what the SG does is, is obviously to represent the prosecutorial side in criminal cases, and that's just what you do. And, uh, and so I think you choose your jobs based on your sense of uh, if, you, if you take on the entire role, and, and, and you have to take on the entire role, you can't do it halfway, and ask yourself, you know, is that comfortable for you? And if it's not comfortable, don't take the job. But if it is comfortable, you have to assume the whole set of responsibilities and obligations that attend to particular jobs. And, uh, uh, and you know, the same, for, the same for being a judge. It was, it was funny, because um, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a First Amendment case. And speaking about how people treat judges differently, uh, you know, this was a case in which like everybody and his brother was quoting some law review article that I had written many, many, many years ago. And you knew that they would not be quoting this law review article, except that they were kind of talking to me. I mean, it was a good article, but it was not. <laughs> it was not like the thing that like made or, or didn't make this case, and it was not the greatest thing that had ever been written. But everybody, everybody was quoting it because it was like talking to me. And, and I thought kind of, you know, number one, I wrote that 20 years ago. Maybe it's still what I think, but maybe not. But the other thing is, as you just said, what you, what you write as a law professor, kind of like, oh, we should do it this way, might have absolutely nothing to do with what you think the responsible thing to do as a judge is. Because as a judge, it's not just like, oh, well, maybe we should do it this way. It's like, well, but would that be a good thing to do given all the precedents that have come before and how does your great idea 
relate to the way the court has been operating in this context, and, and uh, maybe you should just leave your good idea in the law review, you know? <laughs> and maybe it's like not right to impose it in the US reports, that sort of thing. All I'm saying is like different roles have like different responsibilities attached to them. And uh, I guess my theory is that you, when you move jobs, you slough off the one and you take on the other. Thank you. Time for one more question, sir. You mentioned that your oh, you, you mentioned that your uh, main job now is to try to find a way to convince eight other people. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit what that process is like for you, and then also what it's like whenever you're watching the other eight people interacting doing the same thing. Yes, well, of course, that's the, what's very funny, right? Is that it's it's a uh, you realize everybody's trying to do it to everybody else at the same time, and and uh, and then you also realize that you know not everybody is persuadable on everything. Uh, and, uh, and there, there are some things that we do where almost nobody is persuadable. But still, uh, but there are a lot of things we do where, where, where uh, folks are. And you know, I remember my first conference, we, uh, we had two cases. And one was a pretty high profile case. Was, I forget what it was, but it was you know the kind of thing that you knew was going to make it to the front page of the newspapers when the decision came out. And the other wasn't like that at all. It was a procedural case. It was uh, a little bit arcane. I'm not even sure it was very important as a procedural issue. And I walk into conference, and the first case, basically we just all, the, the, the rule is you just go around the circle, go around the table in seniority order. Chief goes first, and then everybody by length of tenure. Nobody can speak twice before everybody speaks once. Very good rule if you're the ninth person, all right? <laughs> and, uh, and in the first case, we just went around the table. Every person said his or her piece. You know, the whole thing lasted 10 minutes, 12 minutes, something like that, and then done, ended. And then the next case, which was, as I said, this much more, uh, you know, certainly less high-profile kind of case. We all go around the table uh, and, and, and say our piece, and then, and then conversation breaks out. And we sat there and we sort of tossed ideas back and forth and asked each other questions and tried to persuade each other uh, that, uh, that we were right or wrong and, uh, for another 40 minutes. And I said, I, you know, I left the conference and I thought, you know, if anybody saw this, they would say that we were crazy. But as I've thought about it more and as I've had a, a little bit more experience, I think that it, what we did that day actually made lots of sense, that there are some cases where, uh, you know, for whatever reasons, because people have strong methodological commitments, because they've seen this issue before, because it's, it's really clear sort of what the, how the lines shape up and, and, and where different people fall on that dimension. Um, where, you know, all the, where if you said, is more talking going to accomplish something? You might say the only thing it will accomplish is to make these people a little bit annoyed at each other, you know? And we're an institution, we're a very collegial institution, notwithstanding the fact that we have all these opportunities for disagreement. And I think part of the reason is that when we see an issue where there's just a pretty clear, strong divide, we say our piece. It's not like people stop talking. We say our piece, but then it's like, okay, enough. Um, whereas when we, when we have an issue uh, where there's a real opportunity 
for persuasion and for, uh, for trying to get to a consensus or just trying to get to a better answer, even if that doesn't draw all members of the court, I think we all try to take that. And so, uh, so some cases it's going to be that way and other cases not. I have to say that my favorite cases are the cases where there's an opportunity to do that. I find some of the others, the ones where we kind of say our piece and either you win or you lose and you go home, a little bit uh, unsatisfying, you know. Uh, it's nicer to win than to lose, but either way. It's like I love the stuff where we can all really engage each other, try to persuade each other, try to get to a better writer uh, answer based on the materials that we have before us as a result of talking about it. And I think that this goes back to the very first question that Professor Strauss asked me about sort of what happens in that conference room. I think that we uh, sound that way and do that uh, quite a lot more than people give us credit for. And, uh, and, and, and that's what I really appreciate and relish about the institution. Thank you very much for the take questions. Thank you. Well, and thank you. Uh, thank you so much for braving the blizzard and coming here and sharing your incredible insights with us, your warmth, and participating all day in the life of the law school. So we have a token of our appreciation and affection for you. Uh, it is a, it's a long-standing tradition at the law school that we give books uh, as gifts to people who matter to us. Now, in your high school yearbook, you quoted Justice Felix Frankfurter, who, like you, was a Harvard Law professor turned justice of the Supreme Court and a scholar of administrative law. So today, we're going to give you a first edition of Justice Frankfurter's wow. lectures on responsibilities of citizenship, which he inscribed to his co-author of the famous administrative law casebook. We hope that you'll enjoy oh, it. What, what, how incredible. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Thank you. Thank you, Dean Miles, and thank you, everyone, for being here. It is a uh, real honor to be giving the Coase Lecture. Students have often asked me if it's weird teaching at the school where I went to law school, and the answer is yes, and it's especially weird giving a Coase Lecture at the school I went to law school at. When I was sitting where you were, I would not have uh, predicted this, so I, I'm very honored. Uh, as is customary, I'm going to talk about a core principle of law and economics. So about two years ago, I started a project that looked at the question of um, <clears throat> how big data and artificial intelligence would affect the forms of law. I called that paper the death of rules and standards. Now, rules and standards is a core concept in law and economics. So a friend of mine, a professor at another law, for, uh, another law school, said, you should try to show some humility. 
He said, you're coming here now, a young professor saying that you're going to declare the death of entire field when many of my colleagues have made their entire career by talking about rules and standards. So when I was asked to give the Coase lecture and thought, I'm going to talk about the death of rules and standards, I checked myself. I decided to show a little humility. And so instead today, I'm going to talk about the life of rules and standards. <laughs> but you can, you can consider a eulogy of sorts. Now, before delving too far in, I do want to talk a little bit about that paper, The Death of Rules and Standards, which, while not the focus of this talk, is important to it. Uh, in that paper, I suggested that if machines could predict outcomes better than humans, that they could write laws that were very vague, like drive reasonably, and then translate, I'm sorry, that lawmakers could write laws that were very vague, like drive reasonably, and then the computers could translate them into laws like drive 55.3 miles per hour on this given road at this given time, and the machine could tr communicate that law to the driver at that exact moment that it becomes relevant. And so the lawmakers saying drive reasonably and the driver seeing 55.3 miles per hour. And I suggested that we might do this for all of law. And then I, I thought, well, these aren't quite rules and they're not quite standards and they look different for the users than they do for the drafters. So I called them micro-directives. When people read the paper, several other objections were raised, two that I want to mention. So one group of people said, this is just the death of rules. And another group of people said, this is just the death of standards. Now those two criticisms are, are a little hard to reconcile, so I kind of thought about it for a while, dropped the footnote flag in the issue, and then moved on. However, over time I've come to think that this issue, how we talk about rules and standards, is really, really important. And so I've come to conclude that like much legal scholarship, the most important part of my article was actually in a footnote. That's footnote number nine. The point it raises is that there's a disconnect between what people mean when they say rules and standards and what other people mean when they say rules and standards. And this is a, strikingly, this is a striking disconnect given how important that concept is for law. It is one of the two or three most central themes talked about across all areas of law. If you don't believe me about that, consider the following. On Hein Online, you can find 5,000 articles, more than 5,000 articles, with the, rules, rule, with the words rules, and standards in the title, both words. And that's not even counting all of the articles that are about rules and standards that don't include those words, because they talk about form and substance and rulemaking and discretion. You can find articles on the rules and standards of antitrust, the rules and standards of patent law, the rules and standards of constitutional law. There is even a, an article called Rules, Standards, and Geeks. Now, the idea, it seems, is everywhere. People are always saying, isn't this just rules and standards? And it's actually kind of a fun trick that I suggest you try in class. When anyone mentions anything about the law, respond, isn't that just rules and standards? So if someone says originalism, that's rules and standards. Someone says freedom of speech, rules and standards. <laughs> Democrats and Republicans, standards and rules. Freedom and equality, rules and standards. The entire 1991 term of the U.S. Supreme Court, you guessed it, rules and standards, don't believe me, 106 Harvard Law Review 22, 1992. Okay, so it always fits, people always use it, it applies everywhere. We should be skeptical of a concept that applies to everything under the sun. And so that is the main topic of my talk today. I want to suggest 
that rules and standards has always been a little misleading and misused. That nonetheless, there was a brief time when it was really helpful to move the academy forward, and that that time is coming to an end. So where do we start when we talk about the life of rules and standards? Most writers today would start with Duncan Kennedy's 1996 article, Form and Substance in Private Law Adjudication. The article is hugely important in legal theory, and it always is listed as one of the most cited law review articles of all time. But it is an odd place to start. You see, most people citing it cite it for its definition, most rules and standards people citing it cite it for its definition of rules and standards and delineation of the boundaries of that concept. However, those definitions were not new or critical to Kennedy's theory. To grossly oversimplify, Kennedy's main point was that form and law is a tool of substance in politics, and that arguments in favor of rules track arguments, in fi- arguments tied with individualism and self-reliance, whereas, cons- whereas arguments in favor of standards track ideas of altruism, sharing, and sacrifice. So for him, the definitions of rules and standards were only incidental to this larger point about legal theory and doesn't tell us much about where we are starting and what the law and economics idea of rules and standards is. So where else could we look? I could go much further back. I could go a couple hundred years to Bentham. Bentham presented an intriguing theory of rules where legislatures pass specific strict rules, but judges apply them as if they're standards. But why stop there? We could go even further back. Aristotle has been invoked by Scalia to defend rules. He's been invoked by others to defend standards. At this point, you should be wondering about my title. Right? So everything I've just said suggests that rules and standards has quite, had quite a long life. But I want to talk about the happy life. Now, my title, you may have noticed, is a not-so-subtle reference to a Hemingway short story, The Short Happy Life of Francis McComer. In that story, the main character is a coward. He runs away from lions and has lived a long, unhappy life. On a hunting trip, there's an incident with a buffalo where he gains his courage and becomes happy and is shortly thereafter shot in the head. The story's major themes are courage and the meaning of life. So why am I referring to Hemingway with all the controversies that that might bring? Two reasons. First, I want to argue that there was a short happy life of rules and standards where it achieved its task bravely and did not run from lines. Second, Judge Posner. Now that requires a little explaining. So you see, if you want to read legal scholarship on the controversies in Hemingway, you should read Judge Posner's essay on Hemingway in Professor Martha Nussbaum and Professor Saul Abmore's book from a conference that happened at the law school on masculinity in American law and literature. And if you want, to get to my point, to identify the birth of the happy life of laws and standards, you should also read Judge Posner. This time, his 1974 article with Isaac Ehrlich in our Journal of Legal Studies, an Economic Analysis of Legal Rulemaking. Now, the main goal of that article was to show when rules might be preferable to standards and when standards might be preferable to rules. And while, others, while, while theirs is a preliminary inquiry, it contains at least a passing identification of every angle and every important aspect that later law and economics scholars talk about when they talk about rules and standards. Now, it then is the birth of the law and economics life of rules and standards, which and bear with me because this is a Coe's lecture, I will suggest is the happy life of rules and standards, the law and economics life. In the article, Posner gives a definition for rules and standards and doesn't find it very difficult. It's pretty straightforward. 
So we have a definition. A standard indicates the kinds of circumstances that are relevant to a decision on legality and is thus open-ended. A rule withdraws from the decision-maker's consideration one or more of the circumstances that would be relevant to decision according to a standard. So drive reasonably as a standard because it allows the judge to consider the various circumstances like rain and weather and traffic and all of those sorts of things. Drive 55 miles an hour is a rule because it removes those factors from the judge's consideration. And so we have rules and standards setting a difference between what factors the judges may consider. Now I want to extract from the article beyond the definition what are the essential features and questions that make the, laws and, the, the law and economics rules and standards question interesting. First, they, are, they identify one question as who decides the content of the law. This is a question of institutional competence, of interinstitutional dynamics, of checks and balances. The question is, if you have triggers in law that are set ex ante, the legislature is likely to set them. If you have triggers in law that are set ex post, judges are likely to set them. Now, it's not black and white. There are cases where it'll be slightly different. Police officers might set them. Judges might do other things. For example, judges can turn standards into rules. And when they do that, the judges are now facing the rule standards question. And they're deciding whether or not to turn a standard into a rule or leave it as a standard. So it's not always a who question, but it often is. And that was the point they raised. This point is often associated with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who talked the second point about judges making uh, standards into rules, is often associated with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who made the point and suggested over time judges tend to do this. Keep that in mind as we travel this territory. Second, when do we create content? So if we decide between a rule and a standard, we are deciding whether or not to create content at the moment that we create the law, the rule, or punt on it later with the standard. Rules are ex ante and standards are ex post. To create, law, to create laws, lawmakers must figure out the content of the rules and fill it in. This is a promulgation cost. They must decide what the rule should be, they must negotiate what the rule should be, and they must draft it. The corollary of that is if they don't expend the cost to promulgate it, well, the law will have a poor fit. And fit can be expanded to include lots of things. So if a law can't be changed over time as circumstances change, it has a poor fit. If citizens can find a way to evade the law, it has a poor fit. If you're sitting at a stoplight when no one else is on the road, that's an over-inclusive law that has a poor fit. So the more you spend ex ante in a rule, the better it might fit. Now, there might be a limit to how much you can actually spend and how perfect you can get a rule. The ex post option is standards. Standards don't require ex ante information to be gathered. Rather, you punt to the later court, later decider, to fill in the content. Well, that requires, in our system, litigating each specific case. That's the cost of ex post fit. You have to figure out what the law should be for each particular case. Along with that goes the cost of uncertainty. So if I'm a citizen and I'm trying to decide what to do, and at the time that I'm acting I don't know what the law is, I have uncertainty. Now if you want, you can call, call that the cost of getting advice to reduce the certainty. So I can hire a lawyer, reduce my uncertainty, tell me what the law is going to be, predict what a court's going to say, or I can just live with the uncertainty. If I live with the uncertainty, the law might have a chilling effect. That is to say, if I don't know whether a certain action is legal, I will avoid engaging in that action at all. 
Sometimes we don't care about the chilling effect if we're chilling socially undesirable behavior. Sometimes we do care if we're chilling socially valuable behavior. All of this comes together to suggest an often repeated point, which is frequency matters. So ex post rulemaking requires laws up front, and those rules are in place and have economies of scale. They apply to all issues that come up in the future. If something happens exactly the same way over and over again, rules are really good. If something happens in a different way each time and doesn't happen that often, we might be willing to incur the litigation cost for each case rather than expend the cost for the legislature to predict every possible outcome that might happen. All right. So we have then this analysis, and I'm going to throw in one final thing. Ex post reasoning and pre-commitment. Posner bracketed this and said it wasn't that important, but I'm going to suggest, and most people have written about this since then, have suggested it is important. This is to say that with a standard, the government can just pick and choose what it wants to do after the fact. This allows for governments to be arbitrary, whereas rules pre-commit them to a certain course of action ahead of time. And in that world, we keep the government from engaging in such arbitrary behavior if we're worried about it as such with rules. With standards, we allow it. All right. So that's the main article. That's the kind of baseline on which we think about rules and standards. A non-economist might not like the article. They might say, you know, it's only 23 pages and only has 34 footnotes. And it doesn't talk about politics or conservatism or altruism. And it doesn't tell me what law is. But it does give me two things. It gives me a testable hypothesis for whether the form of law is driven by form, cost like this, or substance. And it gives me a roadmap for how to decide on the form if I think that efficiency and, and costs matter. And so eight years later, a young professor at the University of Chicago published his first law review article. It was entitled, Rules, Standards, and the Battle of Forms. And in it, Douglas Baird gives us the early glimpse of what I'm going to call the happy life of rules and standards. He looks at all the factors Posner identified. He gives us a conclusion about what contract law between merchants should look like. And he even throws in his, nice foot, his, nice, his own nice footnote, number 79, that makes it clear that he is in the Posner world. He notes, we're looking for efficient laws, and that, quote, neither choice entails making any distinct social group of contract parties better or worse off than another. This is a decidedly law and economics view of the problem, and today it's very familiar to all of us. There are other examples like this throughout the 80s and 90s, which are the examples of the beginning of the happy life of rules and standards. But that line of scholarship should not suggest to you that life was all happy all the time. The definitions supplied were straightforward on their face. Rules have hard and formal triggers. Standards have soft, undetermined triggers. But it's difficult to apply those in a world where words are taken to mean different things and judges sometimes ignore the law. The classic example is vehicles, no vehicles in the park. Is that a rule or a standard? It depends on what you take vehicles to mean. In the laws and standards literature, there's another example, a law, a law prohibiting vulgar behavior. If you take vulgar behavior to cover a fixed set of things, that's a rule. If you take vulgar behavior, as I think most of us do, to cover an open-ended set, that is, if I see new behavior, I might apply vulgar behavior to it, then it's a standard. The problem arises when some people say it's a fixed set, some people say it's an open-ended set, and other people opportunistically take it to be whatever they want it to be in that case. 
in those cases, we don't know whose perception we should look at in deciding whether something is a rule or a standard. This question, this, this whose perspective question, has not been addressed in much of the literature. It's often ignored. Moreover, there's a deeper question of whether the definitions of rules and standards are themselves hard rules. What do I mean by that? Well, if I can identify the essence of a rule, does that mean that I don't have to worry about the strict definition? So if I go back to my slide, if, if something creates uncertainty, does that make it a, a standard? If something creates pre-commitment, does that make it a rule? Or in my who decides question, if I have a dispute between two laws that have the same triggers and so we don't know, we can't use the formal definitions of rules or standards to distinguish them, but one allocates power to one source of, of government and another allocates power to another source, is that a rules or standards debate? Now let me give you an example to put some meat on that. Professor John Rappaport has an important article in which he, adv- he advocates what he calls second-order regulation, second-order regulation of law enforcement. A first-order regulation speaks directly to police officers. It tells them what to do. A second-order regulation speaks to administrators who regulate police. It tells them what to do. Now, on its face, you might think, based on what I just said with the last slide, that this is a rules and standards question. Many people did. Professor Rappaport explicitly rejects this. He writes that his main point is about buy-in and the legitimacy of law based on its source, not its form. Quote, a first-order decision is one addressed to line agents. It may announce either a rule or a standard. Indeed, the Supreme Court's first-order criminal procedures, procedure decisions do employ both rules and standards. Now, if I were trying to be cute, I would interject. But Professor Rappaport, I asked you, aren't first-order regulations standards and, or just rules? I asked you, first-order regulations are just rules. And you said no, because sometimes they're standards. But for me to understand that response, we have to have a shared understanding of what rules and standards are. And let's just say that for me, the essential nature of the rules and standards debate is about allocating power. And I can cite a very long pedigree of legal scholarship to support that. So isn't your main thesis that second-order regulation is about allocation of power? Therefore, you're talking about rules and standards. At this point, Professor Rappaport should be furious at me because I'm playing an obviously semantic game. It cannot be that any distinction about which institution gets to make a decision is a question of rules and standards. Sure, the form of law is part of the calculus, but his entire theory is premised on the the idea that the source of the law was more important than its form. It seems to me, then, when we talk about institutional competence and the source of law, we should talk about institutional competence and the source of law and not make it a rules and standards debate. But much of the legal scholarship does turn it into a rules and standards question. One leading scholar writes, Professor Fred Schauer writes, I avoid frequently overstated arguments for certainty and predictability and instead concentrate largely on rules as devices for the allocation of power. He is often cited as the rules and standards person. Now I'm not saying that his question is not an important one, nor do I have a major critique with his articles. But to say that that allocation of power is part of the essential nature of rules and standards is to misuse those phrases and those terms. I know this because rules and standards decisions arise even when judges are restraining judges. In 1989, Justice Scalia had an essay, Rule of Law as Law of Rules. 
He noted that the who decides question was besides the point for law made by judges. For him and for judges, the rules and standard question was about whether the judges will constrain themselves in future cases. He came out in favor of general rules because they pre-commit judges for those cases, thus avoiding the abuse of discretion problem and reducing uncertainty. He wanted to tie his own hands in future cases to comply with the rule of law. You might say, wait, that's still a who question just across time. Maybe, but it's not the same as asking whether judges or legislators are better equipped to make laws. It's rather about asking whether lawmaking government, fractured or whole, unified or in parts, has bound itself in the future to certain courses of action. The problem exists regardless of whether judges are elected and regardless of what we think about checks and balances. All of this is to say that the happy life of rules and standards needs a defined, workable, useful space within the essence of the question where we can move the academy forward. The use of rules and standards as a label to to talk about broader questions is, however, pervasive. The phrase used in standards is, is constantly shifting from one argument to another. Many use it to denote not the choice of hard or soft triggers, but about questions that go to the fundamental nature of law itself. This has led many to theorize that rules don't even exist. They don't exist because at some point a judge can always find an exception to not follow them. In a 1995 article entitled Problems with Rules, then University of Chicago professor Cass Sunstein addressed this point. On rule skepticism, he conceded that yes, rules are imperfect, but, quote, a system committed to the rule of law is committed to limiting official discretion, but it's not committed to the unrealistic goal of making every decision according to judgments fully specified in advance. Rules are an admirable device for obtaining agreement on the content of law and also for reducing discretion at the point of application. They do exist. Sunstein talks about this at length in the article, and the questions it raises are deep. They go to formalism, realism, positivism, the legal theories of Dworkin, Hart, Fuller, and others. Now, I'm not going to go into much detail here, in part because I'm not qualified to do so, in part because it relates to questions entirely separate from what Judge Posner and Professor Baird and the Law and Economics folks were talking about when they were talking about rules and standards and giving us a model. If we take rules and standards to be about the fundamental nature of law and formalism, we can never even get to those questions. There will always be someone who says, yeah, but can you even defend the fact that rules exist? And if the answer is no, you kind of shouldn't be answering those questions. But empirically, as Sunstein suggested, there's an enormous amount of cases where the form of law matters, and it does constrain, even if imperfectly, the outcome of the case. Why is that true? I'm not sure. It might be norms. It might be that judges don't care enough to disobey the law in most cases. And so if instructed to follow the rules, they follow them. If instructed to apply a standard, they apply a standard. Maybe when it comes to abortion and death penalty in Bush v. Gore, there's no such thing as rules versus standards. But when it comes to the battle of forms between merchants, there certainly is. All right, so let's take stock. I have identified two candidates for the essential nature of, of law and economic. Sorry, for the essential law and economics nature of rules and standards. Who decides the content of law and when do we create it? I basically rejected the who decides question and suggested when is where we should be focused. The when question is a question of how much promulgation costs are we willing to put forward to get ex ante fit? Or on the other side, how much does advice cost to reduce uncertainty? 
How much litigation does it cost to, reduce expo to get ex post fit? And then there's that pre-commitment issue that I addressed and said I'm going to come back to. The importance of this when question is at the heart of Lewis Kaplow's theory in his 1992 article, Rules versus Standards in Economic Analysis, which you can tell by the title is going to be among the most important articles I talk about today. Kaplow tells us that for his model, we can simplify everything down to when the decision to fill the content is made. He tells us the only distinction between rules and standards is the extent to which efforts to give content to the law are undertaken before or after individuals act. He has his own nice footnote, number four, bracketing questions about whether or not rules are possible, bracketing allocation, and specifically bracketing everything Professor Fred Schauer has said. Now, one of my main themes, this does put us in a kind of odd place. Professor Schauer has bracketed all of Kaplow, and Kaplow has bracketed all of Schauer, and they're the two of the most cited people on rules and standards. So when people say rules and standards, we really don't know what they're talking about. And we tend to use, need lots and lots of long explanatory footnotes. But Professor Kaplow goes even further. He takes pre-commitment out, and he holds fit and certainty constant. So that all he's talking about is comparison of costs. We just have promulgation, promulgation, advice, and enforcement. So where I had this, he gives us this. You just add up the first two, I'm sorry, you just add up the second two, compare it to the first, and therefore, and there you get your answer of which form you should use, whichever has a lower cost. That tells us that frequency really does matter because promulgation is a one-time thing, and advice and litigating come up every time a case is disputed, but never if it isn't. So he says, here's your, here's your formula. If you want ex-ante rules, you better show me that promulgation is effective and cheap. If you want ex-post standards, show me that advice and litigation are effective and cheap. And frequency will almost always determine the answer there. Now this is a little artificial. It's a little artificial mostly because if we hold fit and uncertainty constant, the lawmaker is deciding about the difference between a rule and a standard at the moment they're making the law, and they're doing it without knowing what the standard looks like. Kaplow assumes that lawmakers can actually think in their mind what the complex standard that looks just like the rule would be. But they don't do that. They never have done that, and they can't. This point has been pointed out by two of my colleagues, Professor Eric Posner and Professor David Weisbach. They both point out that lawmakers have to make the decision about the form of law without knowing anything about the complexity of the standard. Indeed, if lawmakers spent all the resources to figure out what a standard would look like, they would have already gained enough information to write the perfect rule. And so they say this can't match reality. So it's not the happy life of rules and standards. Because as Ronald Coase tells us, citing Joan Robinson, an economic theory should be judged both on its tractability and its correspondence to the real world, and this doesn't quite fit the real world. We need to throw a little more reality back into it. Professor Eric Posner does that in his 1997 article, Standards, Rules, and Social Norms. After establishing the difficulty of mapping Kaplow's idea onto the real world, he reintroduces the pre-commitment element under the label Rule of Law. Posner says, Posner gives us an example from the Soviet Union where people were punished not for specific behavior, but because they didn't meet a general standard of citizenship. He tells us that we should expect people to over-comply with those standards and governments to abuse their discretion and exercise expanding control. 
And people will then start doing all sorts of things to signal that they're a good person that shouldn't be punished. In his extreme example, he writes, even if the state expresses no opinion on these issues, specific behaviors, but punishes anyone deemed unpatriotic, people will struggle to act in conformity with whatever norms they think the state would approve. And that's the effect of standards taken to their most abstract level. Rules, on the other hand, pre-commit the government to behave in a certain way so that they cannot twist the law selectively to punish people deemed to be bad citizens. So we need to put pre-commitment back in to our, our calculus. I'll note something interesting, though, about pre-commitment. It's not the same as uncertainty. Maybe we'll assume it is, but it's not. I don't really have to know the content of a rule for there to be pre-commitment. I just need to know that the government can't change it after I act. So that, they, so that they are pre-committed even if I treat it like a standard and don't know. So we have uncertainty and pre-commitment as two separate factors that we're thinking about. Uncertainty might not be that important on its own. After all, for huge areas of law, we actually don't care. You treat rules like standards all the time and act as if the legislator acted reasonably. Think about murder. How many lawyers have, non-lawyers have ever actually checked the laws on murders? I would guess that most people don't even know which government, federal or state, gives the rules that prohibit them from murdering, much less what those explicit rules are. Now you might say, yeah, but no one's engaged in that kind of behavior. Not that many people are engaged in that kind of behavior, so it's not that important. Okay, take speed limits. Most people think they're a rule. I did, but that's not right. If you read David Weisbach's article, he tells us most states, including Illinois, have statutes that say you can be prosecuted for driving at an unreasonable speed even if you're below the speed limit. That uncertainty should, I suppose, keep me up at night, but it doesn't. I'm not bothered by the fact. I don't hire lawyers to help me predict what the law should, is going to be in a particular situation. For most of us, law is like that, and most laws are like that. It's just not something that bothers us. But let's stick with the speed limit for a second. What if we think the police or the courts are racist? Then maybe we should be bothered. Not because it's unpredictable or uncertain, but precisely because it is predictable and is certain that governments will use their discretion to pull someone over for the wrong reasons. So we would rather there be a rule that constrains the government, pre-commitment, even if we don't care what the content of the rule is and don't check. And this is, again, where pre-commitment separates from uncertainty. Pre-commitment is crucial and important even where uncertainty doesn't matter. And with that, I can now identify the high watermark of the happy life of rules and standards. And you will, I hope, forgive me for praising the work of my colleagues a little too much, because I'm going to mark that point, the buffalo hunt in the short happy life of Francis McComer, if you will, as David Weisbach's 1999 essay in the University of Chicago Law Review, Formalism and Tax Law. Weisbach gives us a model for choosing between or combining rules and standards, and importantly, he doesn't care who promulgates it, he just cares about the form. He points out, consistent with what we've seen, that the flip side of this commitment that I've been talking about as being really important is evasion. If we know what the government's committed to, then we can evade. The government gives you specific rules and you figure out how to get around them. These are loopholes in tax. People have heard of this, should be familiar. He says if you look at it, the infrequently, the infrequent and uncommon becomes common precisely because you've given me a rule that doesn't cover it. One way to prevent this would be to make laws even more complex. But that, comes, that becomes an arms race of sorts. We get ever-increasing complexity, people trying to get around it, and we ultimately hit the limit where laws can't become more complex than they already are. 
So he gives us an alternative. Throw in a residual anti-abuse standard. Give us a really, really specific rule, but a standard that says if people delve into the un- unusual, we're going to find it abuse if it is abuse. And we'll look at it and see what's reasonable. This combination provides some certainty and binds the government over the ma- most of the universe of common transactions. You, the citizen, don't run into a rule of law problem unless you delve into the unusual. There's still a problem here. The government's the one interpreting unusual, so that you don't really have a pre-commitment. I don't think Professor Weisbach has a way out of this. But he does give us that the whole issue of rules and standards for tax falls to the balancing of this evasion on one side and pre-commitment on the other side. Now, as a side note, I really like the article because it has another sentence that explores ideas for how we might also use residual standards. He writes, another approach is to promulgate a standard but include examples of the application of the standard to common situations. I like this because it's 18 words long and it completely predicts the thesis of a Columbia Law Review article that was published 16 years later. Therefore, Weisbach did it first and he did it more efficiently, which is, of course, the Chicago way. (laughs) But let's go back to my buffalo hunt. The article as a whole crystallizes the problem as this. We have the risk of evasion and the risk of government abuse. Decide between the two, and you're deciding between rules and standards in the tax law. If rules and standards can help us see the question of tax that way, they really are useful, and they really can advance both the academy and the practice. But, and now I must fully torture my analogy, there has to be the death blow, the shot to the head. And it doesn't come from me. As you all probably should have expected, it comes from Professor Levmore. (laughs) So... Professor Ledmore responds to Weisbach in an essay in the same Law Review volume titled Double Blind Lawmaking and Other Comments on Formalism in Tax Law. Ledmore suggests that we can do even better than rules coupled with residual standards. He says, imagine now a scheme in which the government wrote the rules but withheld complete information about their content. Think about that for a minute. There's a lot going on in that sentence. It's one of those sentences I wish I had written. If the government writes a rule but doesn't reveal the details until after the fact, we're solving the pre-commitment problem and we're solving the evasion problem. The only thing left is the uncertainty problem, and he has reasons to suggest that in many cases that'll be small, and we can give a standard to the public and a rule that's going to be applied. We don't need rules plus a standard, we just need this law whose content is revealed afterward. So let's do what he says and and play out what this looks like. If we imagine that this happens, we add a question to my list. Who decides when do they create content and when do they reveal it? I bracketed the who decides, so we have the other two, and we can look at law this way. The first column, we have when legal content is created. On the row on the top, we have when the legal content is revealed. Rules are revealed and created at legislation. Standards are revealed and created after the fact. And the Ledmore laws are revealed after the fact, but created at legislation. For each I've marked, it's the way it plays out with fit, evasion, pre-commitment, certainty, and the like. Now, if you look at this, I pose to you the question, is the Ledmore law a rule or a standard? It's like the tree that falls in a forest that no one hears. If a rule is written down, but no one reads it, is it a rule? Is it a standard? Or is it something else? The main takeaway is we do not have a straight line continuum from certainty to uncertainty, as many have suggested, because we have things off the continuum where we have four factors being dynamically combined. 
If you want to compare just the rule and the standard, you take fit and evasion and you compare it to pre-commitment and certainty. Right? If pre-commitment and certainty are important, if, if pre-commitment's important, you want to have a rule. If certainty is important, you want to have a rule. But if fit and evasion are important, all right, if fit is important, you want to have a standard. And evasion is, if lowering evasion risk is important, you want to have a rule. All of these factors can be compared in pairs. But when we throw in the Levmore rule, you have a different dynamic. This allows you to achieve low evasion without sacrificing pre-commitment. In cases where you don't care about certainty, you would never choose a rule because it's dominated on every other metric. In cases where you don't care about fit, you would never choose a standard because it's dominated on every other metric. Interestingly, Levmore's approach is actually the inverse of the Bentham approach I mentioned at the beginning. Bentham talked about laws that are announced as rules but applied as standards. Levmore gives us laws that are announced like standards but applied as rules. If I tried to put Bentham here, I'd probably put it in that blacked out square. But the problem is that's not real. We're only pretending that they're rules. The certainty is imaginary, and the prediction, the prediction value it brings is also imaginary. So it's not actually possible. Now we can complicate this a little more. We can throw in the choice to reveal things at the time of action. So we have created an action, revealed an action. This doesn't happen that much in the current state of the world, but I'll add technology in a bit. But before we add technology, created an action, revealed an action, looks like an advanced tax ruling. An advanced, advanced tax ruling gives low pre-commitment because the government is applying the rules to a specific case. It's case by case. But it gives high certainty because the person knows that if they comply with the ruling, that they're not going to be prosecuted. It gives middle fit and middle evasion risk. The IRS does this with advanced tax rulings. The SEC does it with no action letters. We could also throw in something where we create the content at legislation, reveal it at action. I think stoplights are like this, if you think about it. When exactly you have to stop isn't told to you until you get there. But we don't see it very often. Finally, you could do create at action, reveal after action. I don't know of any real world examples of this. These are all clunky and theoretic, and that's why we don't see them that often. And the reason they're clunky and theoretic is we don't have the technology to instantaneously create content and reveal it at the moment you need to use it. But if we add technology, we do. If you add technology, you can, do, you can create laws at the moment they're relevant, reveal them at the moment they're relevant. And you can do it afterwards, you can do it before, you have all these options open. So you're driving along and you get your speed limit at that exact moment. Now, importantly, notice that pre-commit becomes high along the whole chart. Why? Because if the government puts in place a computer algorithm, they can commit not to change the algorithm. The algorithm updates to get better fit, that's the fit high, fit highest, given the facts that arise in the world. But no human needs to touch it and exercise their discretion, or to put it negatively, their arbitrary reasoning based on how the distributive outcome plays out. The government can pre-commit ahead of time, but still allow the, the computer to update, give us better fit along the way. Now, I changed the middle fit from middle to high to show that in the da big data world, the rules created at the moment of action are actually pretty well fit. There's only a marginal benefit when you go lower to the bottom right-hand corner. Now, this has interesting implications, because if you play through all of these various comparisons, you'll see that some of these are strictly dominated. You would never be up in the upper right with the Levmore Law, because you're always better off to go down too. You get better fit, and you're the same on everything else. 
So we actually can cross those two out. If you compare the middle, middle and the top middle, the same thing is true. We have high fit compared to low fit, and then everything else is the same. So we'd rather go there. And that's the micro-directive I talked about in the death of rules and standards. You get your data at the moment you need it, and it tells you how to comply with the law. But we can go further. The rule is dominated by the micro-directive because it has better fit, better evasion risk, and the same pre-commitment uncertainty. So now we're down to this, the choice between these two things. And here we're deciding based on fit, evasion, and certainty. Pre-commitment's the same, so we don't need to consider that. And so, when I originally wrote the Death of Rules and Standards, I didn't think about this lower right-hand corner. I just thought about the middle one. And I thought, we don't have a choice anymore. We just, program, we just use the program to get a micro-directive. The Ledmore article tells me we do have a choice. We can add a slight delay, and we get a better outcome when we really worry about evasion. If we're really worried about certainty, we don't want to do that. But I told you earlier, there's a whole bunch of cases where certainty's not all that important, so we don't care. So in those cases, it's easy. We do the delayed version. In the few cases where certainty's really important, maybe we do the middle version. But in any event, we know how to make the decision. We have a choice between these two options. But looking at it, I'm now starting to think I've been wrong this entire time. Because, well, maybe that's a standard and that's a rule. This is just revealed later, and that's revealed earlier. It's not turning on uncertainty. It's not turning on, it's not turning on when we create the content of the law, necessarily, because it's giving fit in both cases. It's just turning on when we reveal the law. Do we want the Ledmore delay or not? And maybe that's the question that we really face when we're looking at the form of law in the future when we get the technology we need. And so then looking at it, I say, wow. Death of, the rules and standards are alive. This is the happy life of rules and standards. However, I'm fairly certain it's going to be short because I'm about to open it up to all of your critiques. So. Questions? Mm-hmm. We value the idea of the rule existing before it's revealed, even if that's just by algorithm. Um, so I guess the question is, would that, doesn't that fact um, push strongly in the direction of rules? So d- d- we have to isolate what we mean when we say uh, public confidence in law, right? So is, is it, it's, if it's because they don't believe in it, then it's captured in the pre-commitment idea, right? So we, we might want to pre-commit because we don't trust the government when they're doing something after. That's covered in what I was talking about. The idea is, you know, you're, you think it's, it's unlawful, inconsistent with the rule of law when the judge decides something after the fact. I think that was, that goes, in the Ledmore article, it really gets to that point with, we don't trust the government. If we get them to commit ahead of time, they've, they've tied their own hands. It gains legitimacy if that's what we worry about. 
Now, if you're saying, no, it's, it's, not, le- it's not legitimate because it's not revealed and the people need to know it, then we're talking about certainty, which I think we could, lots of areas, we, we would push that away. Now, something else might be going on to say, no, there's something about the interaction between citizen and government where the government tells me the law, I can find the law, I can criticize the law, and we can kind of have the civic debate that is valuable in itself. Yeah, I think that's right. Like, that could be there. That would make kind of the analysis I ended with not cover it. I don't think that's a rules and standards question as much as kind of like a civic debate question. And I I will speculate my own view is very, very... If that's true in areas of the law, it's very few of them because most areas we don't see that happening, right? So most of law is there's laws in the books. I don't know what they are. They become relevant. I find out what they are. And we don't have that value at play. What do you predict the domain of micro-directives will be in, say, 2020? Um, I, it's easy for me to see um, that you could have an algorithm to figure out the micro-directive for traffic, yeah. given that we're figuring out algorithms to drive cars. Um, but what it, it seems like much of law is perhaps difficult some things because we just leave it up to the jury and we if you look closely at the law we, we, we're nowhere close to being able yeah. to actually say what, what, what the law is um, and that's on purpose and then I think of things like child custody and I wonder about public confidence in an algorithm that would you know uh, it would be pre-commitment there would be no uh, opportunity for uh, human bias or corruption but you know would people actually stand for uh, child custody to be determined by the yeah, so I think there's, there's two parts to that. So one is, over what areas will, will technology be sufficient to allow for microdirectives? That's question one. Two, even when that's true, over what areas will the public accept it, even if true? So, you know, if, if we look at the, the first part of the question, I think we're seeing lots of this in tax law. So we have people, companies have been started that predict tax outcomes of courts and we, there was an article a few months ago about uh, an algorithm that could predict the human rights rulings of the international courts as better than any human could, better than any lawyer could. So that gets to the point where you, wow, if, if they can do better lawyers, they can probably do it better than the judges. Those are just, you're just comparing machines to people. There's data showing that in bail cases, in release cases, in all kinds of areas, technology's getting better and better. So I think... Oddly, my, my analysis about driving is bad because by the time it's good enough in driving, we'll have self-driving cars because it's the same technology. So it kind of doesn't work there. But I think we will see it capable in ever-expanding areas. So by 2020, I think tax law, I think regulatory areas. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know the child custody area well enough. Although, I, I don't know well of 2020. Ten years from now, I think possibly. The second question is much harder. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was this morning, about self-driving cars and about the the position that the article took was if we could have self-driving cars that only killed 3,500 people, people might not be okay with that, even though human-driven cars kill 40,000 people. And the reason is there's this kind of fear of or aversion to technology or 
arbitrariness because it would be a different 3,500 dying than it would have been in the first case. At some point then, that starts to sound like controversies over, and the article used refrigerators in the 1920s. Apparently they made health much better, but there were articles about how they exploded occasionally. And then you think of the vaccines, right? So vaccines certainly save lives, but people say, oh, but there's this story about it doing this or that, and there's the bad studies in autism and all that stuff. So those types of forces might come in play here, so I'm not particularly optimistic of the public adopting it uh, in, in any sense. And so in, in the article, Death, Rules, and Standards, we talk about this as saying, in the end, we're more talking about what could happen technology-wise, uh, but the public might fight against it for some time. Although refrigerators are a good example, because ultimately we do have, almost everyone has a refrigerator now. Yes, Saul? Yeah. I mean, nobody tells you in advance what the price is going to be. And people get used to the fact that as it gets closer, you find out the price, and then it has a lot of efficiency properties. Now, if you're one of these people that loves certainty, you can always buy an option in advance, and you can always go into some forward market. And presumably, the data you're describing, I think, will be used more by markets than by law. Law will seem uncertain to the people because it'll be like the market. But if you're one of these people who really wants to know what the tax rate is in 11 years before you build your factory, yeah. you'll go into the market now and buy insurance against future tax rates. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Right? So, and that was why I, I said at the end, I, you know, I talked about briefly the idea that certainty doesn't matter for many cases. And what, this is, what makes this useful then is we take certainty out and it's just the evasion question, so we always do the delay. And that's right. Most of law, as you think about it, you don't, we don't put that high a value on certainty except for criminal law. Jillian Heffield has an article, Professor Jillian Heffield has an article where she talks about how uh, we can ensure against uncertainty almost everywhere except for criminal law. And so the rule of standards debate for her goes away on that metric because you can get insurance, which I think is essentially what you were saying, is you can ensure the certainty and so then evasion is the only problem. So we might accept that bottom right corner and I think, I, I think that's right will dominate. And that's, that's not in the paper, as you know, uh, because I you know, kind of found it as I thought about your article. So, yeah. A couple of questions. So just to follow up uh, on what you were saying, how, how much can we get out of the, the timing from delay in a microdirective? Given that we have big data, presumably the, the unrevealed results of the algorithm going to become public knowledge very quickly. So in the sort of the Lovemore Law uh, analogy, like once the envelope's open in the first case, now people know what the law is. And so um, so I guess the first question is, how much, how, how much are we actually going to benefit from the fact it's not being revealed in real time, given that uh, you know, these delays as a practical matter are not going to be effective uh, in, in the long run? Yeah, so, so this goes to how good our technology is, right? Because if the technology is truly effective and dynamic, it can update and you don't need precedent, right? So just because the machine said yesterday that X is the rule, 
doesn't mean it's the rule tomorrow because now it's going to take into account, and this is, some, this is kind of what's going on in the tax anti-abuse area, is to say, here you announced the specific rule because I thought this is the way you were trying to evade. But then I announced the rule and you find this other way to evade. The anti-abuse standard said, well, I can say, well, a judge can say that was evasion even though you followed the rules. All right, so now we just say, well, by not revealing the rule, we uh, curb that evasion. So I guess your response, now I take, is to the Ledmore version, you'd have to be constantly updating the rule in delay. But in the microdirective version, the technology does that anyway. And as long as you're okay with the lack of precedent, then it, it, it isn't a problem because you can figure out, well, given the new circumstances in the world, given, and one of the circumstances is that yesterday I announced the rule. Yeah, yeah. So another way maybe to think about the distinction between rules and standards, ex ante versus uh, ex post decision making, is about the, uh, the the political cost of of specifying uh, results. And so you might think one of the reasons we have standards, and this goes to why we might actually like judges to be human, is we can't agree on yeah. a rule, even if a rule is a good idea. We just can't agree on it. And what we want to do is down the road, and then the fact that different judges reach different results might actually be a kind of compromise in which we say, well, you know, some of us see things one way, some of us see things another way. The fact that judges reach different results are kind of splitting, um, splitting the difference. What then comes of the question, how do we specify the algorithm? Does that become such a high state mm. affair, given that if there's any bias that we want to correct through the use of an algorithm, the answer yeah. doesn't get baked in in the first place. Does that become politically, practically an problem? Right. So the, the kind of negotiation over the politics is, is part of the promulgation cost. And as you say, sometimes you, you choose a standard because you don't want to go there. Now, Cass, something suggests sometimes you choose a rule because you don't want to go there. Because I can agree on all the principles that I like, and you agree on the principles you like. And occasionally they read the same outcome, so let's not agree on the principles, let's choose the rule. So I... It's a cost either, but your main point is, yeah, but now with the microdirective, it's going to be a cost very plainly to writing the algorithm. Uh, it does make the policy choice that is being made by the lawmaker, the lawmaker in, in that world is the one who sets the objectives for the algorithm. It makes the policy choice extremely important. Uh, it makes your values, the values of your politicians, very transparent. Uh, to the extent that we reveal not what's in the algorithm, but what its objectives are. Uh, you could imagine that that creates political, uh, complete political gridlock. Then you could write a messy algorithm. Right? You know, it's like, it, it means we don't get all the benefits, but it doesn't mean we can't use algorithms. We could choose one that randomizes between our principles. We could choose one that takes into account this and that and, and doesn't get a perfect outcome because no one agrees on a perfect outcome. Uh, but I, you're right, it does create quite a... a a new tension in lawmaking. Yeah. So if you have these algorithms that are making these decisions, especially if you do sort of a messy algorithm or something like that, is there a way to check to make sure that the result that comes out of it is a right result? Or is there a risk that if you put these in place that the algorithm, for whatever reason, you know, there's a bug or some other issue, will just spit out something wrong? And who would be able to catch that? Or how would you correct that? Yeah, so people have done experiments in kind of predicting outcomes in cases with algorithms have struggled with this problem. I think 
the, the main way to test it is not, I think the unsophisticated way is, oh, you just ask the algorithm what it bases its decision on. It turns out you can't really do that. And if you talk to some of the people at our um, at the med school, they'll tell you about in the cancer world, there are these algorithms that predict diagnoses. And the doctors can't ask it what it's based on because there's too many factors that have a tiny, tiny influence. So you can't get a, a, a opinion telling you what it was based on. Now, I would also suggest the judicial opinions telling you what their algorithm was based on are not all that reliable either. But putting that aside, the best way to test it is the same way we test those judgments in the academy is data and, and looking at the results. So you say, what, what's the, in the world, have we reduced crime? So like, if you think about self-driving cars, do I know if the, the cars and the algorithms are better than humans? Well, if I put all the self-driving cars on the road and fewer people died, I would. Um, I, I think that's, you know, controlling for different things, I would take that to be the evidence. Much better than what are you basing this, this on? And so a lot has been written in the last year and a half, like 10 articles by various people, about how to deal with disparate impact in algorithms. And so the ways you would try to control for uh, biases that are coming out in the results and de-biasing the algorithm. But you know, my, the optimist in me suggest, the kind of technology optimist is that de-biasing algorithms is a problem, but it's not a more intractable problem than de-biasing humans. And so those are, that's the way you want to compare it and think about it. Yeah. Um, building off of Professor McAdams' question, can you explain why you think algorithms can address very broad areas of law, you might yes. suspect. But isn't there also a cost story where sometimes we might not want to spend enough to build the algorithm to give micro directions for an area? Maybe you want to open up the area, the other uh, squares on your diagram, not because they're better or not dominated when you move in one direction, but because the advantages you gain uh, aren't reasonably outweighed by what we expect an algorithm to cost. Certainly, I think that's right. Right. So, I, in kind of blocking off the squares, I was being a little dramatic, right? So, this is the world we're in. No, I think yeah, there's a transition period. There's a period in which, to Professor McAdams' question, we have you know areas of law where it becomes relevant and not relevant. So, I think the, the first two thirds of my talk was really about that. We have these questions, and what 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 is the, what is the debate between traditional rules and standards? Uh, I, I still think my main theory of the talk holds that that's a muddy debate, and we only get some clarity in kind of the last 15 years with ideas like Professor Weisbach's article showing us in this context, here's what we weigh. And, you know, the early versions in Professor Baird's article in contract law, here's what we weigh. You know, Professor Lemmer throws in this kind of curveball to say, well, maybe we don't weigh that, maybe we have another solution. So I'm trying to say maybe there's another solution, right? Um, so I guess my answer would be yes, they'll still be there, but we shouldn't stop thinking about and trying to come up with new solutions for them because the old solutions might be still muddied and, and in some cases they work, in some cases they don't. Yeah, in the back. So doesn't this all come down to the classic debate in intellectual property law, who's better at generating information, the government or the markets? So uh, we could have in your bottom right box uh, a law that says we will penalize you don't act in the welfare-maximizing way. And we'll figure that out next post. Uh, and then parties would want to anticipate what that will be, right? If parties are not conforming yeah. their behavior to their expectation of the law, then the law has no efficacy. Uh, so in the middle box, we have uh, private actors who are providing information that is predicting what will happen uh, ex post when the government makes its decision. Uh, sorry, in, in, in the bottom right box, we have private actors yeah. who are providing that information. 
And in the middle box, it's the government providing that information, right? It's the government telling you uh, beforehand uh, how to behave in a way that maximizes social welfare. And in both boxes, we're trying to figure out how people should behave in a way that maximizes social welfare. And the question is just, is it a firm or is it the government? And, and that's, that's the, the, the decision criteria. So I thought I was following you. I think I, I lost you at the end. So, uh, you're, so you're, I thought you were going the direction of, of people kind of using private technology to get around the law, but you're saying something different. You're saying... Yeah, people want to know the law, right? Uh, yeah. Otherwise, the law does nothing. Yeah. Uh, so in the bottom right box, where we're only told ex post uh, what the law is, yeah. people will hire uh, firms to give them micro-directives. And the micro-directives will be trying to predict yes. you yeah, know, yeah. how the government... Yes. Uh, or we can have the government uh, doing that yeah, micro-directive yes. provision for you. In either case, we're trying to predict how to maximize yeah. social welfare, and it's just who's doing the prediction, the government or the market. Yeah, so I do, yeah, I, now if I agree with that. And in, in, in the death rules and standards, we talk about this in the, the negligence standards with doctors to say you could see this technology developing from the government or in private as people are like, here's the technology to use, and the courts say, if you didn't use that technology, you're negligent. So that's the standard is you have to use the technology, which ultimately means you have a private version of the technology, right? So x-rays are like this. You'd be, you, you'd be negligent not to use an x-ray machine today. Maybe you're negligent not to use a diagnostic machine in the future. And so you could say, in the law, it could be the same way. So absolutely, you could get it from the private side, and the government doesn't have to do anything. The worry, though, is when you're not both trying to maximize social welfare, and we get the evasion problem. And so in ta- this is why I think, you know, what we spoke raised in tax law, the problem is, as soon as I can predict the government's rules, I don't obey them, and I try to find a way around them. And so that's where the delay comes in, where the government might say, do all you want privately, but we're going to do an ex-post look with our algorithm to see that you weren't trying to game the system. And so, that's, so I agree with you 100%, except in cases where the private market is trying to evade. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was uh, not uh, uh, a story. Uh, this is a warning. 
So that's a classic attack on, on standards, is that they chill the, the, the behavior that, that is socially valuable because the person doesn't know if that behavior, which is close to the line, uh, is, in fact, illegal or not. And, and, and so and, and the story about, I think it's Nero who puts it up there, this is, Scalia quotes this at length in his Rule of Law. That's why he, like, Justice Scalia, really likes judges to make rules, not standards, because he doesn't want them to be like that, putting the laws out of people's sight. Uh, that's right, and, and I would say that's, that's this decision between certainty here, the low, high certainty. So if we're really worried about that, we want that middle group. We want you, the government, to say, we're going to tell you beforehand, because certainty doesn't chill this entrepreneurial behavior. If, sir, if, if we don't think that's important, we would go to the bottom uh, corner. Now, the, the, the question there is, you know, they have to decide between the two, and that's why I said, you know, this kind of comes back, and this looks like a rules and standards decision, because certainty might matter. As I suggested in the back and forth of Press Levmore, there's enormous, and I would say that the vast majority of law probably certainty is not as important as people make it out to be. Uh, you might say in, in a particular entrepreneurial area, so this would c- cut against our, oh, you can insure against it. You might have another area where, well, in a particularly entrepreneurial area, you want to allow it. Now, that's, that's going to go to the kind of back and forth about debating the policies, because I'm not sure you get a lot of agreement on that. And, right? So people are going to say, yeah, like Uber. And the other goes, yeah, like Uber. And right, I don't know the answer on Uber. Um, but that's, that is the problem. Now, they were, in some cases, just breaking the very certain clear rules uh, and not caring about it. But there was an, and certainly an enforcement that it turned it into a standard. Uh, yeah. So the subject matter, you mean like what we're regulating? Yes. Well, sir, I think that's one frame in which the law is moving, right? So instead, it, it is my, self-driving cars, you'll no longer be regulating human behavior, but machine behavior. There are the decisions between rules and standards is different, and I think favors rules because you have to tell the machine. You know, machines aren't great with standards unless it's phrased as an algorithm, which they can then transfer into their own rules. Um, but I do think... Uh, Ultimately, we have human. I mean, there's this whole question of like machine agency. My, you know, my kind of instinct on this is machines are are, are belong to humans and are tools of, and so we're regulating the owners of them, uh, and then we're just back to the question. But but certainly, the substance of law might change as the thing you're regulating changes. But I'm not sure that goes to form. Form is the question uh, here.
So then if the person comes back and says, well, how about this other thing, right? Then it seems like the microdirective would then respond to that. And, and so I see. Um, and similarly with driving or whatever, like, like it wasn't clear to me how you would invade the micro directive if in the course of trying to take that next action, you'd be presenting the algorithm with a new set of circumstances to which it could then issue a new, fresh micro directive. Right. So if the micro directive is perfect, it cannot be evaded. Right? So, so, so step one. So if it's, if it's perfect, it can't be evaded. So, but I took all of the questions on evasion that I get when I talk about it to be, okay, there's a world in which it's not perfect. Almost certainly the world that will exist is the, the algorithms are not perfect. Now you're right to say if, if someone keeps going to the algorithm and saying, what about this? What about this? What about this? Yeah, then the algorithm updates and, and you, you can't evade. The worry, I think, is you get a program on your own and you figure out the things that the, that the algorithm isn't worried about but actually matter. And so you structure your behavior in order to defeat the spirit of the law. So then the microdirective looks just like a rule that can be evaded, just like a complex tax rule. So you figure out, they, they and this goes a little bit to where I, I thought Professor Hemmel was going in his earlier question, of they, the government, have this great computer, but I've got a better one, and I can identify all the areas that, that they're not focused on and get around it. Get around not it being the, the micro-directive, but get around the, the purpose of the program. That would be, I think, how evasion right. looks. How, how does it get figured out later? Like, like how is it then that the lower right box is better? Is it, is it Well, that's one. That would be, if I go back to here, that would be why I have high fit and highest fit. But if there was more on, uh, it's harder for me to gain the, the algorithm when I don't know it. I don't know anything about it. But I could still possibly do it, right? Ultimately, if just I've got the supercomputer and the government doesn't, then nothing can be done, right? But if, you're trying, if you go to the algorithm and it gives you an answer, let's say you do what you said, you get like five answers. Then you go back and run it through your computer and figure out the way to get around. That you can't do in the lower right-hand corner. Because in the lower right-hand corner, you don't get an answer until after the fact. So it becomes harder to do there. That, that's kind of the idea. Is that you, you can see what it's saying you should do, and then you can say, okay, I'll comply with all of what you said, but do this other thing you're not focused on. The after the fact, I don't know if you're focused on that other thing because I haven't asked anything yet. And so it might say, you know, if it just says drive, and the speed doesn't work. Drive 55.3 miles an hour, that's it, right? But if, if it's telling you, you know, here's the 17 different things you asked that are, if those are okay in your tax form, and it said yes or no, and then you move the 15th and the 16th, if you don't know what it's going to do until after, you can allow it. And also, yeah, and so that would be the idea behind it. So the, the problem with biases and algorithms is, is essentially that, there, well, there's, one, there's three problems, right? So you could have biased programmers who just put it in. And, and that, that, that's, but you can have that with law too, right? If you just have a biased policymaker, uh, they're going to be able to create it. The worry with algorithms there is you might be able to hide bias even more. Now, that's a worry with standards too. You can hide bias through not making things clear, and they're, they're not clear in a different way with algorithms, it's that only like 
the most highly technical computer programs can figure it out. Uh, another problem is that the algorithm takes into account something that it thinks is relevant, but we don't want it to take into account. Um, and that's easy to fix because you just tell it not to take that into account. Right? So if there's a statistical correlation that you think, though it's a correlation, it's based on bad history and, and all kinds of bad things in society, don't, don't look at that correlation. The third problem is much more complicated. It's picking up proxy variables. So there's a correlation between one of the variables that the algorithm does think is relevant, and because of whatever reasons in our society, that proxies for something that we think is a negative bias. So gender or race come out as results because of some you know, where people live, something like that. Like, and so now you get that proxy in there. It's much more difficult because it's harder to ask the algorithm what it's basing its outcome on to get rid of the proxy variables. Now you can try. You can kind of examine it and say, what, what, it, you know, what if I change this variable? What if I change this variable? Or you can have a screen on the, on the, on the back end that just says, I'm going to undo the disparate impact that's coming out of the machine. For whatever reason it's in there, I'm going to undo it. And which of those you use is really complicated, but that's kind of how you want to think about it. And you know, my point earlier was, humans are exactly the same way. So judges have proxy variables or biases. It's a little easier for us to identify when a judge is being just blatantly biased than when they're being subtly biased because of a proxy variable. They don't even realize it themselves. And so it's a similar debiasing, but it's more technical. Yeah, so this is a kind of meta rule standards question. And in the most advanced version of learning technology, it's not an issue because you just give the algorithm its objective and tell it to update. And the idea behind learning algorithms is they don't know today what data is going to be important in the future. Now, in kind of the interim steps, and, and the people have kind of been working on predicting judicial outcomes and bail and all that, uh, they're not always using learning algorithms. They're using kind of highly technical but, but kind of more rudimentary algorithms. And so then you would have to have updating. Um, my instinct is to go with the legislative process. And, and so you will, get, uh, you will get stale algorithms just like you get stale rules. Uh, and so you know, then in the, in the transition period before you have like, great learning, you, you could result to the kind of Weisbachian kind of back of a residual standard to say, well, judges can oversee this, and if things go really bonkers, they can kind of step in and, and have an anti-absurdity uh, standard in place. That would be the way to think about it. Yeah? And, and uh, regulating high finance, regulating Wall Street, 
I worry about the micro director working too well. So everyone is like, based on the algorithm, everyone's obeying it too well. Everyone's walking lockstep across the suspension bridge. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, real estate's great for the last 60 years or whatever. And everyone invests in mortgage bank yeah. securities. And then the suspension bridge starts swaying. Yeah. And then we have once in six or seven year crisis. Yeah, so, so Chuck Whitehead has a great article about this, uh, it's Professor Cornell, about how if we have regulations that are all the same, it, we, it's like the, it's the bridge, it's evolutionary theory, it's all of a sudden you have a potato famine or a bridge that falls apart, and you really want to avoid that. I, I actually think algorithms are better there, because you can tell the algorithm, throw in X amount of variation, throw in Y amount of, you know, like, it, it's easier for me to imagine a computer figuring out that we're going to just be random than humans being random. Because humans, oh, I'm going to vary this. I'm going to change this regulation. That's not random, right? A computer can get much closer to the randomness you'd want if you want kind of positive evolution of, of the system. So absolutely a big worry in setting these things, but I don't think an impossible challenge. So our rule is we have to stop, but the standard... <laughs> Standards, whether or not you want to applaud, but I urge all of you to thank this. Thank you. 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 Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. I'd like to welcome all of you to the 2014 Dewey Lecture on Law and Philosophy. Uh, we're delighted today to welcome Axel Hanna, the Jack C. Weinstein Professor of the Humanities at Columbia University and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Frankfurt, as well as the Director for, at the Institute for Social Research in, Frank, in Frankfurt. And uh, I'm not going to do an extended uh, introduction uh, of Professor Hanath, because I will leave that to Martha Nussbaum. Uh, but what I want to do is tell you a little bit about the Dewey Lecture for some of you who don't have been here over the years uh, and uh, want to know a little bit about how it started. So it was founded almost 30 years ago in honor of John Dewey. Now Dewey's connection to the University of Chicago, of course, was enormously strong. From the university's inception in 1894 until 1904, Dewey was chair of the University of Chicago's philosophy department. And during that time, he founded what came to be called the Chicago School of Pragmatism, an intellectual movement that applied scientific methods to societal problems. In addition, Dewey created the university's laboratory schools in 1896. Now, in 1981, former dean of the law school, Gerhard Kaspar, decided that the law school should have a, a way to recognize 
Dewey's tie to the university and his contributions to legal theory. He corresponded with philosopher Sidney Hook, then the president of the John Dewey uh, Foundation, and he asked, could we establish a lectureship here in Dewey's name at the law school? Hook agreed and then funded the Dewey Lectureship in Jurisprudence. Now, we have been enormously fortunate to have tremendous philosophers who have been here giving the Dewey Lecture in the past. They include Nobel Prize winner Marty Sen, Ronald Dworkin, Amy Gutman, Richard Rorty, and our own Martha Nussbaum. In addition, John Wall's famous paper, The Idea of Public Reason Revisited, was a Dewey Lecture and actually was published in our law review. Now, law and philosophy, the Dewey Lecture, are incredibly important to our law school. As many of you have heard me say over and over again, that interdisciplinary study is at the core of what we are at the University of Chicago Law School. Wrestling with questions of the very nature of law, the intersection of and the difference between law and morality, normative and prescriptive understandings of our freedoms, obligations, and restrictions under law all go to the very core of legal education. Our law school was founded on the idea that lawyers need to know more than just black letter law. They need to understand the theoretical underpinnings of the very idea of law and that this makes them both better lawyers and better citizens. And that is incredibly important to us. And now it's my honor to invite Martha Nussbaum, appropriately holding the Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Chair in Law and Ethics, to introduce Professor Axel Hahn. Thanks. Um, I'm, I'm really delighted to introduce Axel Hahn. We've been working on this for two years now because he, he was moving and getting a green card and there were all these uh, details to sort out. So finally, we, we have him here. And uh, I won't repeat his, his chair titles, but I will say that it's a long time since we've had a visitor ultimately from, from Germany and from the Frankfurt tradition. Uh, the last one was Jürgen Habermas in, I think, 2002. And so this is a very fitting and exciting follow-up to that. Professor Honet is known around the world for his important work on the concept of recognition, which is a, a, a concept that's important to the theory of justice, but it was really not theorized as part of the theory of justice before Honet's work. In a range of important books, he's explored the idea of political recognition and its connections with ideas of respect and freedom. Uh, I'll just mention some of the important books that he's published in really quite a, a short space of time. So The Struggle for Recognition, The Moral Grammar of Social Conflicts, 1996, Redistribution or Recognition, a Political Philosophical Exchange, which he did together with Nancy Fraser, who's about to appear here next week. So, so that's a coincidence. Uh, then Disrespect, the Normative Foundations of Critical Theory, 2007, Reification, a New Look at an Old Idea, 2008, 
Pathologies of Reason on the Legacy of Critical Theory 2009, so she went book every year in this period. The Pathologies of Individual Freedom, Hegel's Social Theory 2010, The I in the We, Studies in the Theory of Recognition 2012, and very recently, the book that's most connected with today's talk, Freedom's Right, The Social Foundations of Democratic Life. Now, what also I think is, is very important about Professor Honneth's work is that it has had wide influence uh, not only in academic philosophy in both Europe and, and North America, and certainly elsewhere in the world as well, Latin America, Asia, and Africa, but it's also had influence outside the academy. For example, in the international human rights movement, you often hear reference to his work on recognition, and, and not just uh, sort of cosmetic reference, but reference that really shows thought about how to craft a human rights movement that makes the concept of recognition central. And it's the same with a variety of movements, women's movements and ethnic movements, seeking social justice for previously excluded groups. So it's a particular pleasure to welcome one of Germany's leading philosophers and now one of America's leading philosophers. And uh, so he will lecture on three not two concepts of liberty, the idea of social freedom. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Martha. I feel enormously honored to be invited to deliver these John Dewey lectures. I would like to thank uh, Martha Nussbaum, but also the Dewey Lecture Committee at uh, the University of Chicago Law School. And uh, a special thank to Erin Wellin, who helped a lot to organize this travel, because I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an awful traveler, and I'm afraid of everything. But she, uh, she helped me a lot to come here. So I'm coming from one place in which... Uh, in the department, we have a huge portrait of Dewey to the university, for which he probably was even more influential than for Columbia University. And I'm very glad uh, to have the chance to speak, uh, to, to present a lecture in his name. Even amongst those of us who are not altogether convinced by Isaiah Berlin's famous essay, Two Concepts of Liberty, it has become commonplace to adopt a distinction which largely coincides with the one he offered. On the one hand, we think that the negative concept of freedom belongs to the culture of modernity, which grants to the individual the widest possible sphere of protection from external intervention in the pursuit of purely personal interests. On the other hand, however, we are just as strongly convinced that individual freedom only truly exists when one orients one's actions according to reasons that one personally holds to be appropriate and in this sense determines oneself. We sometimes adopt a distinction within, uh, within this second positive model of freedom between an autonomous and authentic form and an authentic form of self-determination. This distinction serves to contrast between individual action oriented according to moral norms 
and individual action-oriented towards the realization of one's own nature and the most individually experienced needs. In the following, I would like to defend the thesis that the bifurcation between a negative and a positive concept of freedom, which has developed under Berlin's influence, is incomplete in a very significant respect. The two models foreclose the possibility that the intentions of an agent can only be formed in reciprocal interaction between multiple subjects and thus can only be realized without coercion by acting together. This idea cannot be captured by the now commonplace notion that individual freedom consists in the realization of one's own already existing or reflexively achieved intentions. Rather, the realization of freedom should itself be thought of as a cooperative process. And only in the course of this process does it become clear which intentions should be realized. I want to proceed first by illustrating with some well-known examples how we must understand such a form of cooperatively realized freedom. This first step should demonstrate that we have experience with this third category of freedom in our everyday lives, but that we lack the language to identify such experiences as a form of freedom. In the second part, I want to recall briefly the philosophical tradition, tradition in which this idea of social freedom, as I would like to call it, has always had a central place. Thus, I hope to reveal that the before-mentioned examples from our everyday life have already been associated by some political philosophers with a third separate category of freedom. Only in the last part do I want to delve into the systematic question of whether the model of freedom which I have suggested by example in fact, in fact designates a third concept which does not conform to the tra traditional bifurcated understanding. Here my purpose is not only to describe the respects in which social freedom is distinct from the two other models of freedom, but also to explain why we cannot abandon this third concept in our self-understanding. I begin with an example from our political everyday life in which the exercise of freedom should be easily recognizable. Consider our regular or only occasional participation in processes of democratic will formation when we join political discussions, call for protests, sign statements, or merely distribute leaflets at demonstrations. What is immediately obvious about such actions is how difficult or even impossible it is to describe them with the traditional category of negative freedom, although we quite obviously perceive such cases as exercises of individual freedom. To be sure, in making political statements of this kind, we make use of a space that is legally protected from governmental interference, which allows us to proclaim our beliefs freely and without fear of coercion. But it is fairly misleading to think of the author of such opinions only as an isolated I, separated from all others, in the way the negative model of freedom suggests. 
So too is it misguided to think that the action is already completed with the proclamation and thus that the expression of an opinion is the final step in the exercise of freedom. The political belief that is expressed in public statements would be in some sense falsely understood if it were ascribed to the private resolution of the will of a solitary acting subject. Rather, this subject refers in her expression to a chain of earlier statements which she attempts to correct or improve such that she can only appropriately be understood as a member of a previously constituted, self-reflexively given and already present we. This means that the exercise of the free action cannot be regarded as complete with the mere proclamation of her belief. For what the individual proposal aims at and where it finds completion is in the reaction of the addressed we or of its individual representatives who once again attempt to correct or improve upon the beliefs of other participants with their own. This description suggests that the participants in democratic will formation must be able to understand, to understand their respective statements of opinion as intervening with one another in such a way that they cannot avoid assuming a V which they together sustain through their contributions. Although we surely have the tendency to understand participation in democratic will formation as an exercise of individual freedom, such freedom cannot readily be described according to the standard of negative freedom. This is because the three distinguishing elements of negative freedom have little plausible application to such cases. The actor cannot be represented as a private subject who formulates the intentions of his actions by himself. Nor is he free in carrying out his action only when other actors do not arbitrarily interfere. And finally, this action is not complete as an exercise of freedom with the expression of his own opinion, but rather only temporarily concludes if the other participants have reacted to it in a rationally comprehensible fashion. The actions of my fellow citizens, therefore, do not place an obstacle to my own free political act, nor do they merely constitute the conditions of its possibility. Rather, their actions are so intrinsically interwoven with mine that it is difficult to speak of an individual act at all. It therefore seems that we can only realize this democratic freedom through a collo co collaborative process in which we understand our individual expressions of opinion as complementary contributions to a common project of identifying a common will. One reason why this cooperative structure of political freedom so easily falls from view maybe that we usually think of voting as the standard case of democratic participation. Thus it can seem as though freedom consists in the singular and secluded act of forming a private opinions, opinion about one's own preferences and of secretly recording it with the influence, without the influence of arbitrary intervention.
This picture of democratic action falsely takes the part for the whole. John Dewey famously railed against this view because he saw that it masked the essential democratic element of participation. A myopic focus on voting fails to recognize that the casting of the ballot is preceded by public discussions, including open media coverage and thus the process of reciprocal influence. Such deliberative discussions are a constitutive rather than, a mere, than merely an incidental feature of democracy. Taken in isolation, the casting of the ballot itself can perhaps be thought of according to the model of negative liberty. But this act is only a snapshot of a much more comprehensive process which is meant to ensure that through appropriate instruments for the exchange of experience and opinion, individual beliefs are not only aggregated but are as far as possible bound together into a rational general will. <coughs> Whoever participates in these processes of identifying the public will can no longer imagine the related experiences of freedom and the absence of coercion according to the standard of implementing private interests with the least possible interference. To be able to formulate one's own intentions, one must be able to take up the perspective of others and accept their potential corrective power. In this way, democratic will formation can be understood as a cooperative undertaking which serves the search for the common good. So as not to create the misleading impression that only democratic will formation resists description as an exercise of purely negative freedom, I want to give another well-known example from our everyday lives, which despite, uh, despite its many distinguishing features, shares several common elements with political participation. Personal relationships of friendship and love may also be interpreted as exercises of freedom on the basis of their known coercive quality and the attendant loosening of the boundaries of the self. But they resist descriptions by the standard of undisturbed realization of privately determined intentions. Even the first premise of a negative conception of freedom does not plausibly apply to this case. Someone who is maintaining a sincere friendship or true romantic relationship will understand his action, actions within this relationship as free, but will make his intentions dependent upon the wishes and needs of his companion. Obviously, the free action emerges here not from interests or purposes anchored purely in the will of a solitary actor. But even if the negative concept of freedom were not so strongly associated with the presupposition of an isolated I, it would still not adequately capture the structure of freedom within love or friendship. For not only are the interventions of other persons into one's own sphere of action not felt as limitations, which would indeed be compatible with the requirement that only non-arbitrary inferences can impair the exercise of negative freedom. More than this, the wills of the participating persons are so attuned to and enmeshed with one another that talk of intervention loses its meaning. 
the limitation of one's own will with, with respect to the concrete other frequently rises to such a level that it becomes impossible to distinguish clearly and definitively one's own interests or intentions from those of the other. The aspirations of both persons overlap not only in certain respects, but permanently interpenetrate each other so that their fulfillment can only be understood as a common concern. Where, however, individual interests are melded with those of others, where mine and yours can no longer sufficiently be distinguished, the freedom of a person should no longer, not longer be measured according to whether her own intentions can be realized without arbitrary in interference. It should already be clear that the examples of democratic will formation and personal relationships have more in common than it would appear at first glance. The point at which the negative model of freedom fails is nearly identical in each case. For both democratic participation and personal relationships, it is unclear what one's own will consists in, in respect to which the uncoerced realization of the act of an individual can be measured, and thus whether this will is realized in free action. In the case of democratic will formation, a subject only understands her political actions correctly if she thinks from the concurrent perspective of a we, the permanent renewal of which she contributes to with her own beliefs. <coughs> But because of the necessity of remaining open to other perspectives, the aspect of these beliefs which is truly proper to the individual subject is only something preliminary and tentative. The beliefs, therefore, cannot accurately be taken as a stable output variable, variable that is used to measure the unhindered realization of freedom. Something similar is true in the case of friendship and romantic relationships in which the boundary between one's own intention and that of the other's even blurrier. Because of the shared perspective of a we, the plans and the aims of the other are implicated in the determination of one's own will, such that the aspirations of both participants become intertwined. Both in such personal relationships and in democratic political life, the negative model of freedom is inappropriate to describe the kind of freedom individuals practice. In these social contexts, freedom consists in an unforced cooperation which assumes a higher degree of consensus concerning the aims of action than the negative model of freedom is capable of accommodating. One might object to the argument up to this point that these examples, even if they do not represent negative freedom, can nonetheless be understood in terms of positive freedom. Since we draw upon this second category to clarify certain aspects of our normative culture, by speaking, for example, of moral autonomy, it would make sense to attempt to understand democratic participations and love and friendship in terms of the other model of freedom Berlin had put forward. But this attempt, too, quickly reveals itself to be an inappropriate for determining the kind of freedom we realize in these cases.
With concept of positive freedom, we no longer describe an individual action as free insofar as there are no arbitrary external obstacles to its exercise. Rather, the freedom of an action is understood in terms of its realization of higher ends or values, whether this should mean agreement with moral norms, as for Kant, or the actualization of one's own natural needs, as in the Romantic tradition. As long as we understand freedom, however, only as an activity performed by an individual subject in which it practices a given capability, such as norm orientation or the articulation of needs, then the free character of the activities described in the examples above has not been adequately disclosed. For their distinctiveness consists in the fact that multiple subjects must act for one another in order for each to experience her activity from her own individual perspective as a common practice of freedom. There is indeed some overlap here with the idea of positive freedom insofar as citizens or lovers or friends must orientate themselves to certain ideals, such as the good of egalitarian popular sovereignty or the good of trusting intimacy, in order to act for one another in the appropriate sense. But it is this for one another which constitutes the entire difference of these forms of freedom from the traditional idea of positive freedom, because in democratic will formation or intimate relationships, the good that is striven for can only be realized when multiple subjects carry out an uncoerced action which reciprocally complement actions which reciprocally complement one another and thus enable free collaboration. To be sure, this suggestion could also mean that the difference between positive freedom and the third form of freedom I am searching for only consists in the kind of good pursued rather than in the mode of exercise itself. Whereas in the case of positive freedom, goods and values are searched for which are individual in the sense that they are only realizable on account of individual capabilities, these distinct cases, distinctive cases of freedom, concern the pursuit of goods or values that have a collective character because their realization is only possible through the united efforts of several subjects. Then we will take democratic will formation of friendship or love as representing collective versions of positive freedom, a possibility that Berlin occasionally touches upon in his famous essay, if only in order to discard it because of the inherent danger of its despotic misuse. The reasons for this re- his rejection certainly make it plain that he conceives the collective exercise of positive freedom by precisely the same measure as its individual enactment, namely that the members of a homogeneous group must all perform the same action in order to realize in consonance those values and goods the achievement of which is the goal of freedom. But such a picture does not in any way correspond to the kind of freedom we have discerned in democratic will formation or romance and friendship. 
The participants in these cases do not behave like the members of a group who have been forced into line. To the contrary, they must always renegotiate amongst themselves how they would like to apportion the responsibilities resulting from the shared value orientation and thus assign reciprocally complementary contributions to the common project. The we that must be assumed between citizens or lovers or French, friends is therefore in something totally different from the collective subject Isaiah Berlin had in mind with his idea of positive freedom. In the collective positive freedom Berlin described, one is committed to an ethical end which guides the action contributions of all individuals uniformly. In these cases, in the cases we have considered, participants are indeed oriented towards certain values but must continually renegotiate the form in which common tasks are to be distributed amongst them. Alongside the limitation of his will with respect to those of others, the individual nonetheless retains a right to have a say in how the relevant activities should intervene with and reciprocally complement one another. In democratic participation, it thus becomes clear that the participants in the cooperative production of a common will can always choose whether they want the role of speaker or listener, of demonstrator or spectator. Likewise, in love or friendship, the participants recognize the possibility of motivating one another to take on a new distribution of tasks and obligations. In any case, the participants in these examples are involved in the commonly assumed we in a different way than the members of the collective which Berlin imagines as the bearer of a supra-individual process of realizing positive freedom. They retain a right to have a say in how their intentions intervene with one another in the pursuit of the same goal and thus to behold in the freedom of others a condition of their own freedom. We can therefore provisionally conclude that the collective version of the concept of positive freedom is in apposite to capture the form of cooperative freedom which is evidently performed in the social practices of democratic participation or love and friendship. In these cases, my freedom is grounded upon the unforced intermeshing of our activities. On this basis, I can envisage the other not as a limitation, but rather as a requirement for the realization of my strivings, without giving up the possibility of co-determining the form of this intermeshing. Before I pursue this train of thought further, I first want to examine whether one can find suggestions of this, of such a third social model of freedom in the philosophical tradition. So I come to the, first, to the second step. <coughs> the thesis that the form of social praxis exemplified by democratic will formation and personal relationships constitutes an independent category of freedom has been an in undercurrent in political philosophical thinking since Hegel. Hegel himself believed 
that the two forms of freedom, which Berlin would later label as positive and negative, did not reach the highest level of freedom which ought to be available to members of modern society. Instead, he conceived of a third stage of freedom, which he called objective freedom, the meaning of which remains contested by scholars. The basic thought Hegel proceeded from is weaved into the terminology of his philosophical thinking, but can be rendered independent of this framework in a much simpler form. If freedom is conceived in the negative sense that there can be no impediments to the exercise of the will in the external world, then it remains for Hegel unconsidered that such subjective intentions can only truly be free when they are independent from causal force and thus anchored in self-positive reasons. Kant, in following Rousseau, had similarly concluded that the will can only be free when its content is determined by rational considerations. Hegel argues that this Kantian view, however, leads to the equally peculiar consequence that there is no guarantee that self-determined intentions can actually be realized in the objective world. From the defects of these two concepts of freedom, Hegel developed a synthetic view according to which the complete idea of individual freedom would only be achieved if the self-positive resolutions of the will can be thought of as furthered or willed in or even by reality. For Hegel, this was possible in those ethical spheres of modern society in which the freely chosen intentions of participants intervene with one another, complement one another, and thus find willed fulfillment within social reality. It is not yet altogether clear from this short summary what Hegel meant to convey with his idea of a third, objective freedom. Here the different interpretations of Hegel depend upon how strongly Hegel is thought to remain influenced by Kant's conception of freedom. According to Robert Brandom, Hegel only socializes the Kantian idea of positive freedom such that the ability of individuals to bind themselves to norms is dependent upon the recognition of a community of others whose recognitive authority is also freely recognized by the individual herself. The resulting reciprocal recognition constitutes the normative horizon in which a subject makes use of his positive freedom to renew the shared cultural potential through her own expressive initiatives. This interpretation converges with the idea of social freedom I have hinted at so far, insofar as the core of the Hegelian idea is understood as connecting individual freedom to the assumption of the perspective of a V. But the freedom which is realized through this participation in a community of subjects, reciprocally recognizing one another's autonomy, is, in Brandom's interpretation of Hegel, understood only as an individual exercise, as the expressive act of the individual who lends a new accent to the shared culture.
In contrast, I believe that Hegel understood the freedom made possible by reciprocal recognition as itself a common or cooperative undertaking. This is so for him because only by com complementing each other can the intentions of the individuals achieve the individually desired conclusion. Thus freedom in its objective sense is not something an individual subject can perform on his own, but rather is something he is only able to achieve in regulated collective action with others. I have similar reservations with regards to the profound interpretation which Frederick Neuhauser has given to the Hegelian idea of objective freedom, the subjective dimension of which he attempts to reconstruct as social freedom. According to his interpretation, Hegel sets out in his philosophy of right from the idea that the complete concept of individual freedom must comprise all the institutional requirements which allow the members of a society to articulate their particular identities without coercion in the external form of social roles and thus to accept institutional structures of self-realization. Here too, individual freedom is linked with the assumption of the perspective of a we, which makes it possible to understand specific freedom-enabling institution, institutions as rooted in common interests. But as for Brandon, Neuhauser understands the practice of socially conditioned freedom as an individual act, which if every participant can perform without requiring the reciprocal action of another subject. According to my interpretation, however, Hegel is driving at a much stronger intersubjective inter idea with his conception of freedom. The individual can only realize the freedom which is available through certain institutions when he acts in cooperation with others who, whose intentions make up an element of his own. Not only is it necessary for Hegel that the exercise of individual freedom proceeds from the taking up of the perspective of the we, which either makes possible the constitution of a community of recognition or commu common commitment to freedom-guaranteeing institutions. In addition, such an exercise of freedom must be undertaken with the expectation that the other members of the community will carry out actions which correspond to my intentions or needs. Only this doubled intersubjectivity, as both a condition and as an end to be produced from my free action, makes it possible to understand why Hegel again and again thought of love as the paradigm for his own idea of freedom. Here, according to the famous formula, one is at home with oneself in the other, in the sense that one can understand the actions of the others of the other as requirements for the realization of one's own self-determined intentions. As the famous formulation to be at home with oneself in the other already suggests, Hegel intended far more with his idea of objective freedom than to identify for therapeutic purposes certain possibilities of unforced and thus free collaboration in modern society. Ultimately, he wanted to construe our entire relationship to the world 
in terms of the recognition of our own positive ends in the other of the objective reality, and thus also to underscore idealistically our freedom in relation with the natural environment. For our purposes, however, it suffices to limit ourselves to the accomplishment of freedom in the social world, since this is the context with which, which would be elaborated by later authors who would furnish it with new aims. Already in early French socialism, socialism's critique of the expanding market relationships, there was an idea of freedom which can only be appropriately understood with reference to its roots in Hegel's philosophy of right. Unlike the understanding of freedom in classical liberal law, which is charged with the legitimation of purely private interests in the capitalist market, freedom is understood in the writings of Fourier and especially Proudhon as a solidary activity of being for one another as manifested in unforced cooperation between craftsmen. Just as for Hegel, Proudhon suggests that individual freedom must be thought of not merely, and I quote, as a barrier, but rather as a help to the freedom of all others, end of quote. Hegel's concept of freedom appears even more starkly in the early writings of Marx, as Daniel Brutney has shown. The young Marx sketches the image of a social community where the members no longer work against each other, but rather for one another. Here we find the guiding idea of socialism, namely that one can only speak of real freedom between social members when the actions of individuals complement one another in such a way that the freedom of the one is the precondition of the freedom of every other. As for his French predecessors, the playful interweaving of action in the cooperation of craftsmen serves as the historical model. According to Marx's conceptions, the subjects in such interactions are free in a particular way, because each can learn from the other participants that his contributions to the coordinated action plans are acknowledged and seen as necessary and welcome complements to each other's intentions. The idea of reciprocally complementing one another makes it clear how much Marx's cooperative model owes to the Hegelian idea of freedom. The attempt to imagine the social integration of a future society entirely according to the measure of such unforced economic cooperation, namely as a community of subjects working for one another, constitutes, in my view, the core ethical impulse of socialism. Here, the social form of the exercise of freedom, which Hegel only saw at work in individual spheres of modern societies, is carried over without differentiation into the entire society, in which the members are thought of as cooperative partners who reciprocally strive to satisfy the needs of one another. I do not want to go into the difficulties that attended this original vision of socialism, which ignored the requirements of the functional differentiation of modern society. 
For my purposes, it is only necessary to recall an undercurrent of political philosophical thought in which the idea of a distinctively social freedom was already thought of as valid. This theme can also be seen at play in the thought of Hannah Arendt, who understood democratic action to express the foundational intersubjectivity of human freedom. Whereas for Marx, labor itself was seen as a potential context for social freedom, for Arendt only in the political sphere understood as a realm of public contestation over the common good, are we free? Because there the individual sheds his private concerns and must widen his previously egocentric perspective in collaborative activity. While Arendt's concept of social freedom does not originate in Hegel, the same is not true for the last of the representatives of the philosophical tradition of freedom uh, I will mention. The namesake of this lecture series, John Dewey, throughout his life argued that individual freedom is completely falsely understood if it is exclusively understood as a capacity or possession of a solitary subject, solitary subject. Rather, the degree of our freedom increases when we participate in socially cooperative activity because we are better able to realize our intentions and wishes the more various the interactions in which we reckon with the responses and contributions of others. For Dewey, as for Hegel, the true form for the exercise of individual freedom is represented in contributions to the distributed labor of realizing a common aim. Because in such projects, the realization of my will is also intended by others. I thus want to conclude my short reminiscence of the largely forgotten tradition of social freedom with a citation from Dewey, in which the underlying idea of social freedom is beautifully expressed. And this is from, from the public and its problems. Liberty, according to the American pragmatist, and I quote, is that secure release and fulfillment of personal potentialities which takes place only in rich and manifold association with others. The power to be an individualized self making a distinctive contribution and enjoying in its own way the fruits of association. End of quote. The, I come coming to my third and last step. The adherence to Isaiah Berlin's conception of conception would surely object to this plea for a third social concept of freedom on the grounds that it has the fatal propensity to confuse the value of freedom with other ideals shared by humanity. Just as little as we should surreptitiously smuggle the goal of social justice into the concept of individual freedom, we may, we may not underhandedly furnish it with the aim of coexistence in solidarity. For both efforts would ignore the irreducible pluralism of our values and deny the possible conflicts between them. In this last part of my lecture, I want to forestall this objection 
by demonstrating that the common value in the before-mentioned forms of relationships of solidarity can best be understood in terms of social freedom. If you look back once more on the previously presented examples of social freedom, democratic will formation, love and friendship, and finally, for socialists, economic cooperation, the first remarkable element is that the participating sub subjects must understand themselves as members of we without, however, losing their individual independence. To be sure, the actions they want to carry out are bound up with the assumption of complementary actions on the part of others, which demonstrates the reciprocal taking up of the perspective of the we. But this, is, this in no way suggests that they together constitute a collective which acts like an enlarged eye. With Philip Pettit, we can label the social ontological position by which this intersubjective exercise of freedom can best be grasped as holistic individualism. This concept assumes that the realization of certain human capacities requires social groupings and thus entities that can only be described holistically. But this does not in any way preclude the existence of independent individuals. Why, nonetheless, should individual actions that presuppose a community of cooperative subjects be understood as a particular class of freedom? What is so distinctive about such unforced intertwining of actions that makes it justifiable to introduce a new category of freedom alongside the existing models of negative and positive freedom. Here, in my view, Hegel and Dewey point in the direction of an answer. Both are of the opinion that the distinctiveness of the reciprocal process of unforced intertwining of ends lies in the fact that the contribution of each is, ex each is experienced as willed by the other. In contrast to all other actions, which can either be understood as negatively or positively free, this class of cooperative actions shows that we can each assume the consent of the other and thus can carry out our own action with a consciousness of unforced responsiveness. Not only is there no expectation of arbitrary interference from partners to the interaction, more than this, one can trust that what one freely does will also be freely wished by the other or all other participants. In more systematic terms, the uncoerced nature of a communicative action is here increased because both sides know of each other not only that they perform a freely chosen action, but also that the carrying out of this action fulfills an, on, an autonomously generated intention of the other. Hegel emphasizes above all the cognitive side of the exercise of social freedom as it should exist in the reflexive structure of such a commonly, commonly shared knowledge. Dewey much more starkly stresses the effective side.
in the enjoyment of experiencing how one's own actions are seen by others as preparing the way for completing their own ongoing actions. The exercise of such a form of freedom certainly requires, as already indicated by the accompanying consciousness of a we, that the participants pursue common aims or values, because these common aims and values require them, in forming their own intentions, to take the intentions of the others into consideration. Every one of the participants limits himself to the carrying out of such actions which she knows will contribute to furthering their shared aims. Whereas positive freedom is related to the assumption of a reflexive act of self-determination or self-articulation, social freedom is bound to this assumption of the formation of a common will. Where such a common will is not present, and the perspective of a we cannot be taken up by the subjects, it is not possible to form in their consciousness an agreed-upon scheme of cooperation which would allow them to act for one another through their complementary contributions. To this extent, the idea of social freedom, unlike the concept of negative freedom, but like the positive concept, is a selective category of human freedom. It does not designate a general, unconditional capacity of subjects, but rather one which is bound to the existence of certain social conditions, namely belonging to a community of ethically like-minded members. This assumption of membership in an ethical community cannot, however, be misunderstood to mean that the participants have completely lost their capacity for personal initiative and independence. Why this cannot be so can now be more precisely formulated because we have learned that in the case of social freedom, one's own contributory actions must fulfill the autonomously, autonomously generated wishes or intentions of one's fellow participants. This assumption can only remain valid so long as I concede to the other the right to place the negotiated scheme of cooperative action into question when her individual needs or interests positions have changed. Because such a claim must be reciprocally acknowledged so that all participants can understand their contributions as fulfilling the autonomous wishes of others, the exercise of social freedom must be bound to the assumption of the right of every other to co-determine the commonly practiced scheme of cooperation. This right to have a say, moreover, cannot itself be understood according to the standard of negative or positive freedom, as though another form of individual freedom protruded from outside into the exercise of social freedom. What the participants invoke when they place their previously agreed upon scheme of cooperation into question is the result neither of a purely private consideration of interest nor of purely individual self-determination as Kant had it in mind.
Rather, they discover the content of their will against the normative background of jointly entered responsibilities in order to check whether their will remains in agreement with the negotiated scheme of cooperation. The difference here is that the participants in this process of discovery do not proceed from an ethical null point, as suggested by the models of negative or positive liberty, but rather from the acceptance of responsibilities they already have with regards to others in the pursuit of common aims. Thus, they will only bring to the table suggestions for the adaptation of the scheme of cooperation which appear necessary in light of their changed needs or interests to the extent that these are compatible with collectively settled goals. The right to have a say with participants possess in which participants possess in regards to the distribution of burdens and responsibilities in romantic relationships, friendships or democratic communities is not externally imposed, but is rather an intrinsic element of the social freedom that they together enjoy in such relationships. These considerations lead into the last point of my lecture, in which I want to come back to the question of whether the suggestion of a third social model of freedom commits the mistake of confusing the value of freedom with the value of solidarity. Such a reproach immediately suggests itself because the participants can only allow their intentions seamlessly to intervene with one another in so far as they together strive for the common goal of solidarity grounded in trust, whether this takes the form of sexual intimacy in love, the reciprocal support of friendship, or the egalitarian elaboration of a common will in a democratic community. The reason why this works for all contributors, so the objection runs, is the unified realization of the good of solidarity and not as it would look like to be as I would like to believe the value of a particular kind of freedom. However, this objection requires more information about what the value of solid solidary cohesion should truly consist in. And thus one confronts the two difficulty that although one can, one can identify such positive experiences as reciprocal trust or mutual aid, this does not serve to explain the special quality of solidarity, the special quality such solidarity constitutes for us. What difference would it make if the various forms of relationships of solidarity only drew their value for participants from the fact that they constituted different variants of social freedom. Then that which makes love, friendship and democratic collaboration worth striving for could not simply be explained by reference to the good of solidarity. Rather, solidarity would only draw its value for us from the fact that it allows us to exercise in different ways 
a form of freedom in which others are not experienced as in the as in the usual case as limitations but rather as conditions of the possibility of forming and realizing our own intentions we strive for relationships of solidarity not for their own sake but rather for the particular kind of freedom which they embody in various forms what attracts us to experiences of solidarity and what makes these kinds of relationship worth striving for is an experience which is precluded in other forms of social life namely to see in the reflection of our own intentions and desires in the complementary intentions and desires of our counterparts that we can only realize them by acting for one another these considerations allow us to conclude that we are not able to assess the value of solidarity uh, of solidary relationships without reference to the positive experiences of social freedom but more than this the idea of social freedom represents the overarching evaluative concept for the special cases of relationships of solidarity for what makes the experience of solidarity valuable for us can only be explained with reference to finding oneself again in others which is what is meant by the idea of social freedom social freedom is related to solidarity like the type to the token the various forms of solidarity are empirical manifestations of that which makes acting for one another into a human good then however the objection no longer obtains that the idea of social freedom falsely confuses the value of freedom with that of solidarity precisely the opposite is the case we are totally unable to comprehend the value of certain social forms of being together unless alongside the concept of negative and positive freedom we have at our disposal a third concept of freedom which makes it clear to us that we strive for such forms of being together for the sake of experiencing the complete absence of coercion the distinctiveness of the third form of freedom is a complete withering away of all hindrances which the intentions of other subjects generally pose for me only here do i find in the social world a sort of home which already which hegel already knew could only exist where i'm at home with myself in others let me conclude therefore by noting that under the historical conditions of the increasing juridification and economization of our culture and thus of the rise of purely negatively understood freedom it is high time to recover the buried tradition of the ideal of social freedom thank you very much so much for a lecture that was so rich and uh, so now let me just tell you what we're going to do we're going to have about half hour of questions and then we will adjourn to a reception outside 
Well, you all have about another half hour, 40 minutes to talk to Professor Honet informally. I guess to open the questions, I'd like to invite you to say something about hierarchy and power. Because obviously, in all these social relationships where there is reciprocity, there are also differences of power. And Hegel's example of love uh, invites us to think, well, yes, those wives uh, could consent, but really, how free were they? And so on. So I'd like you to just talk about that and work, workplace relations, political relations. What, what degree and type of asymmetry is enough to make something unfree uh, in your third type of freedom? Yeah, good question. Uh, I, I would say there is no ahistorical answer possible to that question. I mean, that's, that's an Hegelian answer, which means um, we, have, we have these ideas, yeah? We have the ideals of love, friendship, probably also economic cooperation. We have the ideal of democratic will formation. We know that in the historical exercise of these ideals from the beginning, there were a lot of power relations so that the situation of these ideals, the, the real practice of these ideals, was far away from what was meant in the ideal. Mm-hmm. Take the 19th century. Yeah? I mean, it's clear that love didn't function like that as it is described well, here. they didn't even have an ideal of, of true equality. Maybe Mill did. This is, no, this, this, that's, that's already another question. That I would deny. I think they had the ideal. Um, they gave it another interpretation as we are giving it today. I think the idea of romantic love when it developed in the late 18th century had already the idea that the partners have to be equal. Fully. I mean, that was the idea. But the understanding or interpretation of what equality means was very different from ours. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So my answer would be, this depends on nothing else than social struggles, mm-hmm. which help us to make the ideal closer to reality. I mean, to bring the ideal to reality. And the fact that we... I mean, these struggle, social struggles are performed, I think, with, with regard to the ideals, yeah, in the different spheres. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so women were fighting for more equality, less power within families or marriage in the name of love. Yeah. That's my, that would be my ah, interpretation. Okay, yeah. well, we'll do this more dinner. Corey. Thank you. Thanks for the lecture. Um, I wanted to uh, ask also about uh, the relationship of equality, or more specifically, democracy and love. Um, the way the argument works is you have to pair these two together within the third conception um, uh, of social freedom. But I guess my intuition is that they come apart in a variety of different ways. Uh, the first way is democratic deliberation is about lawmaking, and the consequence of lawmaking is that I might find myself bound to the laws that I've made when I was a deliberator. That to me at least sounds like it's got the model of the Berlin idea of um, self-mastery or binding myself because I abstract from myself and then bind myself afterwards. 
Um, and also the relationship of democratic citizens is certainly not one of love towards one another when we're deliberating or arguing or disagreeing, maybe for a common purpose, but in that sense, we're divided in a way that, that looks like we're not when, when we're in love. Um, and so I guess the question is, I mean, how is it, I mean, it's still not quite clear. I see how love fits the, the model of social freedom, but I'm not sure why it is that you can rescue deliberation from, from the traditional Berlinian notion of uh, binding oneself uh, and putting it in, in the category of love. I mean, I guess the final, the third instance is, I mean, I think you know, in the, when Mar the early Marx is talking about love, it's very tied to the idea of spontaneity and spontaneous action. And this is, again, another difference that deliberation looks like it's deliberate, it's not spontaneous. It's something that we're doing in a kind of controlled way. So how do you bring those? Yeah. Um, th this is, I mean, a lot of that is depending on how exactly to describe the, the 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 substance of democratic reformation, yeah, of deliberation, and you used again a language which I think is not sufficient to describe what I at least take being the central element of democratic reformation, namely participation. You described it as if there are. Uh, individual participants which all have to bind their own will to certain norms and they have to do that individually. I mean, that's the whole Berlin idea. And, I mean, by, I mean only by their self-binding capacities they can together deliberate. Yeah? Which means, I think, that the substance of democratic reformation is, again, the individual able to do something upon him or herself. Whereas I believe if you stress the participatory element, I mean like Dewey or others, it becomes obvious that this self-binding is somewhat a misleading idea because it's not that I binding myself to a norm. It is much more so that I leave it open and very flexible during the process of deliberation to which norm we together probably should bind us together. I mean, that's more the Rousseauian model, yeah? I mean, if Rousseau, I mean Rousseau is a difficult case. Uh, <laughs> so leave Rousseau aside. Um, at least that's a Dewian model of democracy. That's probably the Habermasian model of democracy, um, where it is much more a, 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 a joint enterprise. I mean, I, I just read this uh, really wonderful article on uh, democratic practice by Benedict, by, by Elizabeth Anderson, which is especially stressing that point. And I think, I mean, she's not using the notion of social freedom far away from that. But the way she is describing participation is that we don't act there as fully autonomous, I mean, in that sense, autonomous subjects, that we make our own will formation and the formation of our opinions somewhat uh, independent from others. It's much more flexible 
when you have the idea of participation. And therefore, I think, I mean, I see the difference between love and democratic will formation. They are obvious. But, uh, but I think, no, the structure, I'm interested in the structure, whether it's not a similar structure which we can find there. And that's what I tried. Yeah. The way you explained this, if I understood it right, was that it was not didn't describe an unconditional capacity or you know relation among subjects, but something that has conditions. And um, I have a certain difficulty of comprehending freedom as such as something that has conditions. Actually, I mean, and so um, I was wondering. I mean, it might have conditions in this in the way in which the thought. As as its condition, the brain. You know, I mean, uh, it's a condition of thought that there is a brain, but it would be misleading, I think, to say that human beings have the power to think on the condition that they have a brain. Uh, so, so it, it may be the case, you know, that the, of course there are conditions for social freedom, but those may be, as it were, as unconditional to human existence. Mm. With regard to the, I mean, with regard to the first, I, I, I think I would have another interpretation of Hegel, and that's a long story. Yeah, I think the interpretation of Hegel you gave of his concept of objective freedom is for me a kind of version of the of of Brenham's interpretation of it, namely that that kind of freedom Hegel has in mind is a socialized version of Kant's concept of autonomy, yeah? where it is not... The, the, the norms to which I bind myself are norms which are not somewhat created by me, but are norms, let's say, which are administered, that's Brenham's notion, by a collective, yeah? by a group. So I bind myself, the, the, whole, the, the whole picture Kant is presenting then would be wrong, and I think it is misleading, yeah? that it is myself who either creates norms, 
uh, to bind him or herself to these norms. So it, it should be a much more socialized picture where objective means or social means that freedom consists in the capacity to recognize uh, the authoritative community, I mean, not to recognize, to freedom means to act in such a way that I can recognize and be recognized as a member of such a community which is characterized by certain moral norms. And then the no notion of positive freedom is described in a different way. But this is then only another version of positive freedom. And I think the, the Hegelian point lies, lies, lies somewhere else. And that's, it would be a long question whether I'm wrong with that. I think he stresses the fact, if you take the examples he has yeah, in the philosophy of right, he stresses the fact that when we have these institutions, the, what makes freedom objective or we, what makes freedom to the highest experience is that these are institutions in which we are acting together in such a way that I can see my own intentions mirrored in the desires of the other. And that's always his point. I mean, in all the three chapters he is dedicating to family, not probably in the state, which is another story, but even in the market he sees that. So, and I thought that's the main structure for what he understands as freedom, and then it gets a completely different form, I think. Um, the, the, the second question about conditioned, I mean, what I simply wanted to say is that... Uh, indifference to negative freedom, which we seem to have at our disposal independent from any kind of social preconditions. The kind of social freedom I'm describing, we only have at our disposal, and we, I mean, we have it as a capacity, but that capacity can only be enacted when, there, when we are uh, participating in ethical-minded communities. That's what I only meant with condition. And that seems to me to be a realistic description. Okay, Rafiq. Uh, yes, so um, this goes back to the question over here, which is virtually what I was going to ask. So I'm going to ask a version of it, but not quite. And it's again about the relationship in the first part of the talk between um, democratic will formation and personal relationships. I mean, it seems to me in the protest case, um, um, so I, I won't take the case of voting, but the case of, uh, of protest, it looks to me like my relationship to other people is, inc is incidental and not intrinsic. It's right, I mean, I'm protesting in order to get a certain end achieved. Um, if I could do it all on my own, great, right? But now, but I mean, it turns out that I can't, so I need other people there, sort of um, instrumentally. Whereas I take it that if that was the if that was the way one thought of, of of love, you'd be getting things very wrong, right? I mean, then it's not an, it's it's not just an instrumental uh, relation. It's like I need to fall in love, and oh, here's another 
person isn't that great. Um, so it's so it seems to me that I mean so so it's a version of of asking again that there seem to be huge differences even in the protest case uh, between uh, political and personal relationship. Yeah. I'm just uh, I'm just thinking whether whether I whether my descriptions whether the descriptions um, I gave are inviting these questions, um, <laughs> which which, surpri- which still surprises me because I never wanted to say that personal relationships like love and friendship and democratic will formation have more in common than a very formal structure in how here it is a we which we have to presuppose in order to explain the kind of freedom we are enacting, not more. And the the protest case, I mean, this is, a lot of that is depending um, what kind of protest you have in mind. I'm speaking of a democratic community, which means if you speak of protest, it is the protest within a democratic community, a functioning democratic community, not such a form of democratic community in which democratic rights and all the necessary conditions are not given. So we speak of a functioning democratic community. In such a community, my protest is takes the form of an, an, an address to another person, to the other side, to change their opinions. And I'm doing that not by taking them as, uh, not by taking me, the group who is, uh, which is protesting, and them against which I'm protesting, as to I mean, as two opposed groups. I mean, they have to be part of of the we to which I belong when I understand this protest as a democratic uh, form. And therefore, I'm presupposing a we, and my hope with my protest is that they change their opinions. And in that sense, uh, I... I don't know exactly how to describe the kind of freedom which I'm realizing here. For example, I don't think that the positive model here functions at all, because in the the positive case, I mean, I leave aside the possibility that we can think of positive freedom as being enacted by a collective, as I mentioned. I leave that aside. But... I don't believe that the citizen who is protesting within a functioning democratic community can somewhat be described after the model of uh, binding him or herself to a certain norm. I, th- I think he, I mean, the, if that is understood as an act of freedom, the freedom itself I would describe completely differently. And the way I would describe it would have a lot to do with the way in which I would describe, for example, freedom within friendships. Not saying that democratic communities are communities which we best describe as friendships, which would be, in my view, completely misleading. 
Amanda. So I wanted to invite you to say a little bit more about the relationship between the last part of your talk and the, the first part. So in the, in the final part, you described um, the value of freedom as having something to do with um, experiencing a complete absence of coercion because we are at home with ourselves and we are at home with the other and this kind of feeling we have of an absence of coercion that helps us to understand why social freedom is valuable. But in the beginning parts of your talk you were, you were describing social freedom in a way that distinct, made it distinct from the other two concepts and you really emphasized creating and or presupposing a we and especially a responsible we and at one point you described that as uh, recognizing the right of others to equally co-determine the negotiated scheme of cooperation. <coughs> Tell me where I'm going wrong if I, if I hear the following kind of uh, argument. It sounds to me like you're saying part of what it is to constitute a responsible we, that is what you need for your argument to make this third freedom a real separate freedom, is to recognize the equal right of other people to co-determine our negotiated scheme of cooperation. So if that's the case, it doesn't, it doesn't immediately, uh, I don't immediately see why that fits with um, experiencing a complete absence of coercion. So can you say a little bit about why we really should think of this as freedom versus some kind of commitment to a certain egalitarian mode of uh, collective decision making? Be um, because the, I, th I think that it depends where the right to co-determination, uh, probably a formulation I was using, how you derive that right and how you understand that right and how you place it. And for me, I think, at least that uh, I was after, uh, this kind of uh, right to co-determination belongs to the kind of we we are building in those uh, in, in in those groups I'm describing, yeah, in in friendships, in love relationships, democratic will formation, probably economic corporations, and so on and so on. And so it means, I not even would say equality, you see. I mean, I don't need any notion, at least at this point, I don't... What I need is an equal right, I mean, in that sense, a right of all participants. I don't know whether I would use the notion e equality here. Every participant in such a group, if it follows, if, if it... Uh, can be described as I'm doing it, has a right to co-determination because the structure of it is that all participants expect from each other that they fulfill the autonomously generated desires and intentions of others. And that means and includes, therefore, that in case one of the participants has makes the experience that 
his or her needs or desires are not longer responded to because they have changed. It follows from the description I gave, because they have to be self-autonomously generated, that out of that it follows that they have a right to co-determination. Because the whole, I mean, the, the, the whole condition would not longer, uh, would, would be not long, would not be longer, sorry, my English is now disappearing. Uh, the, the condition that I'm fulfilling uh, autonomously generated need of you would not longer be given when uh, your needs have changed and you couldn't tell me and you couldn't determine me to change our way of cooperation. So it, it comes from within, that's what I wanted to say. It's not so that you have, I mean, a, a kind of principle which is from outside intervening into these kinds of uh, groups or V perspectives. It belongs to explaining how such a V perspective can function to make it clear that internally it belongs to it an equal right, I mean, of all participants to co-determine the schema of um, cooperation. And as you reformulated it, it sounded as if this is another version of a principle of equality or something like that. But that's not the point I was after. I wanted to say, if we really want to understand what these kinds of groups are, a democratic community, a friendship, uh, probably a cooperative group of uh, uh, workers working together, we have to understand that it belongs to the functioning of such a group that all have a right to co-determination. And then we can describe best the way in which freedom is experienced here and is realized as a social form of freedom. Okay, I'll give the last question to then, Brudney, and then we'll adjourn to the reception.
if things are functioning properly, each member has, as it were, a right to participate in response to public But it would be hard to say in advance what they're going for, nor <coughs> they're not trying to benefit one another precisely. Where there's a notion of um, doing things for one, which would mean the idea that what we are trying to do in politics and economics um, is to benefit one another. Um, if we take that notion of doing things for one, then we might be able to say some things in advance about what institutions must be like or what they must provide for us, because we'll have some, perhaps, vague in general, but still contentful notion of what benefit would be. And so um, the outcome of the process wouldn't be, as it were, wholly undetermined in advance. Um, and I just wanted to get a sense of which, where, your picture of doing things for one another comes down. Whether it's more like a situation where we really can say almost nothing in advance about what institutions should be like because we have to wait for the process to unfold, or whether insofar as we specify the thought that what's the point is the benefit of one another, we can actually bring in some content of the next So I just wasn't clear which That's, that's a very interesting way to put things, and probably it would demonstrate a distinction between the different cases I gave, which I underestimated. Because my intuition would be to say democratic will formation would be a clear case of uh, the second type, in which acting for or doing for is to benefit others. Yeah? And the benefit others would be describable, probably like Dewey did it in epistemological terms. Yeah? We help us to make our opinions more intellectually reflexive, wide, open, by interacting in a community of deliberative uh, democratic persons. The two other cases, I mean, friendships and love, I think there the benefit model is uh, somewhat more, uh, much more difficult to apply, I think, at least after my intuition. I mean, as long as you don't understand love relationships as having a very specific internal goal like Hegel wanted to have, yeah? namely becoming parents or something like that. But if you don't have that kind of secondary goal, namely a kind of goal, an other goal than that, then being together in a specific form which gives us experience about ourselves and allow us to be together and find out something about ourselves and enjoy my ourselves reciprocally, uh, this is the goal, let's say. So in that sense, the goal is internal to the practice. Whereas, and that's the jazz I think, yeah? Whereas in the case of democratic will formation, the goal is more external, yeah? We have 
we share a certain goal, namely searching the common will. And we are doing it in form of participation and del participatory deliberation because that we found out that's the best way to do that. And then we can think about how to describe the kind of freedom I'm, in, I'm, I'm enacting when I'm participating. Um, so that would be a, di a difference between, let's say, two cases which I didn't respect, I have to say. The case of the democratic community, the case of the economic community, on the one side, where you have uh, an, an ad additionally an extra goal. And then the cases of friendship and love relationships where the practice in itself is the goal. So it, it's more the Aristotelian case of uh, practice. Okay, well with that I'd like to thank you very warmly for this terrific lecture and uh, welcome everyone to the reception. Thank you very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.
indeed Brian Leiter, has a piece in the record on the role of legal philosophy or role of philosophy in legal education. I commend that to you and suggest that you read it as soon as I think Marsha's going to get this on the, you'll have it in your mailboxes probably in a couple weeks. Um, wrestling with questions about the very nature of law, the intersection of and the difference between law and morality, and the normative and prescriptive understandings of our freedoms, obligations, and restrictions under law all go to the very core of legal education. Our law school was founded on the idea that lawyers need to understand and know not just black letter law, but also the theoretical underpinnings of the very laws and lawmaking that are crucial for our legal system. So I'm particularly delighted uh, that the lecture committee uh, chose Barbara Herman uh, today. Martha Nussbaum is going to describe all of Barbara's innumerable and impressive academic credentials uh, in a moment. But one thing that will not appear on her CV is that 10 years ago, she chaired the Dean Search Committee at the University of California Los Angeles Law School. I guess it goes to show that despite doing a lot of good things in your life, you're not perfect, Barbara. <laughs> well, now it's my honor to invite Martha Nussbaum, appropriately holding the Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Chair in Law and Ethics, to introduce our professor, Barbara well, it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce Barbara Herman to give the Dewey Lecture. Herman is Griffin Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Law at UCLA, and she's one of our country's leading moral philosophers, one of the two or three people, I would say, whose work really defines where the field is going. Throughout her career, and ever since her dissertation work with the great John Rawls, she's forged a distinctive Kantian approach to ethics showing that Kant's ethics is actually much richer and thus vulnerable to a variety of objections than most philosophers had thought. Herman's first book, The Practice of Moral Judgment, is one of those books that I think gets richer and better every time I teach it. And I, I do teach it in courses ranging from graduate philosophy seminars to a course called Decision Making for a large, large group of law students. And she shows that a Kantian approach is perfectly able to accommodate a nuanced view of moral perception and moral salience, and also that this way of thinking about Kant helps us think about moral education, what it's supposed to accomplish, and why it often fails. So then Herman's second and more recent book, Moral Literacy, 2007, based on her Tanner lectures, continues this theme, offering a subtle account of the structure of our moral capacity, connecting this to issues of moral education, moral motivation, and moral responsibility. Herman has also produced a large number of very insightful and famous articles. And so I'm just going to single out one, which I love. Could it be worth thinking about Kant on sex and marriage? Now, that's a, a very strikingly funny title, really, because Kant is so far from being a feminist that you would think that there, there wouldn't be anything. It might be like a, an article that lasted uh, two sentences. But actually, the, the humor, while it alludes to the fact that Kant, the person, was not at all a feminist, the article actually shows that Kant's own thought has a lot to offer to people concerned with gender equality, uh, Kant's ideas about what it is to respect humanity in a person, 
and to treat a person as an rather than as a mere means, are actually closely related to feminist worries about the objectification of women and offer new resources for thinking about that whole cluster of issues. There's a wonderful part of it where she's going along, quoting from Kant, and then there's a little paragraph that seems a little bit strange because it has some words that you think Kant might not have used, and you find out that that one is Andrea Dworkin, but it, it, it sort of slips in there. So. Um, so, so Barbara, whose entire teaching career has been spent at UCLA, is famous also as a dedicated department citizen, sometimes chair, and an influential citizen of the university, as with her role in bringing the wonderful Mike Schill to be dean of the law school. And she's also a remarkable teacher. I found it pretty daunting. That's why I Googled her, and I was then led to her teaching evaluations, and I found them very daunting. And a completely representative one is this. One of the best in CAPS professors at UCLA. Even if you are not enrolled in her class, you should attend one of her lectures. Her lectures are captivating and intellectually stimulating. Also, she does a great job in explaining what each philosopher is trying to convey. On a personal note, I remember feeling the power of that captivating presence on the memorable occasion when I first heard Barbara Herman speak. She probably doesn't remember this at all, but she was an older graduate student at Harvard, and she was famous among us younger graduate students as one of the, the best, but I never really met her or heard her give a talk. And on this occasion, she was addressing the whole faculty of the Harvard Philosophy Department about why the graduate students wanted to form a union. And I remember, I mean, this is a pretty daunting occasion with Van Quine and Nelson Goodman, all these people sitting there who were actually not very friendly to the idea of a graduate student union. But I remember the confidence, incisiveness, and great humor with which she faced down that group. And I remember thinking, this is a truly wise person, as well as one who's a lot of fun. So I think we're in for a treat in listening to her Dewey lecture today. It's hard to live up to these introductions. I won't try. <laughs> I think I have to just attach this to myself. Thank you for coming. Um, I don't know how much fun we're going to have, but maybe it'll be interesting. So this project started um, in the fall term this year, when I taught a seminar with my colleague Shauna Schifrin on the topic of moral negligence. It's a, various, a very obvious topic once you think about it. Um, but if you, I tell you this and it's true, if you try to find a literature on it, or even on its cognates, it's not there. Negligence as a wrong and as a subject matter is pretty much owned by the law and run by the Department of Torts. And it's not hard to guess how that came about. The law has the task of managing a large class of actions that harm persons and property, and interest in how that's going to be done has to be high. It's also no surprise that the philosophical issues posed by legal accounts of negligent acts have to do with causal connection, mental state, foreseeability, Incompetence, 
and about the wrong, whether negligence involves a kind of trespass on rights or is a distributive failure. Remedy is its own world. I don't plan to join these debates, though I'll have something to say about them as we go on. My question is about what happens if we free the discussion of negligence from its home in torts? After all, the natural concept of negligence applies widely, certainly across law and morality. And if we shift the point of inquiry to non-negligence and the duty to exercise due care, things get interesting. Focusing on non-negligence with its ex-ante perspective, issues are less about balancing harm and remedy than about what we ought to do or what counts as acting well. Just that much is enough to raise a question about how or whether the moral and legal norms connect and which, if either, is fundamental. My plan today, after some preliminaries, is to explore the moral side of non-negligence, looking at the duty of due care and its relations to other moral requirements. I will argue that it's an imperfect duty, one that requires partial articulation in law, and that its various applications in morality and law are continuous with each other, not the same but engaged in the same moral work. The argument elicits and depends on the systematic interrelation of the two domains of law and morality. Now, looking from the outside, competing, as an outsider I mean, competing views of negligence in law differ about the aim of the legal regulation. Righting a wrong, or serving justice, or promoting fairness among cooperators, or, real, or realizing economic efficiencies. Each interpretive scheme has its preferred cases, individuals causing accidental harm to other individuals, corporations causing incidental harm as they go about their business, members of the professions failing to meet internal standards. Each scheme has its preferred mode of remedy or response that exhibits a different understanding of the social role of the law in incentivizing desirable behavior. Were one to want to export the idea of negligence from the legal context to the ordinary one, the most important lesson is the what's it for question. That would be the one that's paramount, and I think that's right. However, the focus on harm and remedy doesn't fit well with the idea of negligence and ordinary morality. In our ordinary relations, we don't seek the least cost avoider, we are not, in much of what we do, best understood as members of a fair cooperative scheme. And negligent failure is not always about harm, nor healed by making the victim whole. So before deciding whether the legal and moral ideas of non-negligence are or even could be congruent, we'll need an independent view of the moral side. So let me begin, as I like to do, with familiar things. When you and I interact, on the street, or in front of my room, or even over the internet, lots of things can happen. We pass and make room for one another, we exchange ideas or gifts, we make plans to meet, and we intend things to go a certain way. But we also bump into one another, fail to notice a salient change, make an offending remark, miss a meeting, without intending these outcomes. Suppose we could have done better. Of course, even if we take the care we could, and should take, failure happens. 
so it matters how things come about. Failure isn't proof of negligence. Success is consistent with it. Ordinary morality doesn't require harm or anything untoward to happen to find negligence. Getting it right is not quite a matter of more or less caution or of moral luck, as if at any moment we might find ourselves stumbling into a Rube Goldberg or Chuck Jones constructed universe. It's true that the universe causally outstrips our ordinary vision of it, and knowing that we learn caution, but not too much caution, else we become paralyzed. As with many regions of activity where the right amount is for good reason underspecified, a responsible agent acquires the habits of caution suited to the range of activities she engages in alone and with others. How we hand one another tools or put out a grease fire or maintain the brakes on our car. We monitor what we say to whom, try not to drive when we're sleepy. We also knowingly play games where someone is likely to get hurt and engage in productive activities whose footprint will not be light. And sometimes we throw caution to the wind. We could say that ordinary negligence lies in failure to direct the right kind of attention to our acting, making non-negligence an appropriate attitude of intention and care. The non-negligent agent takes a critical view of herself as an agent, recognizing that the horizon of her intention is not the boundary of her agency. It's more than a bit challenging to work out what this requires of us. Being careful is no guarantee. There are hazards that we can't anticipate. Others' actions may alter the circumstances in ways that defeat our caution. It's often hard to give an account of why we take what we're doing to be good and sufficient. Curiously, while it may be hard to say what caution or due care involve, it seems easier to identify carelessness, perhaps because the examples are so awfully familiar. The right turn made without looking, loudly voicing a criticism without attending to who can hear it, closing a valve or a latch but not all the way, relying on memory rather than writing down a complex schedule. These acts all seem to involve taking for granted something that shouldn't be. We don't, in acting carelessly, disregard everything, and due care is not acting with attention to everything, but to those areas where absence or misdirection of attention is a fault. One could be attending very carefully to the identity of the birds and the branches while making that right turn. When we say to someone, pay attention, we assume that it's obvious where attention isn't being directed, that the target of our vocalization already knows where the spot is in what she's doing that might warrant the warning. It's as if we are primed for failure to take due care. Suppose one makes a promise to A to do X, where X is complicated enough to require some planning to execute. How do we understand what's required of us? Do we have, in addition to a duty to do X, a separate duty to plan and execute? Or are planning and executing already involved in the duty to do what you promised? I promise to bring bread. I forget the bakery closes at 6 and arrive at 6.30, but it turns out the bakery has changed its hours and is open until 7. I bring the bread as promised. I also acted negligently. 
Have I succeeded in one thing and failed in another? One can't succeed negligently, only despite one's negligence. Had I forgotten the promise and brought the bread for some other reason, we would not say, I kept my promise. Examples suggest that if there is a second duty around, it isn't an independent duty alongside the promissory duty, but a secondary or maybe executive duty, dependent for its content on the primary duty of the promise, of promising generally, and of this promise in these circumstances. We might then reasonably, if a little quickly, conjecture that there isn't an independent duty of due care as such, but rather, where there is a primary duty or obligation, there is space for a secondary duty of due care. That would explain why the duty points to the idea of a standard, but doesn't provide one. Failure in its sphere means that something that required attention because one had a specific duty was not managed effectively. This is what divides negligence from pure accident. The duty of due care is to be distinguished from the requirement to take necessary means. Having a duty to repay, I must gather and then convey funds in a timely manner. But servicing a debt or the debt isn't all that's required. I should not, for the pleasure of it, act in ways that lead you to doubt, you, the person I owe it to, lead you to doubt that I will repay. If I have a duty to be truthful about something, I should try to make the truth accessible, not deliver medical advice in a rebus or in an overly technical manner. A duty to aid should be carried out in a way that doesn't cause collateral damage. None of these are instrumental requirements, though failing to get them right can defeat the dutiful performance. Might we explain the moral data in terms of additional independent duties? A duty to help and a duty not to cause damage. A duty to speak truthfully and a duty not to obfuscate. A duty to pay debts and a duty to appear to intend to pay one's debts. There are, of course, circumstances in which one has and must act on multiple independent duties. But in the cases that hand, the second duty somehow belongs to the first. We do not have straight-up duties to be transparent or not to obfuscate or to act without incurring costs. We also have no standing duty to remember. We have a duty to remember or to take steps so that we remember when forgetting is a foreseeable impediment to to fulfilling another duty. We have a duty not to obfuscate when lack of clarity undermines the point of the truthful communication, and so on. When our not taking steps to remember or not making the effort to speak clearly incapacitates us with respect to the primary duties we have, it makes sense to describe these situations as failures to take due care. But really, why isn't not taking steps to remember simply a rational failure to take necessary means? Well, consider how things might go. I say, see you for lunch tomorrow at noon. And that's the end of it. At noon the next day, there I am. No memory-inducing steps were taken. Maybe I'm just good at remembering social arrangements but have trouble remembering names. Well, that changes things. If knowing your name on another occasion will be important for me, 
or show lack of respect for you if I fail, I should take steps to remember. It's true that on the rare occasion I may forget an appointment. I'm surprised and disappointed, but there was nothing I failed to do as a means. I just forgot. But if in the swirl of the social moment I didn't take steps to remember a name and I later don't recall it, the failure is more a fault than an instrumental error. So, where we can't fully count on our, on our abilities, or where we know that the stakes are high, we may need to take steps. It's on us to know both when this is the case and how much additional care it is reasonable for us to take on. When it is a failure of judgment or a misstep in execution and not of a rational requirement, the failure counts against due care. There's still more. Suppose that you do not fail in doing what your duty to repay requires, but the manner of conveyance introduces difficulties. You repay the debt with a check, but after the banks have closed, and I needed use of the funds today. We know each other well enough so that you knew that. If it was easy, or easy enough, for you to have avoided the difficulty, then you should have. While I have no claim on you to do that based on the duty to repay, there surely seems to be a failure of due care here. But if so, with respect to what? Well, plausibly, the standing duty you have to be mindful of a friend's welfare. So, not a conflict of duties. It was possible to attend to both and with the same action. And although there's only one claim on you, were you able to attend only to the debt, you would not violate a welfare duty. There is some kind of requirement that, in the servicing of the debt, you not do less than you easily could to avoid serious inconvenience to your friend. If you do less than you could, it's a failure of due care, I would say, in the exercise of one duty with respect to another. All right, so let me quickly take stock. The rational requirement to take adequate means is not itself a moral requirement. It inherits moral significance from a moral aim. Due care, by contrast, is a moral requirement, a secondary duty whose application and content depends on independent or primary duties. It requires that we attend to foreseeable sources of failure and that we take responsibility for the intersections with other, not necessarily conflicting, duties. The duty of due care calls for no specific action or action kind. It isn't owed to anyone. It's a task for the agent to determine when due care requires doing anything. There is no single standard of due care. And not everyone faces the same demands of due care in similar circumstances. Now, the duty's indeterminateness and dependence on judgment suggest, in moral theory, an imperfect duty a duty of ends that leaves agents room for choice in how and when they execute it. Other features suggest it's not an imperfect duty. Unlike, paramount, param, sorry, unlike paradigm imperfect duties, it's ubiquitous, often demanding. The importance of due, scare, due, due care in the moral scheme of things is higher than many perfect duties. Well, you might think, so what? It only matters if we need the idea of an imperfect duty to make sense of the duty of due care, and I think we do. So let's go there. Now, imperfect duties are introduced in moral theory 
because they seem to solve problems that arise with duties like beneficence. We have a duty to promote the good of others, but morality can't acceptably task us to promote the good of every needy other we might help. Nor can we be called on to routinely pass over benefits to our near and dear for the sake of greater benefits to distant strangers. On the standard account of beneficence as an imperfect duty, we're required to adopt the end of helping others, but like other ends or aims we have, we needn't always act for it when we could. But it's a terrible solution. There's no gain in calling something a morally required end if we're free to choose not to act on it. Surely, if there's good reason to make space for richer lives for ourselves and our intimates, we shouldn't get there by way of bare choice or personal preference. The standard account of an imperfect duty gets it right that there are duties to adopt ends. It goes wrong in what it takes to follow about choice. As we'll see, bare choice is not the only option. It's worth noting as we go by that perfect duties don't fare so well on the standard account either. Their value is said to be in their strictness, well suited to moral regions that call for protection, duties about our bodies, our property, our trust. But if, as on the standard account, these are exceptionless requirements on action, their value is undermined by the fact that any perfect duty one can name is vulnerable to overriding by almost any other duty on some scenario. And lots of journal articles have shown this. The duty of due care poses a challenge to the standard account because it is a duty with a set of unusual features. Its requirements are indeterminate and variable, yet its contexts of application are ubiquitous. Due care is engaged because something else is at stake. Avoiding harm, to be sure, but also such things as ensuring equal treatment or meeting need or respect. We don't fail due care whenever we fail at a primary duty. There are lots of ways to go wrong. We fail due care if we will let the obligation slip out of active memory or ignore something about the duty that calls for attention. Its requirement of concernful attention is aimed at our motives, not just at our actions. It directs us to organize agential resources around our duties. To do this, we have to grasp and attend to what a duty is about, making its point and purpose guiding for attitude as well as action. We are to be oriented not just to what a duty requires, but to what makes it matter. So, for example, if the point of the institution of promising is to secure cooperation without depending on altruism, due care will focus attention on issues of defection. But if the point of the institution of promise is to enable us to give another person limited authority over what we do, due care will be more about trust. Similarly, if the point of the duty not to injure is to protect a physical resource, due care may be satisfied if we can provide an equivalent. But if its point is to respect the integrity of the person, that won't do. So it is this trifecta, attention, motive, the purpose of a duty, that I think a credible idea of an imperfect duty can make sense of. What we're aiming for is an account of the duty of due care as an imperfect duty that shows it not to be some kind of add-on to deal with a particular class of harms, but integral to an account of what it is to fully satisfy a duty.
Okay. Now, it should be obvious, though I know it's not, that any account of our duties has to answer that original, what's it for, question. Getting the answer is easy for the consequentialisms. But their kind of answer, where duties are about outcomes and nudges are as good as motives, makes it hard to capture the features of due care we've canvassed. And if we look for it, we actually can find a different and more congenial answer to the what's it for question from autonomy or rationally agency, rational agency-centered views, ones that I prefer. For them, the point of our duties and permissions is to create a habitat for free, equal, self-directing persons to develop and express their rational natures. Duties are deliberative and orienting in their requirement, not just productive. They set terms of standing between persons. They treat action as a mode of address as well as an efficient cause. Agency-centered views give priority to first personal judgment. It can matter to the rightness or wrongness of an action, how the agent reasons to it or what her motives are. It's a natural setting for imperfect duties, and so of due care. To see this, I want to set out some of the major, major pieces of an agency-centered view, and the version I'll use is roughly Kant's. As befits the ecological metaphor of a habitat, the duties of an agency-centered view are interdependent, and morality is holistic. A duty considered separately from other duties is deliberatively incomplete. What to do if I break a promise or trespass on a right or someone's dignity depends on the significance of what I've done, and that depends on how what I did perturbs other elements of the habitat. A duty also has no unique practical valence of importance or stringency. It is sensitive to goings-on elsewhere in the system. Now, the anchor of such a view, and in fact of Kant's substantive theory, involves something like a basic structure or a theory of public right. It provides a framework of fundamental moral kinds, a first ordering that sets moral terms for public institutions and law. Its task is to secure the equal status of persons, sanction basic protections, and provide the moral authority for legal institutions of property, contract, and like. In Kant's version, the source value of the basic structure is the innate right of persons to be free from four things. Free from others' private authority, from differential status and class, from moral taint, and free from constraint on expressing one's mind. Just those four. They are not moral or legal entitlements, but categories or value premises from which valid entitlements can be derived. For example, public right anchors a set of legal duties that have to do with injury to the body. It tells us what counts as assault and battery and what is incidental contact. A public right not to suffer assault on one's life or body is a necessary protection of the independence and integrity of the person from the private authority of others. This is a part of morality that has to have juridical form, 
since it licenses public coercion. The values to be protected cannot be at the mercy of the moral goodness of other persons since what is to be protected is the condition of other practical goods, including that of effective moral agency. Stepping down. Next, public right and legal duties shape the duties of the moral person. Ideally, once there is public right, once the value of independence is articulated in law, the related duties of moral persons are given some deliberative shape. There is continuity from what the state has a right to do to the individual's morally available reasons. So consider assault and the morality of self-defense. The state can prevent assault without itself engaging in it, even if it uses force as a means. And that's so because its entitlement to protect determines the moral status of its actions. The same reasoning applies to individuals. If the wrongfulness of physical assault is about culpable disregard for the independence of the victim's agency, justified self-defense isn't assault directed back at the aggressor. It's a different kind of action. It's not simply a means to furthering a private purpose. The difference is in the motive or end. Justified self-defense like the state's action, aims to restore the moral condition of rightful independence that is the point of public right. One can hear this in the, you have no right, directed at the aggressor, which you might want to compare with, don't hurt me, which is a very different thing. While the law can ignore motive and let a private interest self-defender be its ad hoc deputy, Morally, the difference remains. Perfect duties, we saw them a moment ago, perfect duties are the private side of public right. They continue the work of public right, protecting fundamental value by limiting what we may do for the sake of our own purpose or purposes. It's just the idea of deontology. That is, perfect duties rule out reasoning from considerations of self-interest to such actions as lying, killing, breaking promises, and so forth. They are not exceptionless prohibitions on action types. What is exceptionlessly prohibited are deliberative schema. So there is no perfect duty not to cause physical injury or other harm. There is a perfect duty not to unilaterally initiate injury or harm as a means to a private purpose. This sets a default requirement. But as with self-defense, in morally abnormal circumstances, where adhering to the default requirement would undermine its own supporting value, an agent can have reason based in that value to set the default requirement aside. We find the same pattern with the perfect duties connected with lying, deception, and truthfulness. Anchoring these duties for Kant is an innate right to speak one's mind. Its first role is in public right, and it's essentially the right that we have to be free to speak to power. If we could say only what someone else thinks or permits us to say, 
or if what we can say is regulated by its expected effect, then we cannot represent our ideas to others and our public speech would carry no authority. Private morality takes up the same rationale for the innate right in a general presumption of truthfulness in speech. It's only if I speak my mind that we can reason together and perfect ethical duties of communicative integrity that I not regard myself or cause myself to be regarded as a mere speaking machine, uttering words that look like communicative speech but are sent out simply for their effect. If duties of communication are perfect, truthfulness trumps private interest because false communication is corrosive to rational endeavor. Imagine one's partner in a scientific inquiry bringing false data to the project. Even if its effect is benign, once the false data is there, the project is a failure. False avowals of love undermine their relationship they misrepresent. However, if by eliciting your honest speech I would make you complicit in wrongdoing, think the murderer at the door, you may lie. In such a case, the value of truthfulness is not realized by adhering to the default terms of the perfect duty. Okay, now imperfect duties. In a Kantian scheme, public right and perfect duties don't exhaust the role of fundamental value in setting directives. Where morality is taken to be primarily for, in those theories, where morality is taken to be primarily for protection and coordination, most of its work can be done by carefully crafted public rights and perfect duties. But if we're talking about a habitat for rational persons, something we make together, there will be specific kinds of ends we need to have. Think about the familiar list of imperfect duties, if they're familiar to you. Preventing the violation of other duties. Concern to prevent harm generally. Benefiting others. Preventing violation of other duties. Concern to prevent harm generally. Sorry, I'm repeating myself. Um, Self-promotion, self-perfection, and the duty of due care. Each represents a goal well suited to the moral habitat project. We add resources to making the habitat safe. We provide one another support and cooperation. We take ourselves on as a moral project. We add care to our lawfulness. This gives us the first piece of an account of imperfect duties. They are duties that give us ends, but not ends articulated in terms of an object to be promoted as we choose. The ends connect our motives to the moral value underlying the common project. So let's go back to beneficence and its problems. The first question we now ask is, what's it for? What good does it promote? Even if beneficence directs us to feed starving children, there's more than one way to understand why we're to do that. We can, sem- sen- we can sensibly ask, what beyond the alleviation of suffering are we aiming to accomplish? Why food and not anesthesia? We provide food because while we care about suffering, we're aiming to preserve life and promote the human good. Which good? Well, on the autonomy account, the good is rational well-being. Then, indeed, we should feed the hungry. But on the very same grounds, we should meet needs for education and sustainable community and a whole host of things. So for whom? 
The second question is thus about deliberative import. Even if there were no problems of global poverty, suppose just institutions have done their work. Given the way human life goes, there will always be need for goods and services beyond what individuals are able to provide for themselves and beyond what social institutions can or ought to provide. Morality then taxes us to help one another. We naturally ask, will that tax leave us enough for ourselves and our relations? Well, that's one picture. Here's a different picture. When you're engaged in a cooperative endeavor, some of the needs of others are your needs too. Suppose beneficence were like that. Morality wouldn't then tax you in a way you'd be moved to resist. We now ask instead, whose needs are our needs? Move to the head of the list are our family members, friends, colleagues, and co-workers, neighbors, and so on. Beneficence would then follow on attachment and not threaten it. As such, it could be and is very demanding. And it's that way without our raising a moral eyebrow. A sick child or parent, a friend in crisis, can introduce almost limitless demands that we don't resist. Demandingness is not the problem. Tending to a sick child or parent can change your life. But it doesn't make it less your life, even if it sometimes feels that way. We can lose our grip on the narrative arc of our lives under the pressures of full-blown stranger beneficence. So what decides which account of beneficence we should adopt? What beneficence calls on us to provide for others is time and effort and stuff. What we give matters to us. It also has a place in the moral scheme of things. The part of what we give that raises the problem for beneficence is not our hand on a fevered brow, but our property stuff that is both protected and interpreted by the moral basic structure. So, if what property is for is private accumulation of wealth, beneficence is a moral tax. But if it's for the provision of the material conditions for society of free and equal moral persons, then it isn't. As part of our common moral endeavor, if we may help differentially, it must be because we, in that way, realize a goal of the moral system. We can then argue that it matters to children that their parents or their intimate circle act on their behalf. Providing help is part of building a relationship of trust that support and support that enables a child's healthy development. It's not just that I may help my child and not yours. Stranger help can sometimes be intrusive. My child trips. I reach out, but you, a swifter helper, dash in. If there's no real danger, that the help might get there some seconds earlier is not usually a good reason for a stranger to intervene. There's a lot the parent might be doing in helping, providing support, giving instruction. A parent might choose not to help as the best response, seeing the episode as a teaching moment. Across the board, we communicate and create through our helping. It's one of the ways we say how we value each other, how we confirm and build relationships. 
among the existence conditions of friendship is that friends be able to help one another. Sometimes, against one's preference, one may need to help a friend or let oneself be helped by a friend. Even in easy rescue cases, we express something. That someone must help, and because I was first on the scene, it's me, nothing more. But in order to express the values that belong to beneficence, that collect in it, we need discretion over who, how, and when to help, and space to be sensitive in our beneficent actions to other moral concerns that overlap. It is this sort of expressive discretion, not bare choice, that imperfect duties enable. All right. So does the articulated duty of due care call for an imperfect duty's expressive discretion. Well, consider how things go with a simple element of the subsystem of property. Having borrowed something from you, say a book, I have a perfect duty to return it and an imperfect duty to care for it while it's in my possession. The designations mark different deliberative requirements. One signals that I cannot keep the borrowed thing just because I'd like to. My preferences don't create a transfer of possession. The other signals that I must attend to how the borrowed thing fares while I have it. I shouldn't leave it out in the rain if that will ruin it or dog-ear the pages, though I also needn't devote myself to its care. In the typical case, I exercise judgment about what's normal wear and tear, how much trouble maintaining it is worth, what the lender's reasonable expectations are with respect to the object and with respect to me. Part of the exercise of judgment is to be open to special features of our circumstances. So knowing that you are fastidious about your library, I might take special care always to carry the borrowed book in a plastic sleeve. I wouldn't be in the wrong if I didn't take extra care There were no terms like that in the lending. But if we are friends, out of respect or affection for you, I should take the extra care, unless perhaps your fastidiousness has become a problem. Either way, the moral demands that come with friendship further inflect the exercise of due care with respect to the primary duty of hanging onto your book and getting it back to you. And they do this through the motive I have from the duty's end of concernful attention to the primary property duty and the moral contingencies that occur in its environment. So this is the antithesis of bare choice. Now, if, as I claim, the duty of due care is a secondary and imperfect duty requiring that we organize attentional and practical resources to meet potential impediments to our success with primary duties, there is a place for the duty at every part of the moral system. It attends public right, perfect, and other imperfect duties. Despite the great differences in kinds of actions required and kinds of agents responsible for due care, from institutions like courts and legislatures to corporations and private persons, it is importantly, the same duty throughout. Unlike some other views where private morality and law are mainly connected through mutual constraint, 
The Kantian view regards them as integrated, the forms of moral reasoning continuous across the elements. A big system, not a big tent. Different parts have different foci and structural features, but as parts, they belong to a system that completes them. And the duty of due care is integral to the way the entire system works. Now, in support and defense of this very large claim, I want to look briefly at four issues about motive, system, the division of moral labor, and about the moral force of non-negligence. Now, we've seen that whether the actor is public or private, because the duty of non-negligence or due care is directed at primary duties, non-negligent action depends on engagement with what the primary duty is for, its underlying value. The duty calls for the agent to orient attention and response to that value. It is therefore a demand on motive first, not success in outcome. We cannot act non-negligently from just any motive. We must be attentive to what matters, not just acting as we would if we were attentive. Some might argue the talk of motives is ruled out for many of the purported bearers of this duty because they lack a psychology. That's a mistake. You don't need a psychology to have a motive in the relevant moral sense. A basic structure that adheres to Rawls's two principles in lexical order has a motive in that its activity is oriented by and responsive to values of equality and fairness. Strict scrutiny is a structural expression of a motive that tracks the value of some due process protections. If an institution is insufficiently or inaptly attentive to considerations that bear on its primary duties, if, for example, its procedures are closed to relevant information, that is a fault in institutional motive that can result in negligent actions. Here's a legal example. The Clark's finding in 1950 about social disadvantage and segregation challenged the idea that the formal equality of separate but equal met constitutional standards for equal protection. Though not discussed in these terms, the argument to attend to that material was about due care. If the court accepted the Clark's empirical finding, and was motivated, as it institutionally had to be, by the value of equal protection, it had to take steps that would alter existing educational arrangement in the direction of the underlying value. The assignment of that motivation to the court as such seems to me uncontroversial. Had the court refused to consider the Clark's findings, it would arguably have been negligent, or worse, because badly motivated. The evidence for this would have been the court's formal arguments, not the motives of any of the justices. Second, the duty of non-negligence or due care functions in a dynamic system of duties. It not only has application wherever there are primary duties, it can call for changes in the primary duties we have. For example, 
In conditions where we're faced with an amount of stranger need that private beneficence can't or shouldn't manage, due care might require that social and legal structures organize a public scheme of beneficence. Moving a primary duty from one sphere to another can diminish the likelihood of direct or negligent failure. It need not provide exactly the help that would be provided if each of us separately managed our own stranger beneficence. We're going to forego some discretion. And it need not draw from us exactly the amount we would separately provide, in some cases more, in some cases less. Also, in making beneficence even partly a public duty, new requirements of due care arise. Democratic and fairness values engage. A wealthy but unequal society could wind up doing too much elsewhere if that results in the neglect of some of its own citizens. The inherent dynamism of the system of duties serves due care in both directions. If stresses on private duties can be sometimes resolved through legislated changes in public duties, public duties can also alter what our private duties require of us. So, for example, what counts as sexually inappropriate or disrespectful behavior in private relations is now partly shaped by public regulatory rules for the workplace. It's not so much that restrictions in the one sphere directly move over into the other, but that heightened sensitivity to issues in one set of relations puts us on notice of due care in the other. The division of moral labor can also be straightforward. Think of the way we manage licensing adolescent drivers, to take a very different sort of examples, and the way example, and the way we divide due care between state and family. Connecticut, I found out, allows a driving permit at 16, but only if a legal guardian says that the teen is ready to drive. Nothing like that in California. California, on the other hand, forbids teens driving teens for the first year of their license, except in the presence of an adult. Each party in the division of labor aims to minimize risk while expressing respect for the soon-to-be adult. So there are typically curfews, no unsupervised driving between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m., but also exemptions, for example, for work or medical necessity or driving a sibling. Violations of due care typically involve failure to take on the full practical burden of a primary duty. There's a failure to grasp or control for what some moral requirement turns out to involve in real conditions. It can involve a constellation of things, not all contemporaneous with a duty's action directive, taking preparatory steps, having adequate practice and experience, skills of self-management and self-knowledge, of sustained critical attention, and so on. Looking at such a list, it's obvious that the demands of non-negligence will differ in systematic ways as we go down the line of duties. And since failures of due care can occur at every level of the system of duties, we should also expect there to be different kinds of response, depending on where in the system the failure occurs and what kinds of moral costs are involved. 
at the very highest level of the moral system, where the questions are about whether fundamental values are effectively captured in basic institutions and laws, the demands of due care are very high, both prospectively and reactively. Failure here can't be balanced with benefits from elsewhere in the system. That remedy may be costly can sometimes seem to justify a less than best response. Think about mandatory busing once upon a time or Obamacare now. The risk from the point of view of due care is that pragmatic concessions to failures make it difficult to sustain integrity of purpose. The lens of due care highlights failures in a distinctive way, I think. Take some, just some, of the many things that can be said in criticism of U.S. prisons, given the conditions of incarceration, the recidivism rate, the racial makeup of inmates. Cruel, inefficient, unjust, seem fair enough. But also negligent, which is more than just an additional complaint to the cruel, inefficient, and unjust. If the value that anchors the moral system were the rational well-functioning of persons, and therefore is the value that supports and partly justifies its subsystems. Our prison system is negligent with respect to this value to a degree that undermines its moral authority to incarcerate. Morally, one can live with inefficiencies, even some injustice, but we can't live with loss of authority if what we're doing is imposing our will on others. That the current system makes us safer, if it does, is not a counterbalancing consideration at this level of due care. Further down the system, we will, of course, find matters of harm and negligence and legal remedy in the more familiar ways. Proactively, measures of due care mitigate the occurrence of harms and other untoward outcomes. Failures of due care, including negligent actions, involve falling below a reasonable standard. At the limit are activities that threaten grave harm that no regime of care can manage, and they should not be permitted. The indeterminateness of an imperfect duties requirement is consistent with there being a moral boundary, a level beneath which we may not go. Where realized harms are compensable, yet could also be mitigated by taking further steps, we enter the space of judgment and discretion. From the perspective of moral non-negligence, the debates about negligence in law, is it or should it be a regime of fault or efficiency or strict liability, look not so much like debates as reflections of different loci of due care. Proponents of each view, as I've mentioned, tend to have their favored cases, depending on where they think the heart of negligence, legal negligence, lies. If it's trespass on rights, their examples will be about risky fires and docking barges. If it's about compensation, they'll talk about automobile accidents and medical malpractice. If it's about social justice or efficient risk distribution, it's about predictable threats to well-being from productive activities of manufacture and delivery. 
The availability of insurance makes some of this debate moot, but I think the distinctions the legal discussions are onto are real. The questions posed are what we would expect thinking about moral non-negligence. At what point are actors or victims, sorry, where must one take steps? Where is there reason to weigh the burden of precaution and compensation? At what point are actors or victims on their own? But note that such questions, while familiar to the legal discussion, are hardly unique to the law of negligence. They belong squarely within the duty of due care in its most familiar places. When we follow the duty across its domain of application, the pattern of management exhibits the same structure found in the legal negligence debates. Consider three cases in the more personal part of the moral system. So first, if the object of my due care is your life or security, then I must take steps, even if they're costly. I'm not responsible for what I could not reasonably prevent, but the standard of due care is high and is insensitive to the particulars of my condition. That burden, if it's too high, can be relieved by a division of labor. If we move down, suppose I've promised to meet you for a movie. Given that I have a late running meeting, due care warrants setting a reminder. But if in the press of business I forget, and then don't show up, I owe you something. Though, if the meeting was vital to my interests, and you know that, perhaps you should share the burden and be understanding. On the other hand, if I take your nice new bike off-road, whatever happens when I'm out there off-road is on me. Even things that, in the moment, could not have been prevented. Now, what follows if there is, as I think there is, common form across all the cases, from the highest cases in the law to the lowest cases in bike riding? One thing is that it might be a mistake to try to resolve the disputes in legal theory about the kind of problem negligence involves. In light of the complex structure of the underlying moral duty of non-negligence, each of the competing accounts can instead be seen as suited to a distinct part of the moral system. From my point of view, that's a happy result. I have an inquiry that starts in a debate about negligence law that prompts an amplification of moral theory. The new focus in moral theory on non-negligence reveals important continuities between moral and legal duties and sheds light on the initial debate in law. If morality is the kind of system I think it is, including the law as a proper part, this is just what we should expect. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was great. So now we have um, only about a half hour for questions and discussion.
and I'll call on people, but afterwards, stick around because there's a reception outside in the corridor where you can talk to Barbara Warren informally. Sarah. This is a programmatic question, and I know I'm not going to change your mind, but <laughs> as a consequentialist, I naturally feel that consequentialists can explain a lot of what you want to explain just more simply. So consequentialists want to promote a certain kind of character because you know, of the consequences that people having that kind of character will result in. So we want to promote you know, the level of care which is necessary and sufficient for avoiding more or less expectable harm. So you know when I'm driving, I want to pay enough attention that I don't turn the wrong way down the one-way street. But I am not expected to check under my car and make sure there's not an unconscious person under there. Because that's not very likely, unless I'm in a place where that happens a lot, <laughs> next to a fraternity or something. But typically, we, we cultivate you know, dispositions insofar as they need to be cultivated to achieve a particular effect. And even the difference between perfect and imperfect duties, I won't go on, but you know, I think can be explained in terms of, you know, what we're trying to achieve and the best ways to achieve it. So that's really a, a remark. So, a two-pronged two an, two answer. Um, one is I think it's Hard, harder, you'll see why I'm going to emphasize harder, not impossible, harder for consequentialists to absorb the range of value. Um, they can. I mean, you can be a consequentialist over any kind of value, and you can be a qualified hierarchical structure. There's lots of things that consequentialists do. But I think it's not as natural um, to look at the range of values. The second, and I think um, for me, uh, deeper worry is that I think consequentialism is a form of, I'm sure I'm not going to say this without stumbling, Ptolemaicism. Ptolemy. Um, so there's a feature of, of moral theory and of theory generally that theories can mimic each other. Um, so one of the ways in which, for example, Kantian moral theory advances is by peeking over at Aristotle. What do they do over there that we're having trouble doing? And can we do it? And the answer is almost always we can. Um, almost always one theory can, in its own way, harder, in, in a hard way, or an easier way, do what the other theory can do. So what you look, what I want to, so the fact that, that consequentialism can is what I would predict. Um, of course it can, because it's, it's watching. Um, Kantian theory has to look at consequentialism if it's going to be ever, ever to have anything to say about large numbers. Because boy, does it not know how. Not on its own. I don't know what it's going to say, but it, it's going to be looking elsewhere. So the question is really going to be, it's, it's like the competing theories that I was pointing to in the legal negligence. You're going to pick certain examples. You're going to pick examples about not having to look under your car and... and you know, just having to do this, and that's going to think, yeah, we're just trying to be safe. That's the sort of thing that we want to do. And I'm going to say, well, well, I actually need us to be 
um, not just developing certain dispositions, but actually being fully attentive in a deliberative way to the way that complex values related to the different primary duties interact. And you can't do that with the kinds of dispositions that a consequentialist typically talks about. You're going to say maybe back to me, oh, but we can make that more complicated. And I'm going to say probably you can. Um, but the reason I have is I think that you know in this area, um, that following the thread in this way generates the phenomena that have to be accounted for. It may be in the end of time, and since, any, since on my view any theory can do most anything, we'll like the way a different theory does it. Um, but I'm interested in the fact that it would have been harder to generate this. It wouldn't have been as, consequentialism wouldn't have been as sensitive um, to the kinds of cases in the array that I think one has to be, whereas I think an autonomy theory um, and a theory with the structure of duties that I was suggesting is. So not a definitive answer. something that touches on research that I'm doing and also, of course, uh, research that, and writing that Professor Nussbaum does. And that's on the question of beneficence and the role that it plays in a moral theory. And I just want to just throw something out that may or may not be of interest to you. I, there's this very interesting way that benevolence kind of competes with self-interest in moral theories, whatever they may be. And we have this kind of continuum of uh, emphasis, emphases on benevolence uh, in, terms of, in terms of that role. So if someone like Rawls or someone like Professor Nussbaum is obviously further in the direction of benevolence than someone like Alok uh, and other libertarian thinkers. And so we on the left are constantly trying to basically ratchet up the role of benevolence in, in a moral theory. And it raises a question for me because, as you explained, benevolence is a form of the good. It's not, some, it's not just pure sacrifice. And that's, that's, of course, very interesting. If those of us who are cultivating benevolence as a conception of the good continue to do that, there's, there's a potential for kind of an erosion of self-interest as a competing conception. And I'm curious to know whether or not you think that there's, there's potential there for, for some kind of long-term kind of, you know, basically displacement of self-interest entirely. This is obviously kind of an altruistic or a, or a perfectionist notion, but I, I find it very compelling, and I'm just curious to know if you have any thoughts about it. I remember when, um, a million years ago, when, well, I had a million and a half, and you only have a million. Um, <laughs> um, John Rawls started talking about own interest instead of self-interest. Really ugly yeah. phrase. I mean, it, it didn't win. Um, and, but over time, I, I, I think I have felt more acutely what he wanted. Um, which is, there's, there's a difference between the interest centered in a person. You know, I'm, I'm that actor, and, and these interests are my own. And that we have to attend to. We have to understand what kinds of interests does an agent or actor have. Um, and self-interest is a very uninteresting account of own interest in that sense. So if I were to locate the... Um, the, the view that I was just throwing out at you in a casual way, I would say that I'm actually interested in ratcheting beneficence down, um, not up. Um, I think um, beneficence 
is, an e you know, in some ways, a very easy virtue. There are many for whom we do good easily. The more we have a conception of ourselves as involved in a cooperative enterprise, the easier it is to be beneficent. If you and I are building something together, um, in, that, in that we're doing something together, a whole set of your needs in the language that I was using today become my needs because we can't do what we're trying to do if you can't get the help you need. And I think this is an insight that was important to Rousseau. It was an insight that was important to Mill. Um, that the more we see the endeavor of morality as a cooperative endeavor as opposed to a limiting endeavor, the more these questions come up in a different way. We have a different conception of what it is to lead a good life, what it is to be connected to other people. Um, and some of what we're debating, and I think some of what I thought came up in thinking about non-negligence, is there's, there's some robust choices that we have to make from the point of view of moral theory in thinking about what it is we're trying to explain. It really makes a difference if we think that you know, what we are are separate individuals with loci of interests and rights, that morality and law exist in order to protect, except in those difficult circumstances in which we simply can't get by um, unless we negotiate across it, then we're going to have a story about um, beneficence and self-interest that's of one kind. But that's a theoretical choice about a certain conception of, of what we're like and what the value is that morality and law might be about. Um, I think if one recognizes that these aren't exactly neutral competitors with respect to one another, um, then part of what I think you have to do is rethink from the bottom what beneficence is going to look like um, in a system that thinks about property in a different way in a system that thinks about taxation in a different way. Um, I mean, one of the things that I like about starting from the law side is that consequentialism is much better than this than other moral theories. But you know, between, if you compare consequentialism with all the deontological moral theories, the law, sorry, you pair, compare the law with the deontological moral theories, the law is always asking, What's it, what's it for? What's the underlying point or purpose? What are we trying to do? Um, and those questions have been ruled out for all sorts of um, moral conceptions, except for the consequentialisms. So partly it's trying to see what happens if you bring that back. Lee. Um, so I was intrigued by your example of um, the instances where it might be improper to help. Uh, the, the example of a child falling, maybe you can be an air meddler and try to like leap out to be helpful. And um, it, it, made, it made me wonder about, it connects for me at least in thinking about kind of institution building or habitat building maybe more in, in your terms of uh, what kind of structure we can create legally to help people know when, when, to, when to not help and when to help. Because sometimes we have the opposite problem, kind of a bystander effect that Nobody wants to act, or they expect someone else to act, or they, they don't, they're not sure they understand that it's their role to act, and people then don't get help that they need. And I, I guess I'm just curious your take on 
if there's some type of role for law or some kind of institutional, like a way that institutions can become less negligent by clarifying what people's roles are to each other or having a way that people can coordinate um, in instances where there may be a desire to help, but there may also be a duty not to help. Well, so some kinds of cases might be the worry about you know, whether we should have Samaritan laws, for example, um, and whether um, a certain litigiousness in a culture um, about harm causing makes it difficult for people to be benefactors, doctors, refusals um, to attend to heart attack patients in theaters for fear that um, they'll get involved in complicated malpractice suits. Um, so one answer is, of course, the law can help with that. Um, I mean, if not, not necessarily the courts, but possibly the courts, but also the legislatures, and in either you know capping certain sorts of um, uh, capping certain sorts of, of findings, or you know dealing with issues of insurance. Um, there could be public insurance schemes for. I mean, if that's what the so what we want to find out is what's the impediment. Um, I don't think the impediment is a psychological one. Um, so the impediment may be you're worried about getting too embroiled or too you know, it being too difficult to untangle yourself. One of the problems about helping is that once you begin helping, you're kind of committed to staying and helping. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's as if you know, a doctor who, start, who stops and starts a procedure, stops to help someone and starts a procedure, can't say, well, I've kind of gotten halfway there, but I guess I'm out of here. I'm late to dinner. Um, and, and so I think there are, but, but often these are issues where what's driving people are worries about liability. So on that. On questions about when they shouldn't help, um, now that's, so what are the kinds of cases we're thinking about? Sometimes you shouldn't help because you lack expertise. Sometimes you shouldn't help because it's in somebody else's domain. Um, you have to you know, recognize appropriate authority. And on the playground, it's you know, the, the caretaker, um, not the stranger. Um, what other kinds of cases did you have in mind? Well, I think that there may be lots of settings where, um, where people might encounter someone who, who is in need. And what we want is for the person who's in need to be helped by exactly one person, in a sense. We don't want everyone crowding to help them. We don't want everyone ignoring them. We don't want somebody jumping the queue to undertake a duty that is better left to someone else. But sometimes there can be confusion on the facts as to whose role that is. And it, it, it just seems to me that if we're going to think about individual duties of, of non-negligence and, and when people act, that there has to be some kind of understood rules of the game of, of where do we look to try to get the coordination strategy that lets us uh, stay out. If you just see someone on the street, for example, who, who's, who's falling over, you know, to what extent should you understand it as this is someone I should help, this is someone I should call the police to help? I mean, so, so some things we can do. I mean, we, we could all have better training. We could all be better helpers. It could be part of our high school education that, you know, so we can make some of this go away. We're terrible helpers because we are unbelievably ignorant um, about how to do very much unless we take special training. So I think there are things like that. Um, some things um, 
some things are matters of um, who's available. I mean, typically, if there's really bad traffic congestion, um, none of us think what we're supposed to do is jump out of our cars and start directing traffic. Um, how did we learn that? <laughs> we, um, we did learn it, that we're not supposed to do it. We're not, there isn't this enormous crush in the intersection of people desperate um, to direct traffic. Um, you know, we, we, we can't call for help because nobody's listening, um, and besides, they can't get there. Um, so some of this, it's not that strange. Um, these are things that are learnable, um, but in a situation in which I think, like, I mean, in ordinary American culture, where apart from very special places, often in churches, for example, where a great deal of attention is spent about obligations to help in what you have to do. Um, we simply don't talk about it. Um, I'm not sh- so I'm not sure in a certain sense why the answer isn't a simple one. Um, as with many things, like how to take care of your own health and body, which we also don't talk about very much in the education of children, strikes me as something, if it's important that we figure out how to deal with the, co- the coordination problem, then what we need to do is make ourselves literate about the nature of need and health, which we're not. Um, so we ask for more than we need. We, we think we need more than we need. Um, it's lots of problems. Um, so it seems to me there's plenty of institutional work. I'm not quite sure, apart from the Samaritan issue um, and the liability issues, which that do seem to me things that the law could make better, um, that it's a particularly apt institution. While others are thinking, I want to ask one that's connected to Sarah. So, so all the time you were talking, I was thinking, okay, this Kantian view is very appealing, but when you move into the political domain, all these issues about political liberalism will arise. And uh, since there are students from the class, and we've just been talking about the difficulty of using certain Kantian notions in a pluralistic society where what you want is a freestanding political conception that can become the object of an overlapping consensus among many different comprehensive doctrines, including utilitarianism. And you know, we were talking about how, how Rawls, up until I think the very end of his life, was struggling with how much of Kant you could put in and how much you shouldn't put in because it would become too sectarian. So I guess I thought that you could have answered Sarah's question somewhat differently by saying, well, you know, there's a part of this, what a, the moral doctrine I've defended, that could be stripped down, part of a freestanding political module, but then you consequentialists could quite happily affirm that and we could find this, this common ground. I mean, it's so question, you know, maybe you don't like political liberalism and you're more of a perfectionist, so that's one, one possibility, but why didn't you go there, I guess, I want to know. I don't like political liberalism. <laughs> um, I, um, I think Rawls struggled, and I think he went the wrong way. Um, I think he, uh, but I think he went the way... He, this isn't a time to do Rawls uh, stuff, but I, mean, I don't think he saw a way um, to properly handle um, deep pluralism. Um, I think part of the, um, so a little bit like the question we were just talking about, some of it is about how 
how committed one is to abstract formulations um, that we all have to embrace life, liberty, and the pursuit of whatever, um, and what morality, including the morality of the basic structure and um, the, the political module, what it actually looks like um, when these values work down. Mm -hmm. So part of the point that I had in, in even you know, uttering um, uh, dangerous words like um, strict scrutiny and so on uh, is these are all terms that are multiply interpretable um, in, in, in thinking of, of them as terms of protection or terms of non-negligence which have their source in a view of here's this thing that we're building together. We're not necessarily making us into little continents. But, um, I, I, I think part of the problem is where you think that the, um, where the pluralism has to have its place. Um, and it seems to me it has ample space to have its play further down in the system in the articulation of what a respectful engagement with difference looks like. Um, what a non-negligent, I don't know what the answer this is, but I mean, I take it, um, how one negotiates the things like the French headscarf, to take an example that Brian worries about. Um, um, there ought to be ways in which, if we aren't trying always to use our highest and most abstract conceptions of the value, the one that really makes it clear that we and you are different, but instead, we, we're down, so to speak, in the playground and wondering, well, who has the authority to pick up the kid? Um, there, I think we can make better sense back and forth. And it seems to me, not always, but many parents in nursery schools where there are children um, of many different cultures and ways of um, upbringing, work this out. Yeah. It, it, it's, so I'm, I'm not so sure. So I think that political liberalism caved in too fast. Well, we can go on yes. over dinner on that. I guess I think it's like any establishment that if it's benign and settles things well at the concrete level, it still could be very um, oppressive expressively. Let's say in Finland, the Lutheran church is very benign, but as a Jew, I have to get the permission of the Lutheran church to be buried in a cemetery in Finland, and I find that abhorrent. I think it just expresses disrespect. Not, not that anyone would ever say no, and they think it's fine. And so, but, you know, your answer seems to me a little bit like that, that we can use our Kantian doctrine in framing the basic principles and put the utilitarians to one side of that point. But then, of course, when it comes to settling some concrete matter, we'll do it perfectly well, nicely. I, I, yeah. I agree with you about the um, oppressive expressivism, but I mean, I think my position is, is something like this. Um, I could be wrong in the following, and, and likely am, almost certainly am, um, but I don't think it's been tried. Um, so I think that, I mean, that's really what I feel. I feel that once, once Rawls declared that we were going this way, then the project went that way. Could you use religious speech in the public forum? Well, Joseph Rawls doesn't. Somewhat. But I, I think the, the, the project is sort of yet unresolved about the nature of the complaint that one makes. 
um, about oppressive expression? I think it's a fair question. But um, anyway, anyway, we'll, we'll do that. That's a, it's a different issue. So, Rafi. Yeah. Um, so, when I'm asking Mike, just it was a complicated talk, so I might not have just not got all the moves right. But it sounded like when you were talking about do care uh, as a kind of duty to attend to the impediments that that one that 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 can arise in full filling one's primary duties. It sounded like you were saying that this is somehow falls under the domain also of what Kant would call public right. Um, so even though it's an imperfect duty, it has something to say about, I mean, it, it, it in some way falls under the domain of uh, public yeah. rights. So what I just, I guess what I wanted to ask you is just a very basic thing. I mean, <clears throat> it seems then that your version of the Kantian state is quite a bit more, quite a bit more active, let's say, than um, a version, say, for, for instance, if, if you take someone like Ripstein, uh, he thinks what public rights steps in to do is to uh, prevent a case in which private a actors will prevent, my action will prevent you from being able to um, exercise your capacity for choice at all. Right? But it, it seems like the way you're understanding the distinction between uh, public and private right actually allows for the state to do a whole lot more. And I was just, I was just um, curious if that was. Well, in, in a way, it's, it's similar to, to the conversation, the uh, abbreviated conversation with Martha. In a way, it's to be seen. Um, I think the question is much more open than Ripstein thinks, um, and in part, I think that because I think um, about Kant, Ripstein is wrong in in um, encapsulating the political from the ethical. Um, so there's. As I say, these are, this is a systematic account. There are upstream and downstream effects. If you have certain sorts of a certain conception of contract or a certain story about property or a certain story about negligence, that affects, I mean, it's your question. That affects how we're going to be thinking interpersonally and ethically about the way in which we either help or don't help or feel that we can or we can't, and vice versa. Um, when you close them all, it, I mean, it, in a certain sense, it makes no sense to me. I mean, there are very good reasons why, you know, when you're doing, when you're in a legislature, you're, you're, you're operating at a level in which you can't be answering the questions about what to do on the playground. It's not your province. It's not what you're supposed to be considering. Um, and law, though I think all of these things are ultimately motive sensitive, there are very good reasons for having lots of directives that aren't. That's not the point. But that the thought that, that these are, I mean, there is the thought, and you know, many, many theorists of the law believe it's the most important insight, that these are just separate domains. Um, and the law is not a moral domain. But Kant didn't have that thought, um, at least. I mean, whatever the, the truth of the matter, Kant certainly didn't have that thought. Um, and so the picture that I have actually, I think, follows the picture that he has, which is that law comes first um, because it's law that you have to have um, in order to create an environment in which you can have people acting morally. Um, and that seems to me absolutely the way the substantive theory works. So it's not that you have 
a, on this picture, a wide array of, of moral duties and what the law is supposed to do is pick and choose which ones um, are going to be the ones that have legal enforcement or have legislative support. There's a priority to public right and the law and the basic structure. Um, because as in the case, for example, about you know, assault and battery, um, those are prior and have to be prior um, to our moral accounts of where things, otherwise, where things start and stop with our bodies. Otherwise, it's just arbitrary. So I think it's not that there's one right answer to what we're going to determine is our private space. That can be debated. But moral deliberation about how you and I interact with each other operate against a background where we know what the, what the structure is, and the structure comes from the law. Um, and the law says this. So that part of the Ripstein part, I think, is right. You have to have that. I think what he doesn't see is that among the ways in which you tell how good the kinds of answers are to the various what's it for things is by looking at the nature of the ethical life that you make possible. And again, there are pressures going in both directions. OK, Brian, I'll have the last question. Thank you. Um, this, in a way, may follow up on some of what you were just saying. But I wanted to invite you to say a little bit more about the very suggestive remark you made at the end. But in a sense, the whole paper illustrated it, namely that you think of law as a proper part of the moral system. And I wanted to just ask what you meant by that, because there's certain things I suspect you didn't mean by that. You didn't mean that um, there can't be legal duties that are, in fact, unethical and that morally we ought to comply with, but I'm not sure. Uh, I assume you didn't mean that every moral duty ought to be legally codified and made a legal duty as well. So it's an invitation to say, in what sense is law a proper part of the moral system in your way of thinking about it? In, in both a simple and, I mean, the answer is both simple and, and ludicrously complicated. Uh, so um, it's a functional answer. I mean, that's why it's the same answer. There, there are certain things, so take an argument. You can't, you can't, um, not because we're evil or selfish or something, you, you can't run a system of property off of um, individuals' goodwill. Um, somebody has to settle boundaries. Somebody has to settle disputes. Some, there has to be some, there's some problems that require institutional answers. Um, I think that's true about assault and battery. I think it may be true about a whole bunch of things. Um, I think um, there may be reasons for thinking that um, speech freedoms need to have some prior protection um, before we even begin thinking about the ethics of truth-telling in the interpersonal realm. So I think when I started with saying, first question is always, what's it for? Um, so both morality and law give rise to directives of various sorts with various sanctions and various institutional structures. And it's fair to ask in each case, whose work is it? Why do we want to have a coercive system here? Well, in the case of public beneficence, I want to say, 1,000 points of light. George the First. Um, terrible idea. <laughs> it put the burden in the wrong place. Um, because what the issue was wasn't about were we good enough. The issue was were we taking care well enough. And that was a collective thing, not a multiply individual thing. So if you ask that question, then you have an argument. We have, then have to have certain institutional structures about taxation, about welfare, and so on. So 
to say that um, law is a proper part of morality for me is to say we're always answering the same question, what's it for? Um, and then we're answering it by looking at what kinds of institutional structures do you need to have um, to get what you need? I think, as I said, to, in answer to your question, I think the law in some ways, I know this is a peculiar thing to say for an ethicist, um, but I think the law actually comes first for a Kantian, um, or ought to come first for a Kantian. Does it mean that the law can ask you to do things that you couldn't do as a private individual? Of course it can. Um, but it's not asking you to do them as a private individual. Um, when the law tells a policeman that he or she has these powers, he's, the law is not saying to such and such an individual, you now have these powers. Um, the law, I mean, this is, you know, baby stuff. Right? The law defines a role. The role has certain you know, um, rights and entitlements, permissions, and so on. Um, but can the law say that I privately, privately, um, am authorized to kill at will? No, can't do that. Um, because when you look at what the system is, the law can't give that directive. Now, the law may say um, that in a case of self-defense, it's not going to investigate what my mental state was if the circumstances were such that it's plain, da 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 But that's a different matter. Um, that's saying it's got good reason not to investigate and we can't do that sort of thing. And, um, I'm not bothered by that. So, yeah, I think the... Um, you know, I'm not sure who owns the system. <laughs> I mean, it, sometimes it looks like a contest when, when one says that is law a proper part of morality? It looks like, ah, oh, well, then law is ceding terrain. But I think we're actually, it's just the same, whatever it is, it's a single, from the point of view that I'm arguing from, it's a single system that's trying to create a context or a space, or I like this ecological metaphor of habitat. Um, and it turns out to have these functionally structural, very different parts um, that really can't, in the end, be understood independently of each other. Though, like, it's a bit like biology, where you can you know, study a little cluster of cancer cells over here for a long time, but sooner or later you're going to have to look at the organ that the cluster cells are in, and then when you try to treat the, the defect in the cells in the organ, you're going to have to see what happens if you do this. To, I mean, it's, again... I mean it to be pretty simple. Well, I want to thank you very much and invite everyone to join Barbara Herman in the reception. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.